Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Between Howie Klein cooking dinner and the herbal immunologist scraping some Petri dish to come up with a vaccine for COVID-19, I can't catch a break on this show. Please welcome the irritable immunologist calling to us from an undisclosed location in San Diego. Hello, irritable. Hey, everybody. Um... I'm still pissed off, but that's the way the cookie crumbles. Yes. Well, we have uh, some of my listeners here who want to ask you some questions. The White House says the daily death toll will reach about 3,000 next month from COVID-19. That's that's what the irritable immunologist has to say. We had uh, we have Helene Olin on the show today from the Washington sure. Post. And she's saying liberals on the coast are looking at Georgia and they're saying, well, this will, this will teach them. This will teach them. But Helene says, and I agree with her, we have to root for Georgia. And Georgia is actually our future. We cannot shelter in place. Do you think the conversation has been politicized? Do you think that we're not being told the truth about this virus and what we can expect both from a health standpoint and an economic standpoint? I, I think the, the answer to, the, to that would be broadly yes on both points. Uh, I think there is certainly there's a lot of danger in, in terms of communicating things about an entity that is incompletely quantified, right? I mean, this is a... This is a SARS part two, but it's, it's lost 20% of the homology with the, the original gangster virus there. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I, I think, so the idea behind, you know, flattening the curve and getting people off the street and out of the gym and, uh, into their homes was to provide central authorities time, correct? To hire Contact tracers, contact tracers, contact tracers, contact tracers to ramp up testing so that anybody who needs a test can get it to ramp up PPE stockpiling in the right place so we don't have these kind of nasty peaks that you folks have seen in New York State. So it's a speed Um, limit. It's an issue of speed limit, and they're not really telling us that. In other words, what they're not telling us is we're probably all going to get this thing. The question is how soon and how many. I mean, maybe. <laughs> I uh, I hope we don't all get this thing, um, but but we'll see. Um, yeah, I mean, un- unfortunately, the so the oh, and the gentleman in Germany could feel free to chime in on this as well. But in terms of effective herd immunity, that there's some relationship between herd immunity and ease of transmission, right? And so this particular virus. 
you can acquire very, very, very easily, it seems. It spreads very, very rapidly uh, with, with very little effort on its part. <laughs> Doctor could say it doesn't make effort since it's a virus. And so the percentage of people that will have to have not just have caught it, but have mounted an effective immune response and have some kind of immunological memory to it will have to be quite high. And there's a lot of evidence to suggest that that may not happen with a significant percentage of the people who actually acquire this, most especially the youngest and least impacted, tend to have the least amount of neutralizing or even... Um, what do you mean? What, what, what do you, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. You're saying that young people will be asymptomatic, perhaps, but never shake it? So, it's just sort of the opposite. They are more likely to be asymptomatic, yes, but in the, the younger the cohort that you look at in terms of people who shake off the disease, the greater the likelihood that they don't have an efficient memory antibody response. So there's this weird inverse relationship between so their body how severe is, the disease is. Uh-huh. Strong, their body is stronger, so they don't need the antibodies? I mean, potentially, uh, provided the antibody production isn't having coming with potential other negative consequences. Yeah. So it may be that their innate immune system or that they've been previously primed by catching perhaps a seasonal coronavirus and there's some sort of cross reaction there. I don't think that's super likely, although I'd, I'd probably be looking into that avenue of investigation since I believe it may have been, it may have been a German paper. Uh, in so let, let me see if I understand this because this is really important. You're saying that young mm. people in the prime of their lives can defeat mm. the coronavirus not with coronavirus antibodies that are specifically designed to take on the coronavirus, but with other types of antibodies or just sheer youth and power. Sure. So it, it would be mostly what you call an innate immune response. So, yeah, there's the younger the patient who's released, the more likely they don't have really high levels of what, what you call neutralizing antibodies. And there's even a significant percentage of those people who don't appear to be mounting an antibody response at all, or at least it's so low it's undetectable. So they, so they of, are keeping, uh-huh. so in other words, they still could have the virus floating inside of them without killing it off, and that makes them more likely to spread it. They've probably cleared it from their system unless it's managed to escape into some really obscure pocket of the body that's uh, so-called immunologically privileged, which could happen. Uh, certainly the testes. <laughs> There's a bit of a uh, blood testes barrier there, and certainly as well as potentially in the eye. Uh, I know the gentleman from Germany is probably aware that you can... Oh, th- there's testing on, on a number of different viruses that can end up... Um, in the, the ocular system and can hang out there for after for a period after you would assume the patient has has cleared it. But no, that wasn't what I was saying. What I was saying was that their immune system is sufficiently adept that it can clear the virus without getting to the point of generating an efficient memory response. At least that's what it appears from some of the uh, testing on memory response. Means anti- does that, that means antibodies? Memory response. <laughs> Yeah, so the adaptive immune system is going to involve, yes, 
the creation of antibodies, which is a typically circulating proteins in the blood, but also uh, secreted, uh, as well as cells, especially T cells. So there's a cell mediated response and a, uh, what you call humoral response. So not, it's not funny, but it is a humoral response when something is secreted into the blood. Okay. And so, yeah, memory immunity is, is typically, you're going to divide it into two bits. The, the cells that are responding, which is the cells that make that antibody, uh, B cells, uh, plasma cells in the bone marrow, as well as T cells, uh, which are helper T cells, CD4 positive and typically CD8 positive cytotoxic T cells. The latter will destroy infected cells directly and the former will coordinate things with all of the many other uh, cells and systems in the immune system. I want to bring so Henry. I want to bring Henry in, in a second. Uh-huh. What, I want to bring Henry in in a second, and we'll introduce him because he is, uh, as far as this show is concerned, he's an expert on Ebola. And I, I'd mm-hmm. like to know if they were in a fight, Ebola versus COVID nineteen. <laughs> put them in the octagon. Who would win? But we'll get to that in a second. Ugh. Vice President Mike Pence. When he showed up, a lion of a man, a lion of a man. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, he he took on the virus without a mask. He showed up at the Mayo Clinic without a mask. Did he do that on purpose? Was he sending a message by doing that? He 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 knew what he was doing, right? What was he saying by not wearing <laughs> Mike Pence? I I think I think the odds are fifty fifty. He he knew what he was doing, and or some PR uh, person either affiliated with him or the president told him to get his bright, sparkling whites out there as much as possible so people could identify his face. What was his... There's there's probably easy, even money. (laughs) In all seriousness, you don't think he was aware that he was going without a mask? I mean, he's in charge of the task force. He's fighting off the virus. There's a reason we're getting mixed signals about... Certainly, they're being delivered. I I don't... I. You could take this as emblematic of the overall response. That's fine with me in this specific case. No idea. I mean, it's Mike Pence, right? The guy completely botched the HIV response in his former home state when he was governor, and now he's, you know. But if you were, I, I, if, but, I okay, but, but if you're, but if you're a leader in, say, Sweden, or yeah. an advisor to Boris Johnson. They would be pushing for the herd immunity, right? They'd be saying, "Forget the masks, bring it on." I don't right? think Johnson's. I don't. I don't think Johnson's government is, is taking that tack at all anymore. Anymore, they started out that way. But, yeah, but, but Sweden it, you know. still is Sweden, and some people think they're being successful. Are you sure. Yeah, hard to say at this point. They certainly got a lot more dead people given their population than their, you know, closest geographic and cultural neighbors. The the Danes and the the Norwegians uh, who have done full lockdown have far fewer deaths. I mean, you know, they have a much more coherent social outlook there. So I guess people probably follow rules and instructions pretty well in Sweden would be my guess. It's been a long time since I was there. Uh, But relative to here, yeah. (laughs) The scraping sound, you're, you're not cooking the way Howie Klein no. is, you're, you're cooking, a, you're making a vaccine. Uh, Henry? No, no, that, that, was, that was scraping some of the heroin from me. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> David, uh, if I may jump onto several of the points that were made already. Yes, introduce yourself to our listeners and give us quickly your background. So I'm a long-term 
a student, a fifth year senior at Feldman University. FU. Uh, exactly. Uh, no, I'm uh, a graduate researcher of Ebola at a lab in Germany. So I'm not Dr. Henry yet. Hopefully in a couple of years I will be. Uh, and then I can emulate the irritable immunologist, but with Ebola. Can you That's shoot, can you shoot Botox for my guests and me? We do have botulism <laughs> toxin in our lab, and we make jokes about it sometimes, but that's that's for one of the Friday Ooh. shows. Somebody okay. can ask about All that. Right, go ahead. What is your question or statement for Irritable? So I've got a couple statements that I want to make just to, to clear up a couple of things, and then I'm going to um, toss it back to the Irritable immunologist. So I just want to clear up for listeners when Irritable's talking about innate versus adaptive immune systems for people that are unaware we essentially have two main types of immune defenses so when you're first infected your body recognizes that there's something that's not part of it within it but it doesn't necessarily recognize exactly what it is this happens really quickly and the first steps that your body takes to fight that uh, foreign invader is called the innate immune system it's not specific for the specific pathogen that's invaded your system. Wow. These are things like sweating, fever, inflammation, wow. white blood cells attacking, macrophages, neutrophils, degranulating, natural killer cells, etc., etc. Then sometime later, several days later, once your body has recognized what it is, then it activates the adaptive immune system, which is specific for that specific pathogen. So what the irritable immunologist was saying is that young people having a, a very strong immune system are more effective at clearing the infection with just using their innate immune system, which requires less of the adaptive immune system. So I hope that that clears that up. Yeah, that's really fascinating. But I, uh, so, and so you're saying that the innate immune system can kill a virus without the antibodies, just like sometimes or in some cases? Yeah, in some cases, sure. I, normally, you'll still have um, innate activation and you'll have then memory that forms after that. But yeah, in, in some cases, your innate immune system might be sufficient to clear infections. Like a fever, for example, it heats up the body to, to kill the virus? So kill the virus, not exactly. Perhaps the, the irritable immunologist would like to get more uh, specific on how fever benefits the body. It, it really allows the body to have more of a chance to use its other systems against whatever has invaded rather than doing it directly by itself. But I don't know how relevant that would be to this current conversation, how much time we want to spend on that. Irritable? What? Oh, you know, that, that all that was, that was excellently done. Marvelously yeah. disambiguated rather than just uh, some random jackass throwing around $6 terms on the phone. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, that, uh, that, that all sounds pretty good to me. Um, yeah, so what I was attempting to communicate, and our, uh, our friend in Germany has – has dramatically uh, <laughs> enhanced the clarity of what I'm saying. Is that yeah, there there appears to be a patient cohort that can kick this virus out of the house before that cohort starts generating substantial amounts of antibody that are detectable in the blood. 
Um, and so this may or may not inform their subsequent ability to become infected because the, what I'm calling innate immune system doesn't generate unto itself uh, immunological memory of significance, although some people would say things about natural killer cells uh, that are a little bit different there, but mm-hmm. that's neither here nor there. So, yes, when you have an uh, adaptive or a, a immune response and you generate a really nice, oh, for the, our purposes, uh, neutralizing antibody peak, that's happening, yeah, well over a week past acquiring the infection. And you are getting some, particularly younger individuals, who appear to be clearing this without generating this really substantial antibody pulse in their blood. And so whether they will be as protected the second time around, if they're not generating substantial amounts of of anybody tighter in the blood is a good question. Uh, there's a lot of data on, oh, long-term immunity to coronaviruses, and all of that data is that it's crap. Um, particularly the seasonal coronaviruses, there's a number of papers that have been around for years showing the same individuals can be reinfected with these respiratory coronaviruses, sometimes in a single season. Those people do tend to be disproportionately young. Uh, with SARS and MERS, the antibody response also tailed off, but it, it took a couple of years. Yes. Um, can I jump in there for a second? Please. please. Yeah, so uh, these papers that Irritable is referencing, yeah, they've been around for a while, and uh, for seasonal coronaviruses, the the neutralizing antibodies and the, the memory against that only lasts uh, generally up to five months, which is why, as he said, you can get infected with the exact same coronavirus multiple times within the same year, whereas SARS, and again, he's absolutely correct, but I'll just nail it down a little bit more specifically, the the immunity lasted for about two to three years, at least to the point where it tailed off, where they didn't believe it would be effective anymore. There's no. There, well, wait a second. There was there was a. You're talking about the antibodies or a vaccine? I thought there was no vaccine. No, no antibodies. Did I say vaccine? I meant no, no, antibodies. no. I just assume, when you say immunity, I would assume. But they no, couldn't no, use because the, you can you can develop immunity just by being infected by something. That's what you always heard about uh, mm-hmm. chicken pox parties, where one kid would have chicken pox and all of the mothers would send their kids to the party, and everybody would get chicken pox. But there they go; they won't get shingles later. They're immune to it, even though it wasn't from a vaccine. It's the same method, though, and it, it's like that with a lot of diseases. Smallpox was the same. If somebody survived smallpox, they never were going to get it again. So there's, there seems like to be that. there seems to be a lot of young people, I, I read somewhere some Harvard-educated kid is saying, we're, we're going to have COVID-19 parties. Let's just give ourselves this immunity. And sure, but enough about Jared Kushner. Right. <laughs> well, this was actually at the point that I was going to raise is that if you're not maintaining immunity long term, it's not possible yeah. to get herd immunity right. unless everybody's infected like on yep. the same day. But if assuming that we're having a general infection curve where it's spread out over time, by the time the first people have gotten better and the last people are infected, the first people are now susceptible again. So this whole notion of herd immunity is completely unfounded in any of the science that's out so far. I mean, maybe Irritable wants to jump in and talk about how irresponsible it is to be advocating this without any evidence that we're going to have long-term immunity. But yeah, that's my spiel. 
No, that's I, I can't help but agree 100% that you you hit precisely on the nub of it. Unless you can guarantee that everyone was exposed within a very short window, people who've been previously exposed, their presumably humoral antibody is going to be tailed off within a couple of years. The, the SARS, people were very excited when SARS first came out, and I, I was a, a young pup in undergrad, and, you know, after a year, they said, hey, look, this is just great antibody response. Two years later, hey, great antibody response. Year three, oh, crap, half the patients don't have any antibody anymore. But in Five a vaccine, years in, so you, in the search uh, for a vaccine, we're not looking for antibodies. We're looking for attenuated viruses that will trick. So, but you're, you're, yes, but you're using those things to generate antibodies. So you're trying to. So, yes, that's a little bit important to disambiguate. So people will be generating what's called monoclonal antibodies, Mm -hmm. which will be more or less made in a dish and then injected, highly purified, concentrated, and injected into people who have a severe disease to try to bring the amount of virus in their system down by pulling it out of circulation. No, that's not a vaccine. That's a treatment. That's not a vaccine. That's Exactly. So a vaccine is one step further. Instead of doing it in a dish, you're attempting to inject something, either mRNA, we'll see how that works out, hasn't worked out before, uh, uh, DNA vaccines or bits of the pathogen or an inactivated pathogen or a trick pathogen, the Sinovac and the Oxford attempts I, I are all that second, no viral vector. Stop for one second because Henry was talking about this at the Zoom party, and they, mm. this is really important. Henry, explain what the vaccine is it's a as you were explaining it friday night at our party you were saying that they inject a a virus that looks and smells like covid-19 but it's totally different yeah, i'm sorry so, so there's, there's many different. types of vaccines i'm sorry um, did i get that wrong or is that well you took you took one type of vaccine uh, as an example. So as I was explaining to people on Friday, there's a bunch of different types of vaccines. There's inactivated vaccines, live attenuated vaccines, subunit vaccines, conjugate vaccines. Um, there's vaccines where they mount parts of one virus onto parts of the... This isn't bubblegum shrimp. Virus. We're not doing... Uh... Yeah, that was what I was kind of trying to get across, though, is that there is a wide variety of vaccines that have a wide variety of Actions, and that's not even getting into how to increase the action of a vaccine. Like, uh, uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the, on the word. I'm uh, using an adjuvant. Adjuvant, exactly. Thank you. It's a brain fart. Um, there's there's a whole variety of types of vaccines. Is what I was trying to get across on Friday. Okay, so this virus, the virus, the vaccine that they think is coming out of Oxford. I would assume Oxford knows. Everything you just said, because they're Oxford. I, I would certainly hope so. <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah, you hope so. <laughs> a, a a vaccine then would not concern itself with whether or not we're developing antibodies for the COVID. It does. It does. That's that's how you get the immunity. So, what the, the yeah. goal of the general goal of any kind of vaccine is to trick your body and to think that it's being infected by a specific virus. And the goal of that being that your body develops immunity 
to that by generating antibodies that are specific for the disease that you want it to be specific so, for. So as I understand it, if the antibodies then disappear, you just have to keep getting vaccinated. You probably need boosters, yeah. I mean, that's that's typically the way that it's done for things like, oh, the Tdap, um, tetanus, pertussis, and so forth. Okay, so just There's so also, I just make it simple for somebody who's simple like me. You're saying that we don't. We're discovering with the coronavirus that the that the antibodies for it don't stay within the system long enough to develop herd immunity. But if we're from, able- a, from a natural infection, yes. Okay. We, we have, we have no data like. on vaccines. Okay. Yeah. But so if they're able to develop a vaccine that will create the antibodies, right? Mm. And they, and they seem to be doing that in over at Oxford, then it's just a question of how many shots of that vaccine you have to keep getting over the course of a lifetime. Is that in the neighborhood of right? I would I would personally suspect that yeah, you will, you would probably need to be getting boosters, which we do for a number of different vaccines. Like every two every, years. Yeah. Yeah, that would be best guess. And that's provided that one vaccine design is sufficiently effective and the mutation, particularly in the spike protein, which is what everybody and their mom is targeting with their vaccines, mm-hmm. remains relatively stable in terms of mutation, which it more or less has relative to other parts, uh, or for leaven especially. But so yeah. if, if we do yeah. a regimen, if we can get billions of these vaccines out, it is conceivable that, you know, you keep getting the boosters every two years, it could be eradicated. Well, yeah, and what I would say about that is if it was effective... What does Jenny McCarthy say about this, though? She's probably just sticking her head in the toilet and hoping it'll all end soon, <laughs> um, to be honest with you. But the the big issue that we're going to face is the distribution of a vaccine if we do get one that's effective, yeah. because across the planet... There's a lot of places where it's hard to distribute the vaccine. It's also hard to get people to participate in vaccines. So, for example, in Pakistan, the uh, the, the levels of uh, immunization there for polio have dropped off a cliff. And that's because of the U.S., of course. We were pretending to give people polio vaccine when we were looking for Osama bin Laden, and they found out about that. we got him. We, we got them, but it. now polio is raging again. Yeah. But, you know, I guess yep. it was worth it in, in that regard. But that's another story. The point yeah. is, is that if you don't immunize everybody at the same time, you're going to have to keep immunizing the people that you can get the vaccine to over and over again, because otherwise it's going to just keep circulating in the population that hasn't been immunized. Indeed. Okay. Let's go to Nicholas in... Los Angeles, you have a question for irritable Nicholas. Did I? What did I do? Okay. Oh, can you hear me? Yes. What is your question for Henry or the irritable immunologist? So that's very illuminating on what you're talking about because. Um, I got tested positive two weeks ago, 
and I work at a healthcare facility. Um, and I had, at this point, I don't mind, um, sharing this, but I had no symptoms at all the entire time. Mm. I didn't have a cough. Um, thankfully my patients that I was working with didn't get, didn't, were, weren't, weren't infected. But, um, but that's the thing I've been, you know, wondering about it's like, well, I mean, if I didn't get any antibodies or if it just kind of cleared out, am I at risk, you know, for infection again? Because here's what you're talking about, that this is, you know, different than like, yeah, like chicken pox. I mean, the, you know, the, the antibodies can wear off if you even develop it. So it, what are the so chances you had a false positive? That's another question. Was it? Do you know? Do you know what? The results to come back. Do you know what type of test was done? Was it a serology test, or was it? Uh, were they doing RT-PCR? They were doing the. I don't remember the names. I I've had I I did the throat swab, and then the other okay. day, I mean, and then okay. just yesterday, two days ago, I had the the na- the nasolar one. But the one that I got tested positive was the throat swab. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I want to do because we got to wrap we got to wrap this up. But I, I want Irritable and Henry to come back when we have more time to take more questions. This is probably the most illuminating conversation I'm going to hear on this subject. What are the two tests, the, the throat swab and the nasal swab? You, you use two terms. What are these two tests? So that's the, that's the source of isolation, right? So there's... I mean, they they have sputum as well. I, I think the the Rutgers spit in a cup test has shown the same sensitivity as doing the nasal pharyngeal swab. But the two different types of tests that I was talking about were RT PCR, which is amplifying oh, let's just say the the virus's genome, which is RNA that gets converted to DNA and then it's amplified with the RT PCR reaction. That's uh, very very specific, and so if that shows up positive, almost certainly that individual has some amount of viral RNA in wherever that sample came from, either nasal pharyngeal in the throat or blood, uh, as well as uh, feces. Uh, Live virus has now been isolated from stool. Uh, The other principal type of test... So don't don't shake hands with anybody's feces is what you're saying. Or don't do what uh, uh, Howie Klein was talking about, Heine Smoocheroos, none of that. Okay, yes. Wow. Yeah, no. Well, there goes no, Sunday. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, goodness, I, I missed out on something. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so that's, so that it, it's, uh, there's sort of two distinct styles of testing that are happening in terms of looking for the presence of antibody which binds to bits of the virus is typically the serology test that they're doing. There's, there's another way to do that as well. Or looking at the direct genome for the presence of the genome of the virus. So typically the RT-PCR is going to be very, very good in terms of being quite specific, quite accurate. The serology tests, there's been, I think there were like 100 given emergency approval in the U.S., and a lot of them are, are pretty bad in terms of, Potentially false positives. I'm not sure about the European situation. Okay, uh, we, have, we have to wrap that, it up. We have to wrap it up. This hmm. is this is just tremendous. Henry, do you want to explain? Just tack on to what Irritable was saying about the types of tests and 
No, I mean, I, he did a pretty good explanation. The only thing that I might expand on is uh, just what RT-PCR is, just to break it down a little bit farther. So, as he said, it's looking for the genetic code of the virus. So you're looking for a specific sequence of the code, which that's why it's so specific, because we know the exact sequence of the virus, and there's nothing else that has that exact sequence, just like humans have not the exact same sequence as any other species. And what you're doing is you make probes that are looking for this specific sequence, and then they amplify it to the level where we can detect it on a machine. That's okay. why there's almost no chance for a false positive. Is there a chance for a false positive? Sure. There's always a possibility for something. But the the, <laughs> the accurate rate would be astronomically high on that because you have a specific target for it. The okay. serology, on the other hand, as he very accurately said, basically just uses antibodies that bind to different parts of the virus, which since there are so many different coronaviruses and uh, different antibodies have different specificities, that really does allow for uh, cross-reactivity and non-specific binding. So that's why you would have a higher amount of uh, false positives with a serology assay compared to an RT-PCR. This is great. Uh, I just want to point out that Henry and Irritable are listeners to this show. And it's uh, uh, Irritable predates Zoom. He sent me an angry note and... uh, and we started putting him on and through zoom, I've been able to meet Henry. And so there is some good coming from this, not much, but some good is coming from it. I would like, I can't believe you would say that about Henry. That's, that's just cruel. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> he's doing, he's doing an amazing job. You don't need to talk to me. You could talk to Henry. But David, do not let me forget to tell the story about polio vaccinations in Pakistan sometime. That is quite the story. Well, here's what I'd like to do. Here's what I would like to do. I think Henry and irritable are a perfect team because you're polar opposites. I want you to come back for Friday's show. We'll take questions and we'll we will explain the inexplicable. A lot of this is, you know, I don't know any of this stuff. So I'd like you guys to well, I'll contact you after we we finish off here. And I'd like to set up a, uh, a segment and have listeners come and uh, ask you questions. So, uh, thank you, Irritable, and thank you, Henry, and, and, and <laughs> make the Irritable sound. Great job, Henry. Uh, great, job, great job to you, too. Yeah, everybody stay on the line. Thank you to my listeners. You're all my listeners. I mean, Henry and Irritable are listeners. Stay on the line, everybody. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where Ray Suarez is standing by. He is no stranger to my listeners. 
Ray joined the PBS NewsHour in 1999. He was the senior correspondent for the evening news program there. Until 2013, he then went to Al Jazeera America to host Inside Story. He currently hosts World Affairs out of KQED in San Francisco. And most importantly to me, he is a board member of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which tells the story of income inequality from the bottom up, as opposed to how corporate-owned media likes to report income inequality from the top down, which means talking heads screaming at each other over something Donald Trump may or may not have said. Thank you so much for joining us, Ray Suarez. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Thank you. You're now a board member of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, which was set up by the great Barbara Ehrenreich. She authored Nickel and Dimed. Have you met Barbara Ehrenreich? I have many times because I interviewed her about her books. I am a great admirer of Barbara's work. And, you know, it is a sad commentary on the state of the information business in the United States that hers is such a rare view of the American working uh, life uh, when so many people are in the world that she talks about. And yet, you know, it's it's a rarely seen view. She wrote Nickeled and Dimed, what, 25 years ago about the plight of hotel workers and cleaning ladies trying to get by on minimum wage. If they were lucky, they were collecting minimum wage. I think she tried to live on minimum wage. This story was 25 years ago. It was a bit of an eye opener, but it didn't, it didn't move the needle to. Well, look, uh, the, the book did very well. And I think it informed a lot of people's ideas about, um, the, the scramble of living in perpetually low wage work. I mean, did it change America's idea about it? No, but I mean, it certainly informed a portion of the public. The book was widely read and is widely cited uh, by other people working in that space. Right. So um, it's a hard thing. It's a big country, and there are such um, such a large number of discrete uh, information ecosystems where people get their ideas from different places. But certainly, a large portion of the of the population was informed even if second and third hand by Barbara's ideas and her first-person reporting, her willingness to plunge into that world of low-wage work to tell what it's like with a reporter's eye. So it's a, a great and important piece of work. You know, there are all these different information ecosystems, the free market of ideas. You can get whatever news you want, the kind of news you want to hear. I believe in credentials. I have a big problem with the Ivy League and the so-called meritocracy, but when I go to a dentist, I want him to be credentialed. When I go to a doctor, I want him, I want a lawyer who passed the bar, and I want a journalist who worked his way through the ranks and learned this mythical, mystical thing called objectivity. These ecosystems are really dangerous. How do we get rid of them? We can't. Uh, not now, because uh, we've gone a long way down the road uh, toward a dismantling 
of the conventional news business, its folkways, its customs, its ideas of verifiability, its um, ability to assure the public that what it was saying in its pages, in its broadcasts, was actually the truth. That that cow is out of the barn, I'm afraid, because the uh, ecosystem such as it is is filled with all kinds of things, Uh, listicles and um, things like Breitbart, which often are the product of fantasy, Uh, things like Tucker Carlson's program. Uh, It is too late Mm -hmm. to say, uh, well, the news business has to be uh, a product of, of verifiability. We now have discrete publics which gain their information from very, a very narrow set of sources, and people actually know different things about the shape of the world. And disabusing them of those notions is really, really difficult. I found it interesting with my listeners because we've been having Stephen Greenhouse on the show, great labor reporter you covered. Great him. guy and a great reporter. And I tried at the last minute, because this was a last minute booking, I called him and said, will you sit in on this interview and talk to Ray with me? He said, oh, I'd love to. And he read your piece in the Washington Post and he thought it was fantastic, but he had, he's busy. He's a, an amazing reporter for the New York Times and he's been writing for The Guardian and he's been writing for uh, the American Prospect about the labor movement. He, he comes on my show and he doesn't opine. He is a reporter. He is not a pundit. And it was he's, he's still the old fashioned game, Stephen Greenhouse. I, you know, you got to love that. And he got some uh, a little pushback. I was surprised from some of my listeners because he talked about Bernie and Biden and the Culinary Workers Union in Las Vegas, misleading. Some would say misleading their rank and file about health care. And he just reported it. He talked about it on my show, but didn't make a value judgment. He put it out there, and it's for you to decide. And some of my listeners complained that he's on Biden's side. They're so accustomed to. Well, they've been they've been trained by the recent era in news consumption uh, to give more, uh, be willing to trust people that they feel are on their side. I understand that entirely. Right. I think if if they were if they were unhappy with Stephen, they're probably going to be unhappy with me too because no. I'm I'm a pretty straight arrow still and uh I uh I have found it very very difficult to leave behind the training and the habits and the habits of mind and the habits of heart of 40 years of being a reporter. So I'm I still get a little uncomfortable using the words I and me in a story. I still am a little uncomfortable departing from what I uh, have seen and felt and observed myself and uh, going into opinion. Uh, And, you know, I can do it. But, boy, that stuff dies hard. Is journalism changing, you know, during the past 20 years? we kept hearing uh, the term false equivalency as though there are not two sides to every story and that the press was creating problems for the narrative of our 
news by always going to the other side, even though the other side was a dishonest interlocutor. But do you think during this pandemic, there are two sides to every story? Now, I'm finding with whether or not to open up the economy, uh, there are two sides to this story. And the media... uh, isn't giving us both sides that there there are two sides, but I think the two sides, such as they are, uh, what the what a reporter's job would be would be to illustrate your your consequences of these several different choices, so that it's clear. If you choose to open up, these are the things that you might expect to happen based on what epidemiologists know about the course, the trajectory of a pandemic. If you are at peace with those choices, thousands more people dying, perhaps tens of thousands more people dying, then be clear about that. But there is no free lunch. There is no reopening the economy, throwing open movie theaters and restaurants, throwing open public transportation, and not more people dying. So you choose what you want, and you be really clear about what it is. The reporter's job should be to help the public be armed with the information they need as individuals to make up their own mind about what's coming based on the best evidence that we have. Right. And I I didn't want to get you into this conversation. There's so much more to talk about. It's almost as though the American people are being asked to be a Ford executive who knows that the Pinto is going to explode and kill some people. And you have to figure out what a, a life is worth, do a cost benefit analysis and decide, are you willing to live with X amount of deaths to save this this much money? And writ large, you have to ask yourself, does turning off the economy create death in and of itself? These are big, big, I hate to say existential questions, but they, but are. they are. And we're they not are. equipped as a nation to have that conversation. So it just goes along the partisan divide. Trump said this, and I, you know... First of all, he didn't even say inject Clorox. He, if right. you go back and look right. at that. Absolutely. He said that doctors ought to look into whether it's possible, which is his way of injecting it into the public's bloodstream without having to own it and without having to take responsibility for it. The reason so many people are taking comfort and hiding out in the conspiracy theory driven nonsense about uh, it being lies, that 69,000 people haven't died of this, that there aren't a million cases of it. People would rather hide out in the comforting, warm, down blanket of conspiracy theory than have to do the rough-edged, hard-edged thinking of saying, I'm I'm okay with another 10,000 people dying if it means I can go to my luncheonette. Right. Right. Well, I want to get to your piece. This is uh, thank you. I, I want to get to your piece in The Washington Post. But let's go back to the economic hardship reporting project, because, you know, COVID-19 does equal economic hardship. Barbara Ehrenreich 
says that history is written by the winners, and that's why she set up the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. It's been nearly 12 years since the financial crisis, and now with the COVID-19 pandemic, we're told that America's longest economic winning streak has drawn to a close, and we're on the verge of an economic collapse as big or bigger than the Great Depression. Given the consolidation of media in the past decade, given the number of jobs lost in newsrooms, who ended up writing the history of the financial collapse of 2008? Who wrote it? Uh, People who, in many respects, were defending class interest. I have said in many lectures over the years that the news business is a story of America where wealthy-ish people who work for really wealthy people tell a story to middle-class people about poor people and their pathologies. Wow. And look. Whose pathologies? Uh, the, the, oh, woe is me, look at these terrible people, poor people. Yes. Where you go and put on a long face in a subdivision in Las Vegas where no homes have sold because it ran into the whipsaw of the financial crisis, uh, where moving vans are moving people who just bought these houses six months earlier out to wherever it is they're heading after this, after they've lost their homes. Uh, you have people who are, you know, in a big market like Las Vegas, uh, in a big market like Dallas. If you're on television, you're doing okay. Mm-hmm. Not great. You know, you're no Warren Buffett. Uh, you're no uh, uh, Ellison. You're no Cuban. Uh, right. But you're doing okay. Right. And you go on TV and you tell a people, tell a story about poor people to middle class people. who are, um, more than anything else, afraid of being poor. Right. They, in many cases, understand. They can feel the hot flames just adjacent to their class location. They know how perilous their own situation is. They know, and I I said this in 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 a tweet to somebody yesterday, the word precarity is just a great word. They understand the precarity of their situation, and they are afraid like hell of being like the people they see on TV. Right. And that's really where we are right now. It's a people form of d- control that, that the news, the, the major news outlets are controlling the masses by keeping them fearful. When they say, like George Stephanopoulos who has no background in journalism. I believe he started out as a, a, a press secretary, a failed press secretary, communications officer for Bill Clinton, and he was given a job to be the face of ABC News. And whenever there are budget cuts announced over at ABC, I, I'll say, you know, you could keep 20 jobs and keep some bureaus open if George Stephanopoulos gave up a couple of million dollars a year. But I'm beginning to discover that part of George Stephanopoulos' job is to make millions and millions of dollars a year. That, that that is the job description. 
because if he didn't make millions and millions of dollars a year, he would not be Disney wouldn't consider him qualified to deliver the news. He can't. Yes, it creates its own inevitability, doesn't it? Right. But, you know, I always go back and forth about this. I have at various times in my career made a very nice living. And I'm not going to lie about that. I uh, have done well when you look at the, the broad continuum of American wage earners. But when people complain about Brian Williams making $8 million or George Stephanopoulos making $10 million or God knows who making 11 or $12 million, the bosses have decided that those people bring excess marginal value greater than that amount to the operation of that organization or else they wouldn't pay them that money. I don't believe that anymore. Can I challenge? I don't know if I believe it either, but they've decided that. And since they've decided that, it makes it true, I guess. I mean, if you pay an infielder $25 million, it's hard to know whether you're going to get your money back. You watch the gate and you watch the merchandise sales in the stadium to see if people buy a lot of jerseys with that guy's name on the back. Um, you you right. see whether you win a couple of more games because he makes fewer errors and has a higher batting average. But you never know exactly whether you're getting $25 million worth of work out of that shortstop. You guess. And they're guessing. They're guessing that George Stephanopoulos and people of his uh, strata, uh, stratum inside the business are bringing that much extra profit to the bottom line of the corporation. If they're not, it would be nuts to pay them that much money. Or it's not nuts. It keeps the, the, the people underneath in, in line. If, if you have income inequality in the newsroom, it creates the precariousness you spoke of in Las Vegas. So everybody uh, feels that they're dispensable because it's the Brian Williams show. Time magazine, until about 20 years ago, never had bylines. The Economist, still, no bylines. Isn't, and the Economist is doing very well, thank you very much. You know, when you pick up the Economist, you're reading the Economist, and that has a value. I know I'm reading. Look, I've been an Economist reader for 40 years. I'm glad they don't have bylines. Exactly. And I know some of their reporters, too. Right. And the editorials in the New York Times, which I have problems with, but it's the New York Times speaking, not Gail Kyle. I don't know who sits on their board anymore. The point is, doesn't it behoove a, a network news organization not to have stars to 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 you have people who are reading the news and they they are representing this institution, and when you become bigger than the institution, it—I uh, think it damages the institution. I was a Los Angeles correspondent for CNN in the early days, and in the early days of CNN, we told ourselves, and it was part of the network spiel, that there were no stars. The news was the star, and that attracted me. Yeah. I made an okay living, but I also knew that the anchors of the shows that my reports were appearing on weren't making 
making 50 times as much money as I was making. You didn't know that or you did know that? I knew that they weren't making 50 times as much money as I was making. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And they weren't. They were not making it. They were not in those days because the early days of CNN were very different from now. Right. There were no Anderson Coopers. There were no million dollar anchors at CNN. And there were people who had come out of um, mid-market size local news shops to anchor in Atlanta. Right. And um, and they were not making seven figure salaries. Right. Well, I want to open this up to my uh, listeners who are attending. And uh, I'm really grateful to have you uh, have you do this. I hope you come back. If you have a question for Ray Suarez, you know how to raise your hand and uh, oh, Ray, Ray has a question. Ray Suarez has a question for, for Ray. Uh, Henry, let's go to Henry. I believe he is talking to us from northern Michigan. Good to see you, Henry. The Upper Peninsula, David. We'll get this right one of these days. Henry, I love the UP. Oh, it's a great place, isn't it? Beautiful. Uh, I've one got of the most a you, you're America, breaking. I'm really. sorry. You're you're, you're breaking up yourself. a little, Ray. You're you breaking. Haven't up been a, there. I'm sorry. You, you broke uh, up. If you haven't there. been to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, you owe it to yourself to go there. You should should have told that to Hillary. <laughs> <laughs> what is your uh, question for? <laughs> I've got two two quick questions. Good. One from me. One from my mom that she wanted to ask you. So the question from myself. Uh, relates to something that you wrote in your article in the Washington Post about when you uh, decided to opt out of your dental health insurance when you were in Cobra and, of course, ending up needing it shortly thereafter. Um, my question is, in that regard, we see a lot of articles that use completely false narratives against Medicare for All these days. Are we seeing these narratives disproportionately in the media because the people that are giving us the news are earning so much that they wouldn't even have to fathom going through an experience like you went through? Or is it coming from even higher up than our anchors are? Can I, um, can I put a pin in that, Henry? Because you sure. brought up Ray's piece in the Washington Post, and uh, because I was hogging so much time, I didn't get around to it. Why don't we talk about this amazing piece in the Washington Post. I clung to the middle class as I aged. The pandemic, the pandemic pulled me under. Before you answer Henry's question, you have this great piece uh, in, uh, in the Post. You are a working journalist. You, you, you host World Affairs for KQED-FM. But you are discovering that this economy is not cooperating with somebody like you, somebody who is esteemed uh, a journalist as you, you're discovering that this economy is not working for you. Um, I had done a lot of the things that I thought would build in some insurance about this day not arriving. Uh, but even with a 40-year resume and a successful track record, uh, it's very hard for me to get work. Uh, they prefer younger people. Uh, they prefer uh, people with significantly less experience, even when they specify in a job listing that they want copious experience. So um, 
I had done all the things that I thought would allow me to escape this situation, and I couldn't escape it. The downdrafts in the economy are such that uh, they will gladly hire somebody uh, 25 years junior without uh, my foreign or domestic experience and be very happy with the decision they've made. That's life. I mean, you can't, I can't change that all by, by myself, but that's part of what I was writing about in the post. That's pre-pandemic? That's pre-pandemic, and then the pandemic only pushed it down worse, as a lot of work that I even had booked and was expecting uh, dried up and went away because of what's going on. What do we know about, uh, Henry, you're still with us. We'll get to your question in a second. What do we know about the plight of American workers who hit 50, 55, 60? What we know is that if you are in your 50s, it will take you, if you experience some job loss, it will take you a lot longer to find your next job than you were if you were in your 40s. And when you find that next job, it will be at a lower rate of pay, even though you're more experienced than someone else who might be vying for that job. So you experience not only a job loss, but then subsequently an income loss as well. After 60, it's, it's roughly 20% when you're in your 50s. If that happens to you after your 60th birthday, the, job, the income loss for men is 36% of the job that they had previously. So you have a longer time out of work, and then once you get back into work, uh, you are, can expect a third less salary on average. And that is a, a daunting prospect because the culture is telling us, all the expert voices in the culture are saying, you're living longer, you got to work longer. You have to plan to work longer. Work longer. Don't take your Social Security. Meanwhile, the actual operation of the marketplace is telling you, what the hell, we're going to pay you two-thirds of what you used to make uh, when you get back to work. So um, you may have to begin to rely on other sources of income that we had, we same people had been telling you not to rely on until later in your life. Don't start taking your union pension if you're lucky enough to have one because it will be worth more if you take it later. Don't start taking your Social Security at 62 when you can possibly take it, take it at your full retirement age because it'll be worth more to you. So the voices in the culture say that, the voices in the financial pages say that, but the marketplace says, oh, well, right? you know, (laughs) there's no place for you anymore. So take pension at a lower rate. Take that Social Security at a lower lifetime monthly payment. And it's a, it's a terrible um, set of mixed messages and a terrible downdraft on men who, after the crisis of 2008, are still more likely than they had planned to still be paying mortgages, for instance, into their 60s. Right. Henry, you want to follow up on that? Uh, sure. So um, do you want me to follow up on my question? Or sure, what whatever you, you want. 
but everyone. So uh, I guess I'll just expand on my question a little bit, and then I'll stick my mom's in real quick at the end there, so okay. uh, I don't forget. Um, but in regards to the false narratives towards Medicare for all, I'm not talking about good faith arguments against Medicare for all because, sure, I, I can see that people might have good faith arguments against Medicare for all. But for example, one of the most common things that we see is a projected price tag associated with Medicare for all with no discussion of what our current health care system costs. Um, for example, there was a piece in the Lancet that came out this year that showed that uh, on on average per year, we would end up saving $450 billion on Medic, uh, healthcare costs by transitioning to a Medicare for all plan versus the current system that we have. But most of the news reports omit the cost of the current healthcare system so that the cost of Medicare for all looks extremely, extremely unreasonable. So my question is, are we hearing these false narratives because the anchors are so disconnected from the plight of the average American. They, they don't even have to think about going through a situation where they might have to give up their dental coverage in order to make their health uh, insurance costs more reasonable for themselves. Or is that a message that's being pushed on them from even, even higher up? And then just quickly to throw my mom's question out there, because otherwise I'm going to forget. Uh, she wants to know, with all of the wonderful journalists that we have out there, including yourself and all of the people that are coming out of journalism school these days, why are there so few good journalists around? Is it simply a lack of funding? And if so, how do we change that? Well, the, uh, the Economic Hardship Reporting Project is one way to change it, and Ray sits on the board. Go ahead, Ray. I don't think people are getting uh, either uh, subtle or overt messages from on high telling you this is how to tell this story. I think um, there are, since there are fewer people actually working in the news business today than there were 20 years ago, and yet there is significantly more content from every platform than there was 20 years ago, you know, do them for yourself. Do, do the math, are, you said do the math for yourself? They are... Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you're breaking up a little. Fewer so. people are, if fewer people are creating more content, the uh, possibility of really having some time to think, having some time to report, having some time to consider what you're writing, uh, is is in much shorter supply. Right. So, um, you know, you're you're closer to an assembly line worker than you ever thought you'd be when you were sitting in a journalism class in college somewhere. I, I don't think it's as um, conspiracy theory-ish as messages from on high. But there is a problem with the class consciousness of, uh, of a lot of anchors who don't realize that um, most Americans, for instance, who, are, uh, who earn a... a Biweekly paycheck, a semi-weekly paycheck, um, never pay FICA. I once had a long argument with somebody in my newsroom who said it wasn't really a story that the federal government was, uh, I said that it wasn't really a story that the federal government was raising the threshold for FICA because it, it's meaningless to most people because they never make enough money to not pay FICA tax. 
and he could not believe it. Tell everybody because, what the FICA tax is, please. Well, the FICA, you'll see it itemized on your paycheck. If you look at your stub, it's your uh, Social Security contribution. The threshold this year, I think, is like $120,000 or so. So uh, you pay uh, up until $120,000, and then any money you add after, earn after that, you don't pay FICA tax. And I said to him, that's not really a big story because most Americans never in their lives get a paycheck where they don't have FICA tax taken out. And he could not believe it. He had been earning such a good living for so long that he could not believe that there were people who never got a pay stub where FICA was not taken out. And I had to prove it to him. We. Wow. We had this argument in the newsroom. I had to prove it to him that most Americans never earn anywhere near the threshold to stop paying FICA. And it was an, an illustration to me of somehow, uh, sometimes these guys just, they've been making a good living for a long time. They're not bad people. They're not even stupid people. They've just been, um, you know, blinded and reassured by how well they've done and for how long. Uh, that, you know, in a median paycheck is um, like, you know, $1,200 a week or $1,100 a week. The idea that you're going to make enough money to ever pay your FICA threshold and get a couple of paychecks at the end of the year without it taken out is crazy. It's never going to happen. Right. But he just simply could not believe it. Is the problem partially, can you blame some of this on the journalism schools? You said something like somebody sitting in a journalism school wouldn't think of themselves as a factory worker, but my fantasy about journalists from the 50s and the 60s and the 40s is they were labor reporters. They were working class. They identified with the the 99%. Is, is somehow, do, do journalism schools instill some sort of elitism in, in journalists? Journalism schools are co in college. And, you know, the people who became reporters in the 1940s and the 1930s, the era of the front page, let's say, right. uh, were smart, verbal, nervy, uh, clever sons and daughters of the struggling classes. They weren't college educated. They were uh, people who had done well in high school English. Right. When journalism became a profession and a profession where it was perceived you needed a college degree in, uh, to get your ticket punched to enter the game and play, uh, certainly the class interests of journalists started to change. But the, even as I say that, I'm a little hesitant, because in a lot of markets in the country, journalism work pays terrible money, and you are a wage slave just like somebody who's slinging burgers. But you might think of yourself as different because you're aspirational and you want to work in a white collar job and you want to work in a newsroom where you won't be making $21,000 a year, which is what a lot of journalists in this country make. You know, I do a, uh, a radio show with Ralph Nader. I'm bragging. Uh, and one of the things I said before the, the pandemic, I've been saying this for years, is why are you allowed to say when you put out a, a call for an opening, a job opening, you must have a college degree. 
unless you're a dentist or a doctor or a lawyer, why do you need a college degree for these jobs that require no credentials whatsoever? I believe it's discriminatory. I think it's, as you say, classist. I think it keeps out the people who are just as smart as the idiot who went to college, but they didn't have the money. Uh, why hasn't there been a lawsuit challenging uh, you know, we're we're looking for somebody to write ad copy, but you have to have a college degree. Yeah, you have college degree. Well, uh, I I don't know if you could have a, a successfully launch a lawsuit to say that's discriminatory because we live in a country where employers can want what they want and and say what they want within certain parameters. They can't say they want a man. Right. Uh, but they can say they want somebody with a college degree. Or they want uh, a kid to do an internship for a little while and have their parents support them until uh, there's a job opening. I've gotten some private messages from some of the uh, listeners who are attending. They're too intimidated to ask you a question. If you have a question, okay, Dan. Uh, Dan from, I believe, upstate New York. Hello, Dan. Don't excuse me for one second. Do not be afraid. If if you've learned anything by listening to this show, no question is too stupid. (laughs) (laughs) I am. You cannot possibly ask a question dumber than the ones I ask. Go ahead, Dan. I'll start out with hello, Mr. Suarez. Hiya, Dan. Um. A lot of us David Feldman listeners not only check him out on the radio, but he's got quite a substantial podcast. How do you think that the the rise in the podcast world might impact these cable news shows? The the in the podcast we're carrying these long form half an hour, forty five minute hour long interviews and interactions, and then you, you turn on CNN and it's five people for seven minutes. After, after listening to podcasts for several years, you look at that and you go, what value is this at all? Yeah, great question. Yeah, but will the, cable, uh, cable ever pick up on that and, and make a change? Well, do you think? Ray does a podcast, I believe, right? World Affairs? Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, most podcast listeners skew young and most cable news viewers skew old. And a lot of the people who watch Fox or, or CNN are not going to go to Stitcher. Uh, or uh, Audible, or some other distributor of podcast or audio content, and start um, browsing the shelves there for something to listen to. They are separate audiences, not entirely, but for the most part. I mean, certainly the CNN program hosts, Jake Tapper, uh, Anderson Cooper, and so on, uh, have podcasts as well. So they know that there's another audience that needs to be serviced. But the, if you made a Venn diagram of who's watching CNN uh, in the afternoon, let's say, that's not the podcast audience for the most part. Right. The audience, there is a market thirsting for long form conversation and information. It's almost as though the powers that be want to keep it from us, but that's, you know, I don't want to put the tinfoil hat on, but doesn't it behoove the oligarchs not to do long form? There are 850,000 podcasts now. And I don't mean to brag, but I am the (laughs) 845th 
thousandth most popular. <laughs> so I, I don't want to rub that in anybody's <laughs> face. But, you know, I've been doing it for a long time. So. There are 850,000 podcasts. So if the powers that be had some interest in protecting their turf, uh, they might do well to have there be fewer of them. Uh, what we're doing is this amazing disassembling of the audience. The entire momentum of modern broadcasting was to aggregate large numbers of eyeballs and eardrums in front of radios and televisions. Mm-hmm. So we built networks and built superstations and built, you know, national program distribution with the idea that the the val the valuable the most valuable thing you could do was to have 50 million people right. sit and do the same thing at the same time and then the podcast world came along midwifed by the internet and started to disassemble the whole model of broadcasting in the post war era so you can listen to a program when you want where you want. You don't have to be sitting in front of a television. You don't have to be sitting near a radio. You don't have to tune in at a specific time. So it's taken these valuable properties, radio stations and television stations, and sort of broken apart into mosaic tiles. The whole audience and the whole reason for being that these institutions have. So podcasting is a... a, um, a subversive art, I think. I agree. And yeah. it is, it is, uh, blows against the empire, you might say. Yeah. Because it really is disassembling big broadcasting. It's disassembling big broadcasting. It also fills the void left by the dissipation of newspapers, local radio. There was a time in America where every radio station in America had to run the news. So, there were there were a lot more jobs in newspapers and radio uh, before uh, podcasting, I think, also fills the void left. The problem is you don't have some uh, authority unless it's a network. You, you don't necessarily you're not necessarily. I'm sorry, you're breaking up. You're just Joe Schmo from Kokomo. If you if you just put a podcast on, stand one up yourself and start to do it out into the ether. Right. Uh, if you have a network platform, you know, Chris Hayes, at the end of his show every night, he promotes his own podcast. Right. That kind of power means something. You don't have a cable show where at the end you can say, and hey, watch it, listen to the David Feldman podcast. Right. It would help. Believe me. Yeah. It's- That's the rise of influencers. We lose the networks, and now we have influencers. Uh, can you spare a few more minutes? A few more. Okay, thank you. I uh, I do long form. This is uh, you're lucky you don't come to our Zoom parties on Friday night. They go to. I mean, they, anyway. Uh, let's talk about income inequality and Occupy. In 2011, Occupy started. Do you think the coverage of Occupy was fair? Not in the reporting. Everybody, I remember Brian Williams was leading with Occupy. But in the amount of time devoted to Occupy, was the coverage fair? I saw sizable 
occupy encampments not only in Wall Street, but in Philadelphia, in Chicago, in San Francisco. The coverage was not proportionate to the reach and the impact of the movement. But I think the movement made some mistakes as well. By having 60 different causes on board, when a reporter actually would deign to come down to LaSalle Street in Chicago and stick a microphone in somebody's face, uh, it was not a unified message mm-hmm. that they got about what does this mean, what is this for, what are you trying to say to capital in the United States, what is it that you want to say to um, the rest of America. So, you know, I'm, and look, I, I'm not going to blame Occupy. Occupy galvanized a lot of public opinion and got a lot of attention. The news business, I don't know if it quite knew what to do with Occupy for a long time. It did pay some attention, perhaps not enough, but the coverage was confused. It was just pointing a camera at tents and pointing a camera at Zuccotti Park in lower Manhattan and saying, here it is, look at these people, what do they want? We don't know. And it just wasn't granular enough, it wasn't thoughtful enough, uh, it wasn't sustained enough. How when, does that compare to Bernie? Because it seems like he got the same coverage that Occupy got. And before Super Tuesday, when it looked like he was going to be the nominee, and this will be my last question, the media just had no idea what to do with Bernie. Bernie was interviewed a lot. He was covered a lot. To the people who supported him and wanted him to be the next president, it was not enough. Uh, but it's not like he didn't get covered. And anybody who was in the audiences for the debates saw a lot of Bernie as well because he was close to the center of all of the panels because he was still in the polls. Right. Um, Bernie was bringing up issues that should have been covered as issues instead of covered as Bernie. Right. There should have been reporters doing more stories on income inequality than stories on Bernie talking about income inequality. That's my personal rant on that subject. And it's not because I support Bernie or don't support Bernie. It's just that we could have a smarter national conversation about income inequality if it was covered by newsrooms instead of filtered through Bernie Sanders and then people covering Bernie Sanders had to be the representatives of income inequality as a story. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's too weird to say, uh, too complicated to say. No. But I, I think there should have been just more coverage of in, income inequality rather than allowing Bernie to carry all that water on his own for that issue, which is one of the burning issues of the 21st century. Ray Suarez was senior correspondent for PBS NewsHour and host of the public radio show America Abroad. He co-hosts right now the program and podcast World Affairs for KQED-FM and the World Affairs Council. And he also sits on the board of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. You can follow him on Twitter at Ray Suarez News. Thank you so much. It's an honor to have you on the show, and you were very generous with your time. A pleasure to be with you and, uh, you know, 
everybody out there, be smart news consumers, and then I'll, I'll, you know, it'll make everything I did by coming on this show worthwhile. Thank you, Ray. Thank you. Stand the line for one quick second. Thank you. Mm -hmm. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Well, will the American people wake up and say 40 years of Reaganomics has laid bare the bankruptcy of our tax code, which makes the rich richer and the poor poorer? And the first thing we have to think of when a pandemic strikes the first thing we have to think about are the people living on the streets, not the people living in the penthouses. Will we change as right. a people? Bail out people, bail out people, not corporations. Um, these checks that that they mailed out to people and, and deposited in their accounts, they're smaller than the bailout money that Mnuchin now has his hands on. They just decided to give $5.8 billion to American Airlines. The entire market capitalization of American Airlines is $5 billion. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Joining us is Howie Klein. He is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive and some socialist candidates around this great country of ours. R required reading, Down with Tyranny. Read Down with Tyranny. Welcome, Howie Klein. What are you going to be cooking today while you do this? Well, um, well, right now, I just started working on this. Um, well, yeah, it's five last night, but I, I, I'm putting the finishing touches on the appetizer, which is a, um, a, a lima bean uh, kind of salad. And, uh, you know, a lot goes into making something like that perfect. And a lot of us, when we're young, we don't like lima beans. I didn't either. But they're delicious now. And I'm doing this in kind of a Greek style, so, you know, very, very flavorful uh, you know, I, I soaked it overnight, then I got up early, early this morning and cooked it, and then I put it in the fridge so it would be cool, and then I added stuff to it, and some stuff that's really rare and, you know, people don't know anything about, and some stuff like, you know, onions and uh, cherry tomatoes that everybody knows everything about. Right. So, and, and then the main other ingredients are olive oil and uh, lemon. Well, before we, we have listeners who have questions and they're going to raise their hands if they want to talk to you as part of our pandemic coping mechanism, we're inviting listeners to attend our sessions with Howie Klein via Zoom or by phone. And if you would like to sit in on the Howie Klein segments, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and go to the office hours page and I will send you an invite. I maintain that you are right about everything. You are the moral compass. You are the moral compass for this show. And you predicted the anti-Trump wave in 2018. You got it almost correct to the number. And when I was kind of being an optimist when it came to COVID-19... <laughs> I was going, well, the numbers are going down. and you, you don't understand. You told me that this is like the end of the world. 
and I owe well, you. I, an I thought you were joking. I didn't. I didn't know if I if you were playing or 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 trying and trying to get me to say something crazy. But I thought then I thought you were crazy because you seemed to be want to believe that uh, that COVID nineteen wasn't a major disaster. And, and it was a major disaster. And, uh, you know, I was just reading a few minutes ago, it's, it's probably going to get even worse now. Uh, that, uh, there, that, um, a government, uh, sort of uh, paper just came out, wasn't supposed to come out, it was, uh, surreptitiously released, that it comes from the CDC, showing that it, on June 15th, so that, that's, a, you know, not that far from now, the daily death rate now it's around twenty some odd thousand. Yesterday was twenty seven thousand. Today's a little bit less. But by June fifteenth, which just happens to be arbitrarily the cutoff date of this um, of this paper, so it doesn't mean that it stops then. It just happened. That's the date of the paper. Uh, it will be two hundred thousand a day. That I, if, I hope I didn't say death rate. I mean case the new case rate. Right. I didn't mean death rate. So the new case rate will be 10 times what it is now in about a month. So there we go. Well, I have been venturing out into the world. I got my mask in the mail. I have my latex gloves and my hand sanitizer. And I am out there. And I have noticed a lot of New Yorkers not wearing masks. And I've noticed a lot of frontline workers not wearing masks. And I really? thought, yes. Isn't it law that they have to wear masks? Well, there's certain jobs where they're, it's not being enforced. Certain grocery stores. Well, I guess that has to do really grocery stores. Wow, in LA, it's very, very, uh, very much enforced. Uh, in um, I was just I was just looking at a story from Flint, Michigan. You hear about this, the Flint, Michigan story? Which one? Well, this one is about. Um, uh, a security guard at a uh, dollar store telling a young lady that um, she had to wear a mask to get in the store, and she refused. And he said, "Then you will not be served in this store if you don't put the mask on." And she refused. And then uh, he said, "Well, you're not getting served." And she went home and told her mother and father and brother, who then went back to the store and shot him in the head, and he died. Yes, I did hear about that. Uh, so I, so I, you know, I've been, I've been writing about that for tomorrow. I'm trying to, you know, get my head around that. And you know, I don't, uh, as you know, I'm uh, a very sober person. I don't lightly uh, advocate using violence. Uh, I stopped doing that after Harvey Milk's murder was taken care of. Murder Road was taken care of. But uh, you know, I do uh, advocate. Um, people obeying the law and in this case you know we've worked so hard nobody likes to be shut in uh and and kept from work and kept from yeah, restaurants and kept from whatever they do no one likes that but the reason that we do it is so that we all get better and if you have a subset of people who refuse to do the social distancing thing or and even are threatening other people who do it uh, then we have a real problem in society, and that's what that was an example of. Yeah, to be clear here, as I understand it, and then we'll get to the listener questions. As I understand it, wearing a mask doesn't prevent you from getting COVID-19. It prevents you from spreading it, especially if you're asymptomatic. 
And well, it's a combination of the two things. Remember, when they, the first lie that the government told us about masks, and you and I went over this months ago, was they said, don't wear a mask, it doesn't do any good. And what they were really saying is, we need the masks for ourselves, so don't you get a mask. That's what they were saying, literally. And, and I told that to our listeners that that's what they were saying, and that was obvious what they were saying. And now, and now, you know, they, they, and now they're saying that what you just said, that it doesn't, it doesn't pr- pr- protect you, it just protects the people around you. And it, it's true that it protects the people around you, but it also protects you, especially if you have a good mask. Right. And the, the observation that I've made so far going out into the world is uh, I'm the call. I want to speak to your manager guy. I've deigned to go out. I, I'm ashamed to say this, but I'm now going out into the world. I'm perceived as I want to speak to your manager, that asshole. And I get a sense, at least here in New York, from the people who have been working since day one, since this pandemic started, if they're not healthcare professionals, they're saying, some of them are saying, F you, we're all going to get it, baby. We're all going to get it. And well, we are if we don't wear masks. With masks or no masks, we're all getting it and we're all being lied to. That's the message I'm getting from some of the frontline workers. And uh, what do you mean by frontline workers? You mean police and and firemen? uh, No, people who are delivering the food, parking our cars, uh, working in certain. Well, they don't sound like frontline workers to me. They sound like morons. Well, but they are the frontline workers, the people who are delivering. Well, the frontline workers would be the doctors and the nurses who aren't saying things like that, and the um, firemen and policemen. I don't know about, um, you know, some moron whose job is working for Amazon, if, that's, if that person can, can give you medical advice if, uh, and, and anyone should pay any attention. I mean, well, he I'm be just saying what he should do, and I'm hoping when you say you want to talk to the manager that you're suggesting that to the manager. Well, I'm just saying that there are a lot of people working the front lines who are indispensable, who deliver our food. It has, has a very different kind of connotation, uh, you know, kind of a heroic connotation than someone who's driving an Uber Uber food uh, car. Right, I'm not going to argue with you. We've had Alyssa Court on the show. She's executive director of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. And one of the first stories she wrote about the pandemic is that we have to start thinking of the Instacart workers, the people who are out there keeping the economy going. You say Instacart workers. You, 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 you know, when you told me who, who you're defining as a frontline worker, you didn't say Instacart. You said it was the people who were parking your car and driving your, uh, uh, I don't know what they were driving, driving something. We have, uh, okay, I'm, I didn't bring you on the show to discuss this. I brought you on to get your take on, opinion of Lou Reed. on your opinion of Lou Reed. Let us go to Jody, who I believe is a Canadian living in Great Britain, who wants to ask you about Lou Reed. Hi, Jody. Jody? Hi, Jody. So, were you the person that I was communicating with online? Are you on a speakerphone, Jody? Your your signal's weak. Oh, that. Oh, I no, I'm not. Okay. Good. Okay, I can hear you now. Go ahead. Uh, I have uh, one question. When did you meet Lou Reed? And also, 
Have you ever uh, been in a recording studio with Lou? Yes, yes, I have. Uh, so uh, funny you should ask me when I met Lou Reed. I was just thinking about that today or, or last night because someone um, – so, so Lisa Brown was the formerly the head of the uh, um, the Democrats in the House of Representatives of the state of Washington. Lisa Brown, and she was she was great. She was the majority. I think she was the majority leader actually, and she ran for Congress from Spokane last time. She didn't win, but I got to know her well and really liked her a lot. So last night she sent me her son's song, and it was great. And I put it up on. Um, on Twitter, and instead of just, you know, putting this song up and saying, hey, this is really good, and maybe that would have been enough, but I also started, you know, going back into my head about what it reminded me of, and what it reminded me of was something very specific. So I, I would go to see the um, the Velvet Underground playing uh, at this thing, which was called the uh, Andy Warhol's Exploding Plastic Inevitable, and they they played a few times a week in New York for a few months. And I went; I never missed a show. I went all the time, even though it was uh, you know over an hour and a half for me to get there. I wasn't going to miss this. And this, you know, they weren't a famous band at the time, to put it mildly. No one knew who they were, but they were amazing. And uh, so anyway, so one night I was there, and, and and a lot of people went, and and you could meet you know all sorts of groups cool people and uh, having just come uh, I, I believe hitchhiking from California were Tim Buckley Jackson Brown and Steve Noonan and uh, so you know they, we were all around the same age late late teenagers and I met those guys and uh, and this song reminded me of that so that was also uh, around when I met Lou. I, I, I want to say it was 1966. If it wasn't 66, it was 67. But it was around that time. So Lou and I go way, way back. We, we didn't become friends at that time. And then when he recorded the New York album, and don't ask oh, Well, hang on. We're getting, uh, sorry. You just muted me. I, I apologize. Okay. So I don't know if what people heard or didn't. No, hear. It was briefly. It was brief. It was brief. In any case, uh, uh, when he, when Lou Reed recorded the New York album, I think it was maybe 1990 or something like that. Uh, I, I was, uh, the, um, uh, general manager of Sire Records, and that was the label that it was on. And and you know, I sort of became a champion of Lou at the time, and it it, it was a big hit, and we became uh, lifelong friends for the rest of his life. So I hope that answers your question, Jody. Did that answer your question? Lovely. Great. You want to ask him one more question, Jody? Uh, have you ever met Rabbit Bundrick? <laughs> Rabbit, is that? Uh, I, uh, I, don't, I don't. The last name doesn't ring a bell, but there was a guy named Rabbit who was involved with the Grateful Dead. Is, I don't know if that's what you mean or not. No, Rabbit Bundrick played keyboards for the Who for about thirty years. He's my husband. Wow. Ah, no, I didn't know him. Oh wow! Wow! Cool. Fantastic. Thank you. We'll have to introduce you to uh, Professor Hare. Rabbit can meet Professor Hare. Uh, <laughs> Let's go to JJ. Whoa, I'm so excited. Um, so, yeah, hi, Howie. Hi, David. Thanks for the awesome show and for letting me ask a question. I'm really interested in politics, but, like, Good. I love the Ramones so much. I love the Ramones. Um, we, and, yeah, I was wondering, 
you must have met them. Like, when did you meet them? And, and oh my God, I met them more than met them. I, uh, the Ramones were uh, like a key part of my life. They were changed my life. So now you're going to get a music story. I, I so much enjoy talking about music when I sit and write about uh, politics all day. But I don't want to discourage anybody from asking me about politics. That's my job. But uh, in terms of the, of the Ramones, so so here here I was at, at my college in uh, in the '60s, so pre, way pre Ramones, and the cutting edge music at the time was this hippie music. So the Who, for example, and Pink Floyd and the Grateful Dead and uh, the Jefferson Airplane, Moby Grape, all these bands uh, from San Francisco and London, basically, or England, uh, were the um, were the cutting edge of music. And it was really important and, and helped me with my development of, as a person. And I was a chairman of the student activities board. So I, I, I booked all those bands to come and play at my school. And then when I graduated from school in 1969, I went to live overseas for about six or seven years. And I stopped liking music because all this sort of corporate rock came up. And it was... Um, I hated it and had no interest in it and stopped listening to popular music entirely. And then... I, I was in, um, I was back in New York. Uh, I can't tell you exactly what year it was, but like maybe, I don't know, 75, maybe 76, something like that. And I ran into an old friend of mine. It's too long of a story to say, to tell you how we became friends, but he was working with the doors when I booked the doors to come and play at my school. And he, uh, he was influential in getting me involved with the music was wanting to be involved in the music business. His name is Danny Fields, and I just spoke to him a couple of days ago again, but we stay in touch. So Danny, I met him on the street, and he said, oh, you've got to come see this new band I'm working with. And I said, ah, oh, Danny, I'm not into bands anymore. No, 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 you've got to see this band. They're just amazing. You have to come. You have to come. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't take no for an answer, and I finally just surrendered. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm going. So it was, a play, it was at a place I didn't, had never heard of called CBGB's, and the band was called the Ramones. And not only did I meet the Ramones uh, that day and become friends with them, and I'll go into that in a minute if you want me to, but I also met Seymour Stein, who was signing them that day, uh, or was talking about signing them that day. And uh, and then later, um, based on that meeting at that moment, hired me to come and work for him at Sire. So the Ramones were a really, really important thing for me. They changed everything for me because I realized, oh, my God, it's not just all about corporate rock. Here are these guys who don't, you know, <laughs> don't know how to play all that. You know, they're not virtuosos. Uh, you know, it's not like Jeff Beck is up there who studied guitar for 20 years. They, you know, studied the guitar for 20 minutes. And uh, there they were. And uh, I just started loving music again. It became really important to me. Eventually, or, or soon after that, I moved uh, to San Francisco and um, started uh, a punk rock radio show, perhaps the, the first one in the country, although I argue with two guys about that who claim that their show was on before mine, although it wasn't true. And, uh, the and Ramon, the Ramones, let me ask you I, about the Ramones. You say they, that, you, you say the Ramones were not corporate rock. I think they're, yeah, they weren't. They were possibly the greatest rock band ever. But can you rise as far as they did without having some corporate savvy? They didn't. Uh, 
they didn't rise uh, very much, um, unfortunately. They never had a hit record while they were alive, in the U.S. anyway. And uh, Danny was their manager. Uh, he had he had some savvy. He had gone to Harvard and he knew something about it. And Seymour, of course, had a lot of savvy, and, and he was involved. Uh, so in terms of the the ability for the Ramones to have uh, gotten as, as far as they got, which which it wasn't that far, by the way. They used to cry to me constantly about why can't they get, a, why can't they have a gold record? Why can't they have a hit? Why don't I stop treating them like uh, like they were a French foreign film and treat them like they're rock stars? Uh, and they, you know, they, I mean, and, and the frustrating thing for me, who's a huge fan of all their music, and every record that they put out was that they became, they were becoming bigger everywhere but the U.S. I mean, all over Europe, all over Latin America, they would go to Latin America and play these stadiums with 30 or 40,000 people. Here they could never do that, and they never did that. I mean, you know, maybe if they opened a show or something like that for, for somebody. But that, you know, they just weren't that big in the U.S., which is a shame since they're such a great band and, and very, you know, very much on the cutting edge and, you know, whole generations of, of music after them acknowledge them as, you know, having been the seed that was planted. Uh, you know, certainly if you, if you ask, uh, someone like Billy Joe from Green Day, he, he won't hesitate for one second. He'll tell you immediately that it was, uh, it was all about the Ramones. But they wanted the success. They were looking at their sales. Yeah, they totally wanted the success. They, I mean, especially, I mean, yes, all of them wanted the success. So all four of them, absolutely, unquestionably. Were they but, willing to compromise to, to make that success? Uh, Johnny would have compromised in a, in a second. He re, he's the Republican in the band, and I don't mean that in any way except exactly what it sounded like. He was literally a Republican. And he, you know, he really, really, really wanted that success. Mm -hmm. uh, they all wanted success, but he would have, he would have done anything for it. Okay. Uh, Great. Let's go to... More than just me and you here, and there's an, also an audience, so I probably shouldn't speak ill of anyone who's dead, and it wasn't going to be Johnny, but one of them... I'll just sort of hint at this a little bit without telling the story. When you ask the question, are they willing to do anything? Uh, well, one of those guys literally was willing to do anything to get success. Okay. Anything. All right. Are you on a speakerphone, by the way? I'm just on the regular phone that I'm on all the time. Does okay. it sound weird to you? It's, I'm just being picky today. Is Connor, where are you Zooming? Hello, Connor. Where are you Zooming from today? Oh, this is uh, Master Connor from Maryland. Oh, you have a black belt. Uh, yes. <laughs> and and we saw you singing. You may not have known that, but at the Zoom party, we, we caught you doing karaoke. What is your question for Howie Klein? And don't ask for a record contract. We heard you sing, Connor. Well, I'm not yeah. a part of the anymore. <laughs> uh, it's just a recreational activity. But um, so my question like re regards uh, money and politics it's a big issue, but it's also a very confusing issue. Um, we heard Joe Biden talk about how uh, on the when there are one-on-one -on -one debate that how Bernie Sanders had nine super PACs. Um, Elizabeth Warren was catching a lot of black. Bernie Sanders has no super PACs. What, 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 I didn't hear Biden say that. During his one-on-one uh, -on -one debate, and then Bernie responded, and he was like, well, why don't you go ahead and name them? And then that was kind of like Biden had nothing after that. 
after Bernie no. uh, kind of the tall Bernie man. doesn't have a super PAC. I mean, Blue America has a super PAC, and if we wanted to spend money on, on Bernie independently, and that's the only way you're allowed to, we could do that. Even if Bernie said, stop doing that, we could do it anyway. Uh, Doesn't but, he uh, have, Bernie, didn't he have a super PAC that he was associated with? No, Bernie never had a super PAC. Never, ever, ever. Revolution? Ever, never. What was it? No, they're not a super PAC. Okay. My, my, my point wasn't to be um, any sort of accusatory at all. Um, I've just heard, you know, recently with um, Justice Democrats deciding that they were going to start a super PAC. Like, what, what can a super PAC be good? Should we trust anybody who has a super PAC? What's the difference between a PAC and a super PAC? Like, all this stuff is just very confusing. Right. So there's, there's a, okay, here's where the problem comes in. And that is when there is no, um, uh, uh, what is that called? When you can't, when you can't see who's donating to the super PAC. So in other words, if you have a, if you have a pack, like Blue America has a pack, a normal pack, and you know, the average donation is about $45. That's the average donation to our pack. Every person who donates, uh, their name, Every person who gives over fifty dollars, their name is is there to to any, for anyone to look at. So so there. So in other words, they're not buying anyone's votes. I mean, someone who gives twenty five dollars is not buying a vote. There should be no problem with that. However, if someone is giving ten thousand dollars or even even much more than that, uh, suddenly there is the question: Are they? Are they doing this to get favors? Are they doing this uh, as a quid pro quo, the way Biden does? So that is, uh, and Trump, needless to say. So so that's where the problem comes in, when you can hide the names of the donors, and and it's never disclosed. And that at one time, that was illegal, and uh, the Republicans and conservative Democrats uh, made sure it wouldn't be illegal, and they made sure there were ways to get around that. So I think I, I, I think that's really what you were asking about what the problem is with uh, with with a certain PACs, um, and and some super PACs also do uh, disclose their um, their donors. So it's not all super PACs um, that that do that. And and it, so there are different classes of, of different PACs that allow for um, various amounts of money, for example. Uh, but you know, the, the, if you just take the worst possible scenario, it, it's it's practically limitless amounts of money that can be donated from corporate entities and from uh, you know indiv- wealthy individuals who want to get money to a candidate. There are all sorts of ways to do it so that people can get, wind up giving million and do millions of dollars. Now, do you think that people are giving millions of dollars just because they like? Trump's hairdo? No, it's for sale. It has always been for sale, and that's what, really what people are looking at. Okay, so when they're uh, giving him, Connor, does, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, for the most part, but the, it's just because, like, recently, um, you know, we've been we've heard that, like, oh, super PACs are a bad thing, but then you hear about some PACs that, like, like Blue America or like Sunrise. That do or like nurses union and things like that. So it's just hard to flesh out like, oh, is this person trusted because they have a super PAC or what super PACs are good? But I guess you just got to really take it by a case by case basis. Are, are you going by um, that, that tweet that came out uh, f- uh, from what's his name? 
the guy who started um, who, who started Justice Democrats. He tweeted the other day that he's going to start a super PAC. Was that what you were looking Tom at? Kalinsky, you're talking about? No. No, the guy who started Justice Democrats, who, who uh, Cenk, I'm sorry, Cenk Ugar. Um, no, and, no, but I did see that they were starting one, and then this guy I know who's yeah, a big kind of that, that tweet of his. But I'm not. I, I I think he was maybe maybe being um, uh, uh, ironic. I don't know that it, they really were starting one. Maybe they were. I don't know. Okay. But you know, I I guarantee you, they're not. If they do or they don't, then what they're not going to do is is have a pack where they're hiding uh, who the donors are. That will never happen. Connor, how old are you? Twenty six. And and you're a black belt in what? Um, I'm a fourth degree black belt in Taekwondo. And you teach it, right? Yes. Okay. Thank you, Connor. Great question. Thank you very much. Uh, let us now go to Lynn, who is zooming from where? Where are you zooming, Lynn? From West Los Angeles. Can you hear me okay? You sound fantastic. Yes, I hear you great, and not far from where I am. No, not far, not far. I am uh, very interested in ridding the world of Mitch McConnell, but basically not having him so powerful in the Senate. And you've, I've read your, um, you know, the blog about the new name, Michael, I don't know how to pronounce it, Brohier or something, Brohier. Really tough name to pronounce. Yeah, Marianne Williamson seems to like him. You you endorse him. Before that, I read Charles. No, well, Mar- no, Marianne led him. We, Marianne led me to him. So Marianne is the one who endorsed him. We we had someone else that we endorsed. So there are two progressives in that in that primary in the Democratic primary in Kentucky. Uh, a guy named um, Charles Booker, who is a state legislator, and then this guy Mike, who I who I think is great as well. So they're two really really good progressives, and then there's uh, another person. And running the Chuck Schumer candidate named Amy Amy McGrath, who's yes. a conservative Democrat. Yes. Now I'm going to interrupt you a little, and then you're going to correct me. But I'm in all in like the House races. I have plenty of names. I'm volunteering now for Eva Putsava, and um, oh, I love her. Yeah. Who is she? Arizona one uh, running against um, Tom O'Halloran, a blue dog. Horrible. Yes, I, I think you've had her on your show, David. Who are you talking about? Eva, Eva Petrova. Eva Petrova. Is, is she's not the Secretary of State, is she? No. No. She was. She was on the uh, uh, Flagstaff City Council, and she's running for Congress now. And she's meant just incredible. Well, let's have her. I haven't had her on, so let's have her on. Yeah. Okay, we'll do it. We'll make sure we do. Yeah, so, and I have very good luck phone banking for her, too. The people were very receptive. Nobody knew her. Once I told them about her, I got, you know, maybe some votes for her. But going back to the Senate, I, okay, so my priority, I know it's a high priority to get some good progressives into office, Bernie allies into positions of power. I believe that strongly. I'm there, passionate about it. But, I don't believe they can take down Mitch. I honestly think Amy is the best bet just to get him out. And um, so what do you think about that? 
educate me on that. I, I don't like, you know, the conservative type Democrats, but I like Mitch McConnell less. And so who should I donate to and why? <laughs> Great question. Right. In, a pri- in a primary, I would say you should donate to the candidate who's, who believes what you believe. And if, if Amy wins, which, which is likely, then you might want to donate to her too. She doesn't need your small amount of money that you, I'm guessing that you would give a small amount of money. She doesn't need that. She's raised $30 million already. So whereas uh, both Charles and Mike, they can use uh, small donations. That's all. That's all they have. Uh, and you know, NPR in Kentucky just did a poll. Uh, it was based on the uh, the um, uh, the debate they had. So the three candidates got up and debated, and then NPR, who hosted the debate, did a poll. And Mike uh, had eighty something percent of the votes of people both in the room and on the phone who had been listening on the radio. And Amy had two percent. So, you know, Mike is a much better candidate. Mike is a farmer. He's a very progressive farmer, and he is not looking to do anything except uh, pass good policies and serve for six years and then go back to his farm. And Amy is a, is a failed careerist who isn't going to win anything. She's going to spend huge amounts of money and, and lose. And it's a shame because I've seen this every six years. This is what happens with Mitch McConnell. Uh, you know, the, the, an establishment character runs against him, and they never run a, a real populist, and then he always wins. Is, is um, Schumer going to go I, after? I would, I would, I would, sorry? Is Schumer going to go after McConnell? Because you've said that there's like an unstructured. Yeah, absolutely. Schumer is, Schumer is behind Amy McGrath. Schumer insists that she be the candidate. But will he go whole hog? Because you've suggested that sometimes there's a professional courtesy where they don't go after the the leader of the opposite uh, party. I, I, yeah, that that used to be more the case than it is now. I really think that uh, Schumer will, uh, if Amy's the candidate, that Schumer will, uh, you know, set the uh, the DSCC loose on McConnell. You know, we all hate McConnell. We'd all like to see him go, absolutely, without question. But there's another way to, to, to make him, you know, defang him, let's put it like that, and that would be to um, elect enough Democrats who are more vulnerable, and then he won't be the, the majority leader of the Senate anymore, and then Schumer will be. Not that that's going to be the greatest thing in the world, but much better than Mitch McConnell. Okay. Well, so, what you're asking is a, is a question, uh, is a philosophical question about lesser of two evils. It, it, is it worth vo- voting for someone who isn't any good to get rid of someone who's even worse? And that's something you're going to have to figure out on your own. I mean, everyone has a different opinion of it. And, you know, I know when I say something about that to someone who doesn't agree with me, they accuse me of being a Trump fan. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it, it's a tough one. And, and you, sh- you, it's worth thinking about. You know, you want to, uh, you want to get things done. Uh, aside from just getting rid of Mitch McConnell, you want to get something done? Well, you know, conservative Democrats aren't going to do it. We have Trump because of conservative Democrats. They did. They did nothing. Right. Watch what happens. Let me make a prediction. Right? Okay. I hope I'm wrong. The prediction is that Biden is the nominee. Yeah. That Biden wins, yeah. uh, and that in 2022, so two years after that, there is a cat- catastrophic midterm where the Democrats lose all the seats that they won in 2018 and 2020. 
just like what happened in 2012, uh, in 2010. Exact same, same thing that happened then. So Obama won. He was very disappointing to, to lots of independent voters and they turned away from him. They had voted for him in 2008. And in 2010, the Republicans won 64 Democratic seats. That's what's going to happen in 2022 if Biden uh, and a bunch of horrible conservative Democrats win and don't do anything. People, you know, yes, people very, very want, much want to check Oh, um, Mitch McConnell and even more so Trump. And that's really what they're thinking about now. Just check those guys. But they also would like to see some things happen for the country. And, you know, Bernie and, and as well as Elizabeth Warren were both putting out some very cohesive uh, plans. What's Biden's plan? Can anyone tell me why Biden is running aside from his, you know, wanting to die and be able to say he was president when he died? It's his turn. Yeah, his turn, right. Let's go to London. Thank you, Lynn. Let's go to London where Mr. Hutchison is standing by. Hello. Is it where Ricky? How do I pronounce your first name? Yeah, you get it, you get it pretty good, um, David. Thank you for, uh, uh, for tonight. Howie, um, good to, good to meet you, um, online too. Likewise. Hey, how, yeah, Howie, I've got, I've got two questions which run in very different, uh, parallels, but, um, you, you sort of started talking on uh, what happens in uh, 2022. In 2020, in the cycle for you guys in Congress uh, this year, how many progressive and socialist candidates will you need to make a sizable change to the way the Democrats act in the House? And um, secondly, from a musical perspective, rebel music and political music, how important is it culturally to you know sort of shift our society's consciousness and who are the who are the artists out there that are that are the current sort of bob dylans oh god what a question so two uh, unrelated questions um let's start with uh, um I, first of all i don't I, i'm not the person who's keeping up with the latest music so you know i i I don't. I, I retired from the music industry quite some time ago, so I, so I couldn't tell you. I could tell you, you know, about all, you know. When I think of like a hip, cool young band, I think of Green Day, but they're like in their forties now. This <laughs> Pete Seeger guy so, seems awfully fiery. Yeah, he, of course he is. I mean, yeah, and he will always be, just the way Bob Dylan will always be. Well, d- does so, anyway, uh, but let me get to your first question, and then we can circle back around to the uh, music since it's important to me too. And the, um, the, the Congressional Progressive Caucus is, uh, is the biggest single ideological caucus among Democrats. So they're, they're much bigger than the, than the Blue Dogs and they're much bigger than the, uh, the New Dems, which is like New Labor. So, uh, so the Progressive Caucus is bigger, but they're kind of weak. You know, this guy, Mark Pocan, is a co-chair, he's a putz, and is afraid of his own shadow, and doesn't step out. And, uh, you know, and Pramila is the, Pramila Jayapal is the other co-chair, and she's a little bit more willing to do that than he is, a lot more willing, but she can't do it on her own. The, the single, not single, the four members of Congress who are all freshmen who really shook the place up in a big way were AOC, uh, and uh, Rashida Tlaib, and Ilhan Omar, and Ayanna Presley. 
So these three women came in out of nowhere uh, with no support from the Democratic Party whatsoever, and they suddenly became major, major, major players on every level. So you don't need that many. You're not going to get that many. I wish we were, but there aren't that many running. So just just to just to elect another three, four, five, ten, twenty, anything like that is going to have a huge effect. Uh, and especially if they defeat incumbents, you know, like we just had a good example of that. Uh, um, a progressive woman named Marie Newman uh, took out just an awful uh, blue dog named Dan Lipinski. That it means so much. It means so much more than just, uh, you know, a, a single candidate thing. It's more than that. It, it is. It serves notice on these very conservative Democrats that they will not have an easy run all the time, that there will be times when they lose. Now, unfortunately, uh, the progressives like Marie Newman are not winning uh, the way we would have liked to have seen that, and there's a reason for that. It's very, very rare that anybody wins, especially a primary, the first time they run. It almost never happens. It happens occasionally, but almost never. And Marie Newman ran in 2018, and she came very close, but she didn't win. Now she ran again, and she won. So she's going to be in Congress. It's a big deal. Uh, you know, uh, Jessica Cisneros, who we had a lot of hopes that she would win as well. She had huge support from AOC and, and that crew, and from um, Justice Democrats and Blue America and uh, DFA, and all the progressives who were active in this way supported her. But it was the first time she was running. And, and you know, I didn't think she had a chance, but next time... She'll win. Okay, if let me she runs and she has said that she would. If she runs in 2022, uh, she will win. Okay, we have a packed room, Howie, and a lot of questions, oh, and we have limited so time. What are you telling me not to answer? I'm sorry? You're telling me not to answer? Uh, no, no, no. I just I want to interrupt you because I want to follow up on a question where Ricky asked you. Does somebody like Bob Dylan, Green Day, do they move the needle politically? How important are they when it comes to... It's very important when you... When you first, I mean, this is how it was for me. I'm growing up. I'm a kid. I don't know what's, uh, you know, what's going on. And someone turns me on to this music, and it, it can change my life. And if, if you get turned on to, you know, something like, you know, Bad Company, it ain't going to do much for your life. Uh, but if you get turned on to someone like uh, Green Day and you start paying attention to what they're saying and what they're all about, and you start reading their interviews, and you see you know, where Billy Joe is coming from, suddenly you realize, wow, that's worthwhile, that's important, and, you, and, and then that will influence your life. I'm talking about very, very young people. I'm not talking about people our age listening to some cool lyrics and thinking that, you know, that's, that's you know, going to change the way you operate because it, it, it's too late for people already. If they don't have it, they, they're not going to get it. We're talking, we're talking with Howie Klein. He's the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive, some socialist candidates around America. Read him at Down With Tyranny. And we have a packed room, and there are lots of questions. We're going to have to do a speed round in a couple of minutes. If you have any questions for Howie, I will get to them. I will get to them. But let me tell you that Plato did not like poetry. He thought poetry was bad for the, the, the government because it's cryptic. 
Isn't it true that you could read into the Beatles, into John Lennon, what you want? You can read into Bruce Springsteen what you want. Chris Christie went to 100 Bruce Springsteen concerts. So does does music really change people's? If you dig in and read the poetry... You can and that's and that's why I, I added to that. If you also talk, if you also read the interviews that these artists do. So I right. was talking about Billy Joe, and if you become a fan of his music, no matter what you're reading into it, you uh, will soon find if if you care enough to find out who he is and what he's all about that he came from a um you know a single mother and they lived in the trailer and he he learned what socialism was early on in his life and it became a really important thing for him and he speaks very eloquently about what it meant to him and what it still means to him and uh, and his fans who who are attracted to his music can't interpret it as being fascist music right. and it was the same i remember with uh the Dead Kennedys, uh, a punk band in San Francisco who were influential uh, to Green Day when they were little kids growing up. And uh, Biafra, Joe Biafra was the lead singer. He would get insane because he, here he was, you know, very, very far to the left. And we would all of a sudden get these, like, you know, neo-Nazi kids who liked his music coming because they didn't understand his music. And they would come to the shows and, you know, do Sig Heil salutes, right. which made him write a song called Fuck Off Nazi Punks or something like that. Right. Uh, Your so, friend you know, Joe Strummer, you hung out with The Clash. They were very on point. You knew exactly what they were saying. Right. Joe, they all were. But Joe, but Joe more importantly than than anyone else in the band, and you know I don't I don't mean to diss the other guys. They they were there as well. Although you know a guy like uh, what was his name, the bass player um, Paul Simonon, you know he was he was a very cutting edge guy also, but he hadn't studied Marx the way Joe had. He and he expressed his cutting edgeness uh, in fashion, for example. Right. Uh, he was the guy who, who had them dress the way they dressed. Was that a very important part of the Clash? You damn straight it was. It was really, really, really important when the Clash were getting started that they looked the way they did. And it was Paul who made that, made it happen like that. They, right. they might have just been a bunch of schlumps in, in, uh, jeans, if not for him. Right. We're going to go to Big Hookie in a second. I remember Elvis Costello, who I worship. I think he's fantastic. Uh, the song Shipbuilding was about uh, the Falkland Wars. It was his protest anthem against the Falkland Wars. I thought it was about shipbuilding. I mean, so I agree with Plato to some degree. Just say what you mean and don't obfuscate. F poetry. I'm a moron. Let's go to Big Hooky. Where, where are you zooming from today? I'm zooming from Dallas. It's a Big Hooky. That's my Twitter handle. Ah, okay. So here's my question. for uh, how I'm just thinking of ways to accelerate the left movement. I'm wondering, does Bernie have more influence outside the Senate as a community organizer without the concerns of the D.C. establishment? Does Bernie, um, did you say, does Bernie have? Does he have more uh, influence as a community organizer outside the confines of the D.C. establishment? I'm wondering if he vacates his seat and gets behind a member of the Vermont Progressive Party to overtake it, could that kind of um, be a new kind of coming for the, a younger generation? I'm also wondering, um, could he work? Uh, to give legitimacy to insurgent candidates and worker strikes across the country. Also, um, what are the best ways to utilize his mailing list and the cash he has on hand for the Sanders campaign? 
Lastly, um, I've been listening to this guy called Eve Tumor. He's a new school rock kind of guy who's been kind of keeping my spirits up in all this. If you feel so inclined, I hope you guys can check him out. Thank you. Thank you. And okay, so I, I couldn't understand much of uh, what our friend was saying, David, so I'm going to count on you to uh, tell me. He's asking, and I'm going to, we're running out of time. He's saying. So I want to write the name of that band he just uh, suggested. Can okay. you tell me what that is? Yeah, in a second. He's asking whether or not Bernie should step aside and make way for a younger generation of progressives and become more of a community organized or in his later years. No, Bernie is probably on his last in his last term. There's a lot he can accomplish. Uh, he's very respected and admired, especially, you know, there are a lot of young members of Congress and new members of Congress who look up to him in a big way. He's very, very impactful on them. And if he were to step aside right now uh, in, in uh, Vermont, the guy who would take his seat is the is the um, congressman. Who's okay, but he's not nearly as good as Bernie. He's, he's okay. I mean, in fact, yesterday Bernie asked that people contribute to him. He's a good guy, well show, you know. Uh, but, you know, not, he'll never be Bernie, I'll tell you that. Okay. And, you know, it, it's not like Bernie can say, okay, I'm stepping aside. Here's a nice 22 year old, uh, or here's a nice 30 year old, or whatever it is, that elect him. It doesn't, it won't work that way. It's Welsh's turn next. Okay, we have two more questions. You no, know, I don't. Episode. Okay, and but I, but I really am interested in the name yeah, of that band. Big, big Hooky. What what is the band? Tumor. I'm sorry. Uh, you're, you're what? I wrote it in the chat. Um, y V E S Tumor. Y V S Tumor. Thank you, Big. Y V E S Tumor. Got it. Okay, let's go. I believe to Mexico City, where Alicia is standing by. Alicia. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Good afternoon. Hi, Alicia. I will tell you after you ask your question a great Lou Reed story about Mexico City. But go ahead. Fantastic. I I just wanted to to talk. I mean, you seems to me you've lived a very eclectic life, and I wanted to talk about how particular city centers over history become these places of of great political thought and great artistic uh, endeavor, you know, whether they be Alexandria or Athens or whatever. And you're now living in Los Angeles, I understand. And I just wanted to talk about what happens to an artist when they, they leave their hometown, you know, many artists, you know, like the Beatles were in Liverpool, or you think about the artists that, you know, came from Manchester, they leave that kind of parochial background. And for better or for worse, they get on the world stage and how that changes their view. And I was, you know, Strummer himself has quite an eclectic um, background. And I, I just wonder where you see this, if at all, see this kind of nexus where there's an incubation of great political thought as well as great, um, artistic experiment. I mean, I would think in many ways Los Angeles has been. I hope it continues to be, although the price, the cost of living, I think, really interferes. Well, that um, happens everywhere. Yeah, it happens everywhere. But, I mean, do you see particular places? I mean, I look at Mexico City, which is quite uh, an incubator of lots of really interesting things happening here. So I, I kind of... Do you see a change when an artist leaves where they are originally from? And I mean, I, I, I'm kind of like a Californian in exile, I feel in many ways. So I'm kind of interested in what happens when you leave your hometown, you, you go somewhere else and how that influences you and how you've seen that influence uh, the artists and politicians that you've dealt with. 
Thanks. Thank you. Uh, a good question. So um, a lot of times you threw the, the uh, you threw the politicians in there at the last second, uh, and I was getting ready to answer you about artists, but but in some ways it's similar. When when you go outside of your um, I think you use the word parochial uh, background and you, you, you know, whether you, you go to a a college that's away from home or you go to uh, live in another country or even just travel widely, you, you, your horizons broaden tremendously. You mentioned Joe's drummer, you know, Joe's father, I don't think he was an ambassador, but he was in the, um, he was in the foreign service and Joe lived in various places around the world and you can't, not pick up that everything is is not the same as it is and people are different and you you really start to learn about that i know it had a huge impact on me i traveled uh um you know in fact when i was 16 i i hitchhiked uh from new york to california uh with the intention of of stowing away on a ship although i got caught and that was un unfortunate but I, but you know I, I i i got the travel bug and it's always been really important to me and i've always tried when i worked at um sire and then reprise i always told our artists you know travel it's really important it it's it'll open you up it'll uh, expand your horizon so that you can write better songs and play better music i mean i i, I remember one time uh, there was this band that uh, uh, called the uh, Ali Brothers. They're, they're not a band. It was two brothers, uh, Salamat and Nazakat Ali Khan from Pakistan. And their music was just, you know, unbelievable. I mean, it was like listening to that music was as good as taking an, an LSD trip for me. And uh, one, I had hired the Jefferson Airplane to come and play at my school. And they, they came to my house, uh, which was, you know, I lived in a suburban house off the campus and they came and they, and they hung out there and I played it for them. And then they, you know, wrote a song, uh, based, uh, in part on that music that they heard that day when they were on acid, as a matter of fact, some of them, uh, but, but yes, going to other places is the greatest thing. Uh, Mexico city, you know, has, you know, people don't realize this, that one of the great, um, culinary, the centers of the whole world is Mexico City. And those, those are artists too. Those, those chefs in Mexico City, I'm not talking about street food right now, although it might be the case there too, but I'm talking about real cuisine and great artists, uh, you know, doing something that is, is like, you know, doing a painting for them where it really means so much to them. And, and you find that in Mexico City. And, you know, I don't know the musical scene there. So I can't really talk about it. I'm gonna. I'm, I'm gonna, gonna be rude. I ha- I'm gonna. We have one more question, and I want right, to right. follow up. Uh, JJ wanted to know very quickly the role that psychedelics played. You mentioned LSD. What kind of role did psychedelics have on the Ramones? What influence did psychedelics have on the Ramones? I don't know. I don't, I don't know the answer. Okay, thank they, you. The Ramones never seemed like big druggies to me. Uh, and by the time I, I got to know them, I had stopped using drugs entirely. So I, I, I just don't know. I just don't know the answer. I, my guess is that it, 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 that I'm almost certain that they weren't into it. Almost okay. certain. Uh, I'm trying to uh, get to John Hayes, but I'm having trouble. John Hayes in Los Angeles. John Hayes from Pearl Harbor and the Explosions? Uh, uh, John, if you could not touch the button, did we lose him? Right there, we're having technical difficulties with John Hayes. 
Uh, no, John Hayes. I wonder if it's John Hayes. Bonnie Hayes' brother. It wasn't Pearl Harbor. Anyway. I don't, I don't know why. Let's see. Uh, for some reason, I cannot get him to talk. So we'll have to do to next- Well, we have to wrap it up. We have to wrap it oh, up. Oh, okay. But I want to thank all, all right. the attendees. This was a packed room for Howie Klein. We only scratched. We should start earlier so we could talk longer. Well, we'll do this next week. I think there there are a lot of people who have a lot of questions to ask the great Howie Klein. Very it's quickly. That be great, but let's do it. Uh, it's fun for me too. Okay. And uh, let's. And don't aren't we going to be on with some candidate or candidate on when Friday? Uh, we could do Wednesday. Well, let's do this Wednesday tomorrow. We'll talk. Let's um, talk. I'm, I'm actually on. I'm being interviewed uh, by a candidate tomorrow. <laughs> so I can't do it tomorrow. Okay. We'll talk. Let's talk uh, later in the day. Call me. Thank you. Howie Cl- thank you. Howie Klein. Thank you so much. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC. They raise money for progressive and socialist candidates around America. Read him over at Down With Tyranny. And if you would like an invitation to sit in on Howie's segment, go to DavidFeldmanShow.com, hit the office hours button, and we'll send you the link. Thank you so much to everybody who attended. Stay on the line. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. And now, if you like, I will show you my teats. No? Well, uh, no, that's not... You, no, thank you, though. Then I continue. Okay. To all of the medical personals and all the frontline disponders, on behalf of a great nation in the most difficult of times, thank you. As Donald and I get ready for his great recampaign, we wish to appreciate all of your efforts to keep the infectious zombie dead away from our big white house where all the gold and liquor is kept. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Joining us in New York City is Helene Olin. She is a columnist for The Washington Post, and she is the editor of the New School's Public Seminar. We're going to talk about public seminar. And she also sits on the board of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Thank you, Helene Olin. I should mention your books, The Index Card and... Pound Foolish, two monumental works that are supreme takedowns of Wall Street and the financial self-help gurus who are all, all charlatans, every single one of them. Is that is that fair to say? Unless you're John Bogle, unless you're from Vanguard. The- we, we have a long talk about this. I wouldn't say charlatans. What happens is, is when you have to make a living at it, by definition, you eventually start saying stuff that isn't, isn't fully true, and you make the advice sound like it can be applied to everybody 
and that it will work all the time. Because otherwise, what sort of guru are you? I mean, who's going to pay you for advice? Mm-hmm. I mean, nobody's going to pay me for advice because I say things like, well, there are really no definitive answers in personal finance, or a lot of personal finance is really geared at upper middle class people. So by definition, why would you, you know, why would you buy a book by Helene Olin, right? That says, you know, this is all for personal, for that. Well, so, you buy, let me just, you mm-hmm. buy the index card and you buy Pound Foolish because it tells you that you you cannot go to a financial guru who will get you rich. That, that right. I mean, the thing about the index card is the last chapter is, you know, support the social safety net. And what it, what it basically comes down to is the preceding nine chapters, they don't, um, they're not going to work without this chapter. Right. Mm-hmm. This is your backstop. Your savings are not your backstop. I mean, we think your savings are your backstop, but what's really the back, the ultimate backstop is the government. The government is the ultimate backstop because the vast majority of us who are middle class or upper middle class in this country probably wouldn't be in that position without the, the, the efforts of the New Deal and the great expansion after World War II. Right. The Economic Hardship Reporting Project, I think, is doing some of the most important work. It was set up by Barbara Ehrenreich. You sit on the board. History has to be written from the bottom up. That's what Barbara Ehrenreich says. And Ray Suarez recently joined the board, and he's on today's show. It's truly incredible what was happening before the pandemic, before they turned the economy off. What, what, what do you think about the the future of journalism in this country in thirty seconds or less? No. What future? Uh, <laughs> what future? Are those easy? See. <laughs> you did very good. Very good. Well, I think the future of local journalism is ghastly, and I think that's that's the the huge issue. Most journalism is local. Most journalism is your local is your local city council. Most journalism is covering the local little league game. Most journalism is making sure your government and local businesses are on, are honest and on the up and up. And that's that business model is basically defunct at this point. I mean, it's almost impossible. I mean, this crisis seems to have put the final nail in it. It wasn't the first nail. It was the final nail. Right. Um, this has been a slow motion train wreck now for more than a decade. And essentially since Facebook and Facebook's and Google started taking all the advertising profits of the vast majority of them. At the same time, of course, nobody wants to pay, you know, so you cut they, they the the papers cut back. Then of course there's less reason to subscribe to them because you're getting less local news and less people subscribe to them. And this just becomes an awful, you know, cycle. Um, at which point many of them got bought by private equity interests who in many cases were more interested in the real estate property, the buildings themselves that the, they were, that the, the journalists were working out of or where the printing presses were or the old printing presses were. And, you know, and this just becomes this vicious, vicious, vicious cycle. And uh, we seem to be in the final end game of that. Um, at the same time, this is more than 30 seconds. You know, you do have a number of national newspapers that seem to be, if not, you know, thriving, perhaps, you know, the way that you would think thriving in the 90s when there were profits of over 20 20 to 30 percent. Are like you know are still doing pretty okay, and I would include the New York Times in that group. I would include the Washington Post, where I contributed that group. I would put the Wall Street Journal in that group. What they've got is a subscriber, a mob 
happen to attract subscribers. Uh, and it's not clear how many others can really achieve that. Right. Um, and then finally, of course, you have the, non- the full-on nonprofits like ProPublica. But that still leaves a much smaller industry right. than prior. And the thing that has always frustrated me is when people, for the longest time, people would say, oh, well, nonprofits will save journalism, and I'd be sort of rolling my eyes, because it would be kind of obvious that the number of billionaires willing to bail out journalism could no way equal the number of local newspapers out there. Mm -hmm. Had Bernie won, they always say... Always bring it back to Bernie. Yeah, well, yes. Uh, (laughs) You know, they always say the government shouldn't be picking winners and losers in the economy. Well, we've seen that they do. I mean, we've seen this bailout. They're picking the winners and losers. There would be a way for somebody like Elizabeth Warren as president or Bernie to pass certain types of laws that are constitutional that would be advantageous to local journalism and magazines, right? There are things that could be done by the federal government. Yeah, I mean, well, for starters, you could stop Facebook and Google from taking so much of the ad revenue. I mean, that that's a huge issue. I mean, that should have been done a decade ago. Uh, that That's probably the major issue here. Um, but I, I think we talk about these things, but I, I tend to always remember we live in the United States, and I tend to suspect that at the end of the day, giving money to the newspapers, and I mean outside of PPP loans, um, you know, it's just going to be very far down the list for most governments and people. Right, and, but had there been, had you had a more progressive candidate in the Oval Office, there's certain tax code that can be rewritten, there's mm-hmm. antitrust enforcement that can be done. There's the FCC, which could protect and mandate. Right. I mean, mean, these are all things that go back 30 years. But yes, of course. I mean, obviously, the the antitrust issue is huge. The private equity issue that Elizabeth Warren harps on is tremendous, especially now. I mean, we're seeing the end game in places like Cleveland, where you know they've pretty much let go of whoever owns the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I forget who they, which private equity group it is. You know, has pretty much really like moved it down to like four journalists that they sent out to the bureaus, and they now have this thing called Cleveland.com that covers the city, which with non-unionized employees. While they let the experts, you know, who had 20, 30 years of investigative Cleveland experience experience all go. So, you know, these things have been playing out for decades, though. It's very hard to just simply reverse with a few laws at this point. Um, Steve Mnuchin, is there any redemption there when you look at the Small Business Administration asking the banks to give out these forgivable loans and we discover that the Lakers are getting it and we're discovering that Ruth Chris's Steakhouse is getting it? Mnuchin did... I mean, he has kind of insisted that they returned the money. Did he do anything right, Steve Mnuchin? Uh, That's a good question. I mean, this is, you know, I think, I forget the last time we talked. I mean, I I think this is a massive power play. I mean, the vast majority of this money is going to corporate interests. It's going to be a... Steve Mnuchin, who can, you know, waive conditions at will. Um, So far, the congressional 
panels that are supposed to be monitoring this, shall we say, are not exactly in great shape, to put it kindly. Um, you know, it's... You know, it, it seems to be a situation rife with conflict of interest. Um, the person who was raising money for Donald Trump's campaign in 2016 is now in charge of dispersing huge amounts of corporate aid and keeping a watch over it. And, you know, can sort of just say on any conditions, oh, never mind, you don't need to make, meet that one. Um, but this seems to be a rather horrible situation that's developing. So, on the other hand, though, the Democrats voted for it. And Donna Shalala is also uh, on the Oversight Committee. Right. And, and nobody's asked her to, to, to get off, even though her stock sales sure seem questionable at best. And, you know, certainly sloppy at best is how right. I would put it. And there's also questions of why on earth she owns so many of these stocks at this point. Um, If you read the index card, you know that you shouldn't be invested in individual stocks. So it it seems, you know, there seems to be all sorts of questions there that nobody is really asking, in part because we're all so overwhelmed by the general, you know, crap storm of news that we've been dealing with for three years. It's now even worse. And partly because the House of, you know, the House... And it's not in session. So nobody's even asking these questions. I hold a press conference, really? Like- right. Well, we have some questions for Helene Olin. I'm going to ask you a question that I've asked you, I think, three times before. But I have a neighbor who's a psychiatrist, and he's absolutely brilliant. He's one of those people who he's just very wise, younger than I am, which is disconcerting. And he says to me, you can pick winners in the stock market. This is a hyper-educated psychiatrist. And he says, you know, passive investing, that's a fool's game. If you, There are people who know, and you need to pour over the balance sheets, and you need to look at satellite imagery of... Uh, manufacturing plants and parking lots. And these people can tell you where this economy is going. And I say to the psychiatrist, you're out of your effing mind. This bears repeating, Helene Olin. Please, I'm begging you. I've asked you this. This is now the fourth time. Did he predict coronavirus? And if he did, (laughs) could I be a patient? Like, I mean... Did he know this was going to happen? Like, he must have, right? He just told you that this is all doable. He knows people. And so then he predicted it. There is this need to feel smarter than the next guy. There's this need to think that you have the inside track because you went to a school and you met the right people and you surrounded, that you can beat the market. Is the, the smarter, the, the smarter the person, the easier the sap, right, when it comes to the stock market. I, I, think, I, I think it's also this just sort of idea that we all want to control things. Nobody wants to admit that a lot of life is not really that controllable. I think that's part of the whole personal finance lore thing. And obviously, unless you're literally willing to devote your life to this, and even then you better have a real talent for it, because we even know if the professionals who do this for a living, less than 1%, can get outguess the market year in and year out, um, especially when trading costs are factored in, right? If you mm-hmm. don't factor in trading costs, 
a little bit more. I forget if it's 2 or 3%, but it's something like pretty still infinitesimal. But once you actually have to factor in trading costs, because you better run doing this a lot, and by then you're just going to lose money, I mean, relative to what you would have made otherwise. Right. And what's what I find fascinating is people are convinced they're making more than when they're not, or that they've got this figured out when they don't. And, um, you know, if they've got some special insight that chances are they don't really possess. And um, it's, you know, you know, if it was so easy, you know, all the hedge funds would be making a mint instead of, you know, going belly up or, you know, taking out shorts that just don't pay off or going long on things that don't pay off. I, I'm telling you the God's thing. honest truth, Elaine. This is I'm not doing this to be cute. In February, I was looking at the economy and I was I'm aware of how horrible it is. But at the same time, I'm thinking this time it's different. This time it's different. This economy is just going to keep going up and up and up because they rejigger the numbers and they lie to us. And the stock market is just going to keep going up and up and up. This time it's different. And whenever you hear somebody say this time it's different, it immediately pl- like by like clockwork. The- it's recency bias. We all fall for the most recent, right? Right. So you know the stock market's going to go up because it's been going up. The stock market's going to go down because it's been going down. Is it conceivable that the entire country can be out of work, living on the streets? And the stock market's going to keep going up? It seems to be kind of far-fetched, but right now it totally makes sense because the stock market is doing well off of all that Federal Reserve money and CARES Act money that's coming through, which is, again, going to the big corporate interests, which is in turn allowing them or will allow them to, you know, knock out weaker competitors, do buy-ups at, you know, rather low rates, uh, compared to where they would have had to buy competitors, say, you know, right. which not, you know, uh, even six months ago. Um, so, you know, from the stock market's point of view, this is all, this is workable. And I mean, will it last? I don't know. I'm, I'm not a big fan of this stuff. Yeah. We're going to take some questions, and Joseph, I'll get to you in a second. seems to me there's income inequality in the stock market, if you look at the Fortune 500 or the S&P 500, the way they weight it, you can have Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, uh, Apple. They, they can move the entire market up, and then maybe 480 other stocks can go down. But it doesn't matter as long as the, the, the top 10 or 20 keep going up. So it's kind of a metaphor for this country, the the S&P 500. It is conceivable that the stock market could reach new heights while the rest of us reach new lows. Let's go to Anthony. Hello, Anthony. Uh, hang on. I have to do this properly. Uh, allow to talk. I'm going to have to promote you to a panelist. Hello, Anthony. Where are you uh, zooming? At? Where are you zooming from? Hey, hello. I'm in San Diego, and okay. my question is: uh, I'm going to be moving soon to Portland, Oregon, and uh, that's going to happen. Thank you. Uh, that's going to happen over the summer. I think she asked and why. 
Oh, why? Uh, sorry, I thought you said nice. Yeah. Um, it's nice, too. But San Diego's nice, too. Well, I'm not running away from it. But, uh, um, so, uh, work-related, work-related. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, my question is, um, should I... So, I've been renting for a really long time here in San Diego, and I'm ready to to buy uh, a property when I moved to Portland, but I'm not sure if this is the right time. So maybe waiting six to nine months would be better than uh, trying to jump in the market uh, this summer. And I guess I'm just looking for your, your input there. I don't have a huge opinion about that because I think this is such a shaky situation right now. I can't tell you how that's going to work out. Well, obviously, what I can say is that if you're not, I don't know if you have kids or putting them in school or anything like that. Uh, I have uh, one son going off to college uh, in the fall. Okay. Um, so you're not worried about schools. I mean, I would say to rent for a year and make sure you like it and you're staying. Okay. You, know, you might, I mean, I've been there before. I mean, if you've lived there before, I'm going to scrap that advice, right? You probably go to the place pretty well. But if you haven't lived there, general rule of thumb is to try to like hang around for a while and see what you think of it. Make sure the job lasts, make sure San Diego, make sure you, you know, buy, you might discover you like another neighborhood better. Like, you know, so okay. I would say to rent for a year just based on, if you can, I mean, if you can afford to move twice. I mean, I realize that there are sometimes reasons not to do that. But my inclination is always to say, you know, if you can put up with that degree of instability, it's better to wait it out for a while and what the place is like. All right. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks. All right. Thank let's, you. Good luck. Let us now go to Randall. Hello, Hello Randall. Where are you Zooming from? Hello there, David. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Where are you uh, Zooming from? Super, thanks. I'm in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Capital city. Where was Three Mile Island? That was just down the road, about 20 minutes away in a uh, another city called Middletown. Oh, okay. What is your question for Helene Olin? Well, I've got two questions, if you don't mind, and I'll read them off. Uh, hi, well, read, uh, start with your first question. Sure. Thank you. Uh, thanks again for making yourself available, Helene and no, David. Okay. I read Pound Foolish, and I enjoyed it. However, I find that it didn't really apply to me. I'm 34 years old. I work as a waiter and have about $3,000 in my checking and savings account. Life is good, and I'm comfortable, but things like starting a family or buying a house or a car aren't even on my radar. What financial advice do you have for someone like me and many others who are getting by but have little in the way of resources? Well, first of all, are you working right now? Uh, no, you know, right now I just went back this weekend to help with takeout. So I had one day of work last week, but, um, no, I've been, uh, laid off for the last six weeks. Okay. And how is that affecting your unemployment? Well, uh, truth be told, I've, uh, really increased my income because of the, uh, $600 bonus and, um, I'm very comfortable right now. Okay. And it's, if you go back on an occasional basis, they don't take away your unemployment, right? That's... That's right. I can make a fair amount of money and still collect. That's what I thought. So, I mean, you know, the advice is sort of, this is a two-pronged thing, because obviously it's extremely hard to save any position. And, 
you know, cost of living is high. Wages for waiters are generally not as high as should they should be. So, but, you know, the general advice is to try to set aside, you know, between 10 and 15%. Now, I say that knowing that the chances are you probably can't do it. Um, I don't think you're think, walking around like this is some new great idea that I just told you. Um, what I do say is if you're trying to cut back on spending, and this is like a hard bit of advice to give right now because nobody in their right mind is just seeing people in person and handing over cash, but the general rule is to try to spend as much in the via cash and not virtual, not credit cards, not you know not debit cards, and so on, because the idea is is that we experience hurting with actual cash is physical pain, which is not true of any other kind of spending if it's done virtually in some fashion or another. And they literally, they put people in MRIs to see this in the part of your brain that, um, that you know, lights up when you're in physical pain, also apparently lights up when you hand over cash to somebody, which is kind of really a fascinating little insight. So you're, so, saying, you're saying that the brain is predisposed to debt as opposed to cash. Well, it's pleasure, right? Spending money is pleasure. So we're predisposed as a species to pleasure. Um, and which and is, credit which is, is the illusion of what? It's the illusion that it's cost-free, which is obvious, right? Uh-huh. Because it's, you know, you're not paying it on the spot. Um, what's always interesting to me, I mean, to me that's obvious, but it was fascinating to me is to discover that we kind of process you know, Venmoing and, you know, and debit cards kind of the same way. Now, it's obviously harder to spend yourself into debt that way because you're not, you know, it's not a credit card. But you will still spend more money because you're not parting with it. And so when this, you know, catastrophe is over and we return to something resembling normal, I would try to use cash as much as possible. We'll get to Um, Randall's second question in a second. I was told that during an economic downturn, if you're in debt, you're in trouble, that the secret to maintaining whatever you have is not to be in debt, that debt is the killer. Well, there's debt and there's debt, right? Your home mortgage is debt, too. But general rule of thumb is that that's an investment, not, you know, not debt, bad debt. Mm -hmm. Um, So now, obviously, if you've got 18 percent mortgage on your house, it's not a good thing. But at the moment, mortgage rates are so low, very few people are paying anything near that. So, you know, it's good debt, and that's a fine thing to do, have. Um, so, but bad debt is credit card debt. Credit card PB debt. loan debt. Um, right. You know, student loans are kind of mixed, you know, sort of depends. Um right. You know, but by definition, no, not all debt is bad. Randall, can I ask you a question before you ask Helena a question? You're okay. getting you're getting an additional twenty four hundred dollars a month because of the CARES Act. Is that correct? That's correct. Because I'm on unemployment. Right, and and, and I see that you're wearing a Veterans for Peace shirt, so I would assume you're a lefty like me. Are you less angry at Donald Trump? Because, I mean, I do think that that is a relatively, would you agree that's a relatively generous, I mean, an, an extra $2,400 a month is somewhat generous. Is that a fair statement? 
Yeah, it's fair, especially for somebody uh, like me who has a very low cost of living and, you know, my neighborhood. It's a low cost of living. It's not the same, you know, in a, a major city. Does, does that make you less hostile towards the Republicans? Uh, no, it really doesn't. You know, I uh, just had this real association with Bernie for the 600 bucks. Um, but, you know, it does make me wonder sometimes how did he, how did he get that? How did he pull that off? You know, how did the Republicans agree to that? Uh, I am thankful, but I don't associate it with any Republican gratitude. Okay, uh, but I would assume some people will. What is your second question, please? Number two, I have about $45,000 in student loans from the state and the federal government. Because I have low income, the payments are very manageable, under $100 a month. What is the harm in just making the minimum monthly payments for the rest of my life? So what if the interest builds and builds? Don't I get to offload them after 20 years or so? Well, hopefully your income goes up at some point, and then you have to pay a lot more money. Um, you know, that that's part of the harm. I mean, in theory, there's not a lot of harm. I mean, you know, at some point the debt will be forgiven, um, depending on the type of loan, 20, 25 years, but you'll have to pay taxes on the unforgiven part. The other part of the issue is, is that, you know, interest is building up. So at some point you're going to owe and pay out a lot more than you ever borrowed. So in theory, you should try to pay it off. On the other hand, again, if you're not earning that much, you might be better off just putting it on income-based and not thinking about it again. Any help there, Randall? Yeah, for sure. Um, I appreciate the advice. I'm sorry I can't give a firmer answer than that. You know, it's really interesting. Helene Olin is one of the smartest. Oh, somebody asked me, what do you mean by offload them after 20, 25 years on the side? Um, There's... um, if you're on income-based repayment, the federal government will forgive the debt after a number of years. That's in the law right now. But the issue is you have to still pay taxes on that amount that's forgiven. So, Helene, the the Trump administration, we're, we're told there's no way he can get reelected. He has just dropped the ball completely. Is that true? I mean, when you hear that some, I mean, the $1,200 stimulus is not going to do anything, but working people were helped. At the moment, it seems unfathomable that he could get reelected in this, and I wouldn't have said that even eight weeks ago, but I mean, it really seems unfathomable, but on the other hand, it would probably be a bit reassuring if if Joe Biden would get out of, you know, his, we're at the basement in Delaware, he's hiding it. I mean, I understand why he, you know, doesn't want to come out. If I were in my late 70s, I'd probably be barricaded in my apartment, too, at the moment. But I'm not running for president, either. So I I think there's some real issues going on here, and that's kind of concerning that there seems to be this void right now at the center of the Democratic Party, because this should be a gimme. I mean, you know. He's in charge. Yeah, he can say I'm not responsible all he wants, and I mean Donald Trump. He, um, but at the same time, you know, he's the guy in charge, and the buck stops here, and we barely have a functioning economy at this point. Right. So, and his great idea is that we're going to cut the payroll taxes. He keeps he talks about this and like. Like somebody told him this was a good idea like 20 years ago, and it's like one thing he remembered, you know, cut payroll taxes, cut payroll taxes. 
And, of course, cutting payroll taxes is not going to help that much in this problem right now because, of course, you kind of have to have income to pay payroll taxes. Mm-hmm. And if we're looking at what's 30 million plus unemployed, that's, you know, that's not going to be helped by cutting payroll taxes, leaving aside the other issues of the Social Security Trust Fund and the like, right? right. It's a whole separate issue. I want to get to okay. Justin Hibbert, and then I want to ask you about Georgia. Okay. Uh, let us go to San Francisco, where Justin is standing by. Hello, Justin. Oh, by the way, I just want to say one thing. I just saw somebody on the side say uh, about New York canceling the presidential primary so dangerous. I completely agree. Just want you to know that. So shout out to Tony Vale there. I, I think it's a disaster that we did this here. Anti-democratic. It's anti-democratic, and it sets a terrible precedent. Um, well, then again, yeah. then again, Barack Obama was anti-democratic. He didn't allow... The, the process to play out. He put his thumb on the scale. Oh, that's a big difference from, you know, canceling an out-and-out primary. Come on. I mean, oh. canceling a primary is a re- really, uh, you know, what it could have been done by mail, right? It's This isn't, we're not Wisconsin here. Or we're not Georgia. I mean, they could have done this by mail here. And it's infuriating to me that it was canceled. Okay. Is Bernie... He suspended his campaign. He suspended. He's yeah, and he endorsed. I mean, he's he's really like not running at this point, right? Okay? So so he endor- and he endorsed Joe Biden, right? So it's a fait accompli, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So yeah, but you know, you still have primaries, right? Justin, what is your question for Elaine Olin? So, Helene, um, I, I share your uh, skepticism about financial gurus uh, and financial intermediaries of all kinds. Um, and I know that, you know, the, the advice that you've given, uh, you know, to do things like dollar cost averaging and investing in passive income, uh, passive index funds, um, you know, is probably the most common advice that's given to consumers to, to have a, a uh, low risk uh, strategy that returns the, the same amount of the market. I completely get how the infinitesimal the odds are of beating the market. However, I can't escape the nagging resentment of feeling why is it that uh, earning returns better than market returns should only be available to the elite, should only be available to professionals should only be available to uh, accredited investors. And I, I also have a little bit of a nagging uh, skepticism about the growth of the passive index fund industry when, in fact, they're intermediaries too. They are also marketing their products to try to maximize the amount of assets that they have under management, the fees that they can earn. And, you know, I feel like if – if individual investors are able and willing, number one, if they have the risk profile to be able to to take some losses and they have the willingness and the capability to learn about investing, why not encourage them to completely eliminate intermediaries and learn how to actively manage their, their own portfolio without paying any guru to teach them, without paying any company to, to manage their assets for them. Well, there's only one way to really reliably know that you're going to do better than the markets, and that's to be a psychic. 
I, I mean, so the sort of idea that you could outguess the markets has just been disproven time and time again. Very few people can do it. I'm not saying no one can do it, but we're talking about less than 1% of the population. Odds are pretty good you're not in that group. Um, I'm certainly not in that group. Um, if anything, investors have, you know, a black thumb when it comes to investing. It's almost comical. We, we sell, you know, we sell what we should buy. We buy what we should sell. If you give us two stocks and say, pick, sell the winner, you know, I mean, you know, pick the winner and, you know, pick the loser. We'll pick the wrong. What will reverse them? I mean, you name it, we do it wrong. I mean, we, our, our, our senses of this is, you know, ridiculous. At the same time, we all think we're pretty good at it. Sort of in line with all those great studies that show we're all above average at everything. Mm. Um, the most famous one being, I, I, I'm sure there are people here who know this, is sometime in the 1960s, some researcher had the brilliant idea to go interview people who had killed people in a car accidents. Okay. So they were driving, they were in car accidents, and they were in fatal car accidents, and they still thought they were better drivers than average. Okay. Wow. So this is a very famous study, um, but th- this has been replicated over and over again. You know, most people think they're better than average, you know, at really a supermarket cart down the street. I mean, we all think we're best better than average, which is, I guess, how we get through the day. It would be horrible to walk around thinking we were all, you know, sort of idiots and lower than average, right? So it's a good thing. But probably shouldn't take that to your investing. Um, it's just not... I mean, it just really is becomes a hobby. And, you know, look, I mean, if, you know, if it's your bliss, I mean, I certainly would never stop you from doing it as a hobby. I just wouldn't fool yourself as to what's going on and how unlikely you are to do better than the markets. I mean, will you lose your shirt? Maybe, but probably not. Has the policy. Enjoy it. You know, hey, whatever. I mean. Has there been a monetary policy for the past 40 years that leaves people with no choice but to go into the market? Well, that's the other issue, right? I mean, well, first of all, there's the 401k, right? So by definition, you kind of have to go into the markets, you know, to make money. Inflation will otherwise wipe you out. Um, so, you know, if you just live your money in your bank account, you know, interest rates have been so low and just keep getting lower and lower that, you know, by definition, you're almost forced in. Returns on other you know, investments are just not as reliably good. Um, are the wealthy, to go back to the other part of the question, do they get it on better offerings? Of course they do. On the other hand, they're also taking a lot more risk. I mean, if you talk to angel investors, you know, the vast majority of what they put their money in doesn't pan out at all. So, you know, you'll put your money in 10 things, you'll get one that's a home run, You'll get eight that are total dogs that go out of business and you lose everything, and you'll probably get one that does okay. So by definition, that one that survives does tends to do pretty well. But it's a massive gamble, which is why there are laws saying you have to be an accredited investor because we don't want people who have like $20,000 net worth to lose their shirts investing in some, you know, risky offering. At the same time, of course, the best offerings are not getting given to you, even if you're allowed into them, right? Because by definition, if I have some brilliant business idea and I need, I don't know, $20 million or 
$200 million. I would rather go to two or three people who give me that money rather than, you know, 5,000 mom and pop investors. It's a lot of trouble. So by definition, you're only getting offered the weakest stuff to begin with. Okay. Our last question comes to us from Frank. Frank, where are you zooming from? Lake Stevens, Washington. Thank you. What is your question for Helene Olin, Frank? Uh, hi, Elaine. Hey. Helene. Hey been, there. Been uh, taking this time to reread the index card. Um, my question for you, um, I'm, I'm self-employed and have been. And uh, during this time, uh, I've taken a job, as a lot of people have. Uh, and I'm not sure how long I'll stay with them, six months, a year, maybe more. Um, they, I am eligible through their company to, uh, put away, put, uh, into my, their 401k program. Mm-hmm. So my question is, am I better off, uh, putting the money in the, the pre-tax money from my check into a 401k through the company or better off going through my own bank and doing an IRA or a Roth? Or am I better off just putting the money towards, you know, that emergency spending account you, you speak about. Or, well, first of all, do you have an emergency spending account? Yes. Okay. Do you have it, like, three months? Like Three months, like, yeah, just like you said in the book. Okay, then you don't need to do that. Um, I would use the 401K, and I would certainly contribute at least up to the match if your company is still offering a match. A lot. They don't do a match for the first two years. Oh, okay. So I that's would put in what, you, what as much as you can afford to. I mean, okay. it, it sounds like, you know, you're doing okay, and, in, you know, the hope is the market is kind of at a low point at this point, although not as low as it was a month ago. So, you know, you always want to put money in. And second, it's just a, you want know, it's low. But second, it's just a good habit to just be putting money in. You're not going to outguess it. You're just not. So you might as well just put the money in and, you know, let it ride, basically. That's always my attitude anyway. Yeah. And were I to leave the company, let's say, even two years from now, so that money stays there until I'm 59 and a half and then go to access it mm-hmm. or, all, or take it out and penalties accrue, et cetera? You know, you could just leave. First of all, you could just leave it there, right, as long as you keep track of it. There's no reason to just take it out. Second, right. you could, in theory, roll it over to a new employer to a new, right. or into an IRA. Um, the issue with rolling it into an IRA, which every financial advisor in the world will tell you to do because they can potentially make money off of your commissions thereafter, is that the vast majority of the time, the underlying expenses of the funds within the 401k are lower than the fund, the commercial funds, of the retail funds available at the bank. So you're giving up, it sounds infinitesimal, right? It'll be like 0.3, 0.03 versus 0.3. And you're like, yeah, whatever, who cares? But this amount can add up to hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime. So... By definition, it's almost always better to leave it in a 401k or, you know, for a, you know, 403b as long as, you know, you're okay leaving it there or you can roll it into your next employer's 401k, which vast majority of that. Does that answer your question, Frank? Uh, somewhat. So you're saying that I could leave it there. And what, is that something that you, you would talk to your employer with? I'm leaving you, but I want to leave my 401k. Oh, no, you're talking about it. You're, the law allows you to do it. 
There's, okay. They don't have to give permission at all. The only real issue is, is that your money isn't like consolidated in one place, and people do actually forget about their funds, which is hysterical. Like, how could you forget about having money somewhere? But right. people do. And the way, you know, but there's really no reason not to, um, to leave the money there. And I've left money in other 401ks before. I don't have a real issue with it. Are we huh. good? Good, right. Frank? I think so. Thank Good. you. So Thank I would you. just leave it, uh, just to reiterate. So I would just leave it, and then at that time, 59 and a half or whatever, when when it's okay to take it out, then I would just recontact the company or? Yeah. In theory? In theory. Or you could just leave it if you don't need it, right? Or you could just transfer. And let it keep going. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or just transfer right. to your 401k at some point. Okay. That answers my question. Thank you, David. Thank okay. you. Uh, that We got to all the questions. I'm very, I, I wanted to ask you about George, but I, I want to ask you a question, Elaine, because mm-hmm. you've been doing the show for a while and you talk about a lot of things. And my gut tells me you've moved past the financial gurus and investing. Are you, Where did you get that idea from? <laughs> I, I, that, that your interests are very Catholic, not yeah. in the real, you know, eclectic. Yeah. And that you've got, you did the financial guru stuff and the, that you're... You're very politely saying I'm a dilettante. It's okay. No, no, yeah. no. I'm saying that you... <laughs> I, are you surprised? I'm surprised by the number of questions regarding financial advice that was directed at you tonight. Uh, no, I think... I, I always get it. Um, I think, you know... People have financial questions, and I can answer them. I know and, you can. Uh, and I like doing it. Yeah. I, um, you know who you remind me of, and I'd like your take on him? There was a guy named Bob Brinker. He's no longer doing it. but there's I a, barely remember him anymore. He was never selling anything to right. the listener. He was honest. Everybody else, as you point out in Pound Foolish, is selling you something. Well, I think there's a bigger issue here. And, you know, it's that it's almost impossible to make a living doing personal finance anymore unless you are selling something. You know, when I got my start doing it, you know, I was writing for the LA Times. You know, every paper had several people covering personal finance. And, you know, and there were magazines, there was Smart Money and Hiplingers and Money, and they were fully staffed. I mean, and, you know, and making lots of money doing what they were doing. So, you know, if you didn't want to be, you know, set yourself up like a Dave Ramsey or Susie Orman, you still could do okay for yourself doing personal finance. Now there's really... You know, nothing left. I mean, outside of, say, you know, a couple of people at the Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the the Post, and there's a couple of other places. I mean, so I don't want to make it sound totally dire, but writers, um, there's really nobody doing this full time who isn't con- isn't conflicted in some way. You're not. You're not. I'm not doing it full time. But you're not and conflicted, and you, you see through I, yeah, all of I it. I haven't done it full time ever, really, right? And not in a long time. I mean, I'm basically writing politics. I just, you know, wrote this book based on my time doing it 20 years earlier. And the so the, I, the issue is, is people, 
see the blogs online, right? There are all these blogs online, and I'm sure I don't have to tell anybody here that because if you're listening to me, you're interested in the subject. And people think they're getting great advice from these blogs online, and sometimes they are. So I don't want to say these are all horrific. Some of them are pretty decent. But the problem is, is a lot of them are also very conflicted because, again, they got to make a living. And how do you make a living? You make a living through affiliate links, and you make a living. That means you make money when you write about a credit card and you put in the link, and somebody clicks on the link and they take out the credit card that you get paid. And by definition, that means some self-censorship, mm-hmm. whether people are aware of that or not aware of that. Um, I mean, because we all fool ourselves that we're great actors in this world, right? right? right. So by definition, we were like, oh, yeah, I would never, I would never do anything. You know, no, never. And of course, right. you know, you got to make a living. So, and I mean, and, you know, I just see, you know, stuff online that's terrific. And I see a lot, lot, lot of stuff online that's not so great. And then the third part, of course, is that a lot of it, Predisposed, is predisposed to the idea that you can do all of this and it will work out for you, right? right? That's kind of the do-it-yourself mindset. And so there's also this kind of weird unreality to a lot of it. So um, anyway, it's a long-winded way of saying that it is almost impossible to make a living doing this, which isn't why I'm not doing it any longer. I mean, I hadn't been doing it full-time at any point post 2000, 2001, I guess, although if you count writing Pound Foolish in the index card, that was right. quasi full time. But um, even Pound Foolish really wasn't, per- I, I always thought it was funny that people took personal finance advice from Pound Foolish because I used it in Pound Foolish to illustrate the fact that it mostly didn't work. And I, to me, that people took Pound Foolish as a... Um, as a how-to to an extent, I felt actually reflected really badly on the fact that there was so little out there that was of Yes, quality. yes. I mean, because the fact of the matter is, is I was using these examples and saying, here's why this doesn't work. It was here's a how-not-to book. It was a how-not-to book, right? And it was a very political book. And it was saying, right. yes, well, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. We need re- retirement reform. You know, I, just so everybody knows, yes, I'm telling you how to use your 401k, but basically I think 401k should be blasted into oblivion. So, you know, that's to me, was always a sort of sad, depressing takeaway for me personally about the book. And then I wrote the index card in part because... Um, you know, this thing with Harold had obviously gone viral, but I always felt one critique of Pound Foolish that a number of people wrote to me about that I felt was legit was they said, you know, you said this doesn't work and that the vast majority of people aren't trustworthy. And then, but you didn't tell us what to do and you're sort of trustworthy. And I was like, yeah, I can see that. (laughs) I mean, you know, am I right all the time? Probably not. Nobody is. Um, I want to, we have to wrap it up. Justin in San Francisco works for FINRA. Am I correct? Justin, can you? Un- Justin, you're muted. Oh, hello. Uh, yes, that's correct. Yep. We have a, a, an employee of FINRA, and I just wanted to introduce you to Helene, just in case the two of you need. I think the two of you should exchange messages. Write me. You can write me. Yeah. And <laughs> we'll explain what FINRA is. On another episode. Thank you, Justin. Uh, before you go, mm-hmm. I live in New York. I know a lot of uh, East Coast effete intellectual snobs who are saying, you know, if you have to be told not to drink bleach, 
Don't tell them. You know, this is just let nature take oh, I heard its. About that too, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, let it let it happen. And Georgia, you know, but you wrote an interesting piece over at the Washington Post that we are Georgia. We have to root for Georgia. Georgia is our future, isn't it? I don't see how people are staying in lockdown longer than this virus is going to be around. And I've said that pretty consistently fairly early on. And I I think people have politicized this thing. Yes, yes. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yes. Yes, and I I don't know what you do with this knowledge. I'm not giving a plan here, right? But I do think what has happened is, is we sort of have these, you know, online torquemadas who are scolding people for, you know, going outside. Well, first of all, by the way, it's really good to go outside. Vitamin D seems to be helping people. Like, yeah. But, um, you know, make your lungs work hard. You, you know, the, um, you know, but, you know, there's this sort of scolding and there's this sort of wish that, you know, in, that Georgia will end badly to show them, right? Right. Because Trump voters will get what they deserve. Right. And yes. look, I mean, do I know what's going to happen? No. But I also would say that we do know, and in fact, there's a big story in the journal today about this. So somebody can go look this up if they want. That, you know, there were a lot of predictions of doom with Florida several weeks ago with the beaches and whatnot. And for whatever reason, they never got as big an outbreak as we did here in New York. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen, but they didn't get it. And so needless to say, you know, they're now kind of like, you know, this has been several weeks and we're inside and what do we, we don't want to do this. And at the same time, of course, in New York, things are, as we all know here, you know, slowly breaking down with social distancing as well. Um, I'm kind of very fascinated by how everybody, you know, says they support social distancing and says they're doing it when any anecdotal look outside says that, I think much of the way we're all above average, you know, drivers, (laughs) we apparently are all above average social distancers. Um, And it's pretty clear from pictures we see in Central Park, from anything I see when I'm walking my dog, that people are not taking this as seriously as they were a few weeks ago. Um, We we have to wrap it up. Uh, But what I loved about your piece in the Washington Post about Georgia and the politicization of COVID-19. Anything that Trump says is suspect if you're uh, a Democrat. There was a reason Mike Pence didn't wear that mask at the Mayo Clinic. That was absolutely that was calculated because they are they are purposely giving us mixed signals, not because that's part of the fascist rule book. You know, the fascist rule book is confuse the electorate. This COVID-19 thing is uh, is binary. There are two tracks and there are two legitimate arguments. One that comes from the left, the intellectuals who say stay indoors, keep the economy shut down. Georgia deserves whatever happens to it. And then there's Sweden, and then there's Boris Johnson, and the herd immunity, and the speed limit at which we allow people to get a virus that 
we're probably all going to get that we don't want to talk about? I guess what I would say is what I find frustrating in this is the way these lockdowns were sold was that this was going to be temporary so that we could build up the hospital beds. We could get the, the safety supplies, the PPE supplies. And most of that does not seem to have happened. And the reason that did not happen is, for the most part, because of Donald Trump. You know, there's also 30-plus years of, you know, neoliberalism and, you know, using hospitals as a profit center, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the anger directed at people who, like, walk outside without their mask should probably be going to Donald Trump. And to people in Congress in both parties who still have not provided us with adequate financial relief given the circumstances here. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is who you should be angry at. Um, Being angry at your neighbor because they came, you know, a foot too close to you seems to be kind of like a sort of classic American divide and conquer where we get angry at the little guy and let the big guy run off with all the profits. Right. Right. To be continued. Thank you, Helene Olin. Helene Olin is a columnist for the Washington Post. She's also the editor of Public Seminar. Follow Public Seminar at Public Seminar on Twitter. We didn't have time to talk about Public Seminar, which people Next should. Time. That is Next it's time. so exciting. It uh, comes out of the new school. Go to publicseminar.org or .com. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> and the economic hardship. I should know this, I know. but I, I just—it's just in my—it's in my browser at this point. Okay. Dot com. Economic hardship reporting project. Washington Post. Pick up pound foolish and the index card. I am keeping somebody waiting. I want to thank Helene, mm-hmm. and I want to thank the attendees. They ask brilliant questions. It is. Truly humbling to oh. hear those questions and the answers. Stay on the line, everybody. You called in your backup e-coms now, see if we can get some more brain power in this We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly it in, go. Go ahead and go. Uh, he's, never mind, he's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay, now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good, so if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay, let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Wisconsin, where Professor Harvey J.K. is standing by. He is the Ben and Joyce Rosenberg Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. He has authored many, many great books that I've enjoyed reading. His latest is FDR on Democracy, the Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. If you would like 
to read a compendium, a collection of the greatest speeches and writings of Professor Harvey J.K., go by Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. It's published by Zero Books. It's a fantastic, fun read. And the fight for the four freedoms, what made FDR and the greatest generation truly great. I've read both those books. I haven't gone to FDR and Democracy yet. Thomas Paine, The Promise of America. You have been writing books uh, for a long time. My first book came out in 1984 in England and over here in 85. I think that was the year. And that was titled The British Marxist Historians a group of really outstanding figures, E.P. Thompson, Eric Hobsbawm, and others, who changed the the writing of social history and basically brought the Marxist tradition into the the center of the historical discipline. Um, Plus, they were politically involved in things such as E.P. Thompson was the co-founder of the European Nuclear Disarmament Movement. And I had the great privilege of becoming friends with quite a few of them, and they've all passed away since. uh, And you've written about Marxist historians from Great Britain. Yeah, that's what I was just mentioning. And and the question I have before we take questions from the listeners is Bernie dropped out, endorsed Biden, and I was moving further and further to the left. And it's starting to feel maybe it's the COVID-19 talking. I don't have it, but I hope. But, you know, (laughs) just the... I hope that cough drop isn't a comment. No, no, no. But, uh... I'm dispirited. What happened to the Marxists? You, you, you know, you're a lefty. You yeah, aren't. Dis- yeah, you're not dispirited. I'm not dispirited. No. So you're used to this. Oh, wait, well, get, well, hold on, hold on. Clearly, I am unsettled. And, and let me go further. I am. I am dispirited. But you know, this. I just can't be. I can't become despondent. That's the key. Dispirited is one thing. Despondency just, it's physically not in my nature. Is I, this, I are you comfortable in this space of in being on the, in oh. the, on the outside pissing into the tent? Is Do Marxists, do leftists find themselves more comfortable not getting what they want? Uh, look, I, <laughs> I'm serious. I know you're serious. Now let me be clear. No, hold on a second. Fundamentally, I'm a Paynite. Okay, what is that? Um, Thomas Paine. Oh, a Paynite. At the very beginning, Thomas Paine is at the. My heroes in human history are Thomas Paine, Eugene Debs, Franklin Roosevelt, and that's in American history and beyond American history. Clearly, Marx, uh, Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist. Um, I think Leon Trotsky was a fascinating figure. Walter Benjamin of the Frankfurt School. There are all these figures who, who've had this influence on me. But I think fundamentally it's Thomas Paine who I who – Karl Marx was right. I mean, we're in a class struggle social order. I, I have no question about it. But I think Thomas Paine is probably at right deep down is, is what I'm about. Okay. okay. Right. And my friend John Nichols and I are both in the same kind of place. I think we've talked about this. Um, okay. So what's the closest analog to Bernie that you've experienced in your lifetime? I mean, it, it, well, that's the thing. I mean, let me, let me take that question and say to you that 
I first voted in 1972 when I came back from England. And by that, and I came back from England as, as a socialist. I had done, I did my graduate study at the University of London, my master's degree. And I came back and I went in to vote. I didn't vote for McGovern. I voted for whoever the socialist candidate was on the ballot that time in New Jersey. I don't remember. Mostly because I was very, very disappointed with the Democrats with the, with the, the, the sort of, it was, it was a fascinating possibilities that were, were, were questionable ultimately because of the fact that labor was so angry with the Democratic Party. So who in 72 in the Democratic Party would you have voted for? Other I, I you know what? I don't even know who I would have voted Humphrey? for. Humphrey? Was Humphrey more of a liberal than Well, if I had for? voted in 68, I would have voted for, I would have voted, well, I, I, I liked Kennedy and Bob, I liked Bobby Kennedy in 68. But I wasn't old enough to vote. I McGovern was his hand-picked successor. Well, you know what? You know, I've, we've had this conversation briefly. McGovern ultimately failed the labor movement, and as a when he failed to, he didn't push. He didn't, with his vote and and lobbying him as a senator, push people to bring an end to the filibuster, blocking labor law reform, which would have liberated labor organizing. Uh, from the ta- worst of the Taft-Hartley Act of 1947. So I had very mixed feelings about McGovern. I, I, I'm very honest about that. And then in 76, I actually... So was, you've, I, have you ever tasted, and then we'll get to the question. Victory? Have you ever smelled... Yeah. The, ...the possibilities the way you did with Bernie? Okay. So let me just say that I've been... there are, After certain elections, I've been satisfied... That the Republican did not win. That, okay. And satisfaction is not a bad thing to experience after an election. But exhilaration, when Bernie won the primary in Wisconsin, I was exhilarated. When the Democrats basically made sure he couldn't get the nomination in 2016, I voted for Clinton against everything in my heart and mind, but there was no way I could be involved in allowing Trump and the Republicans to choose the next Supreme Court justice, and hell, they chose two of them, right? This time, I was, I, did, I voted in the Wisconsin primary, but by this time, by, by that time, you and I have talked about this, it was almost essentially too late. I mean, it was out of it. And I, so I think Bernie was the closest I've ever come to being really happy with a political candidate. All right, and so I, I want to under, I, 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 we have people, Raising their hands, I promise we'll get to them, but I, I, I've been wrestling with my depression. I can't figure out what I'm more upset about. Well, you know what? That's interesting. People your age and mine who are not, who were never in the majority for Bernie, okay? Never, if we're going to be depressed about it, then we are, we are failing to remember the fact that voting for all of these years that we could vote, has always been a matter of voting defensively. Defensively. Right. I, this, I believe this sincerely. I tell my students, you know, the 18, 19, 20, 24-year-olds, and they say, and they, they get excited about a candidate, like, like Barack Obama in his time or, or whomever else. And I say, they say, well, how do you feel? I say, well, I'm not very excited. Okay, I, I mean... Let me give you a wind up to my question and then we'll get to the, the people. Okay. okay. So okay. I'm, I'm avoiding a, your, I'm not avoiding your question. I, I, I have, I'm going to, cause I'm struggling with this. I have been 
radicalized. I've moved to the left. I, Who do you blame for that? I blame <laughs> Howie Klein, Michael Brooks, and you. And yeah, I'm both. I radicalize you, and Dr. Frankenstein is my yes. relation. I, I and I blame Bernie. So I voted for Bernie in 2016. Before that, uh, I was stupid enough to love Obama. I was raising kids. I was working. I I wasn't woke yet. I was just you know I liked Obama. I trusted him. The fool that I am. I didn't even know I was a neoliberal. I was an idiot. You know, I'm not as smart as Michael Brooks. I'm, 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 you know, I was so, like, I needed to tell you that. The point I'm making is this. Before I had kids, before I got married, yes, I was, I think, a lefty, or I, I think, and then I wanted to win, and I liked the fact that Clinton was winning. I didn't know how he was winning. Here's the thing that I'm worried about, okay? (laughs) This is my question about the left. I'm on the left. I'm going to stay on the left, and we need a revolution in this country. And there's a comfort level I'm finding right now among the left. They're comfortable with Bernie not getting it. The, The accusation against Yasser Arafat and the PLO was that they, that he never wanted a homeland. This is what the Zionists will say. I've never, heard others say it too. I've heard non-Zionists say it, just for the record. That he never wanted a homeland. He never wanted... He was living too well in uh, whatever capitals he was hosted in. He didn't want to be responsible for uh, collecting the garbage and making sure that, you know, the trains were running on time. He wanted the ideal of a Palestinian state. Your study of Marxists, and the, the especially the British Marxists, yeah. uh, it's a critique of capitalism, Marxism. Do well, you have I, to... I, yeah. Do you have to achieve yeah. anything... If you're on the left, well, or can, you take, uh, can you just stand? Can you just piss into the tent never, and be satisfied? I've never, publicly, I've never publicly told this little story, which isn't embarrassing at all. But one of the British Marxist historians, his name was Rodney Hilton, and he, with the others, had been a member of the Communist Party through the in the 1930s when they all had gone off to Oxford, Cambridge, London, various places, and he stayed in the party until 1956, when the uh, um, Soviets invaded Hungary to suppress the Hungarian. Um, uh, effort at freedom. And then in mass, most of them left the Communist Party. Personally, I think they should have left when Stalin signed the Hitler-Stalin Pact, but that's neither here nor there right now. So the thing is that when I was living in England in 1986-87, and we were were over at his house and his wife's house for dinner, he and I were, were drinking a couple of, Scott, no, scotch or something before dinner. And it was raining outside. And I looked outside and I looked, you know, he had a comfortable house, nicer house than, than I have. And I said to him, you know, is it possible that we're already living in a, in a, in a kind of social democratic order and that we really do need to revise, we really need, need to revise our Marxist politics? Okay. Now, at that point, Thatcher 
was governing in Britain and Reagan was governing in the United States. And one of the things that concerned me was the fact that people, people on the left were so eager to talk Marx, 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 when they should have been figuring out how to, how to save both Britain and the United States from the right. Okay. And most Americans were not about to rise up in some kind of, you know, class revolution. So my feeling is that now, here we are all these many years later, when the right has truly devastated American democratic life and really sort of jeopardized the, the victories of the 30s and the 40s and the 60s. And, and I know now, again, that I, in, in my head, I'm thinking more and more like a Marxist again, okay, in the sense that what we're confronting right now is not something that will be resolved in Congress it's not going to be because even if the Democrats t- were to take both houses, if we ended up with a Biden presidency, Biden himself is not going to is not going to push for the kind of social democratic politics programs and initiatives that we need. And it may well be that the, the question of how do we secure a more social democratic? By the way, I don't hesitate to use the term social democracy. Uh, how do we secure a more social democratic America? Is going to be determined by the degree to which we can strengthen labor, support labor's initiatives. Like even right now, even right now, I know that the Tara Reid question is, in, is important, I'm, but I, I'm thinking to myself, we really should not allow ourselves to forget that the real question of politics today is what's going on in places like Amazon and, other, and, other, and, and these giant corporations where workers are either resisting or or rebelling or just literally holding their own against the, these kinds of forces. So had Hillary, so you're saying, and this, I apologize, people have their hands up. Yeah. What you're saying is had Hillary won and if Biden wins, the, the left has been unleashed and they are going to push this country. Well, I, I can tell you, I was writing a book on the expectation that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. And the book was entitled, We Are Radicals at Heart. Because my thinking was that if Hillary won, that we were going to see a serious resurgence of a 1930s or 1960s kind of popular radicalism. And I'm going to tell you why. If we, It may be hard to remember, but in the years leading up to 2016, we had a diverse array of popular movements from the Fight for 15 to the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina, to the um, Black Lives Matter, to the teacher strikes, which began in West Virginia and went elsewhere. I mean, this is what democracy looks like was on the agenda. And I was writing this book on the assumption that when the Democrats won in 2016, even if it wasn't burning, that we were going to be energized, if only because she was herself during the campaign, moving left, and it was in, kind of like an invitation to us to, to literally make America radical again. Now, I didn't write the book in the end, which is why I brought out that book, Take Hold of Our History. I, all the stuff I had been writing during those years and the piece, ultimately, um, Make America Radical Again, that sort of closes the book, you know, Radicals at Heart, that's, my, that's in place of the book I was writing. Okay. Okay. So, so I do think that had Hillary won, we would not have. I hope we wouldn't. I thought I would. I hope we learned our lesson with Obama. Not we let Obama do nothing, uh, truly in the in terms of popular 
uh, uh, movement, and we would not allow ourselves to be seduced by a Clinton administration again. Did Bernie reveal that the truth about the left is the same truth about Christianity? Jesus comes back and the game is over. That that, that the whole game (laughs) is waiting for Jesus, and God forbid he comes back. Well, you know, the problem with history and knowing it is that I can give you a counter-argument to anything you say, okay? And I mean by that is one could say, well, was Roosevelt the Jesus of his day, okay? And the fact is that the difference between um, then and now is significant. If we had, if we had elected Hillary, Hillary wasn't going to mobilize Americans. She ran a campaign where she said, I'll be your champion, I want to fight for you, instead of what Bernie would have said if I could have written a speech, which would have been, I don't want to fight for you, I want to encourage the fight in you, something like that. Franklin Roosevelt encouraged the fight in Americans in the 30s so effectively that they pushed him, I think I've said this before, they pushed him further or at least faster than he might well have been prepared to go. But he always said he didn't want to be too far out in front of his fellow Americans. He wanted to make sure that he was, that they were with him in, in this, in that fight. Now, my feeling is that if Biden is elected and they could bullshit us all they want, the fact is Biden is no FDR. He is absolutely no FDR, no matter what they try to tell us. Okay. And right now, even we know that the bankers are telling him who to choose for the VP nominee. Right. And, and, and if, you know, CNBC, I'm not quoting radicals, if CNBC is right, he'll choose Kamala Harris or Amy Klobuchar or what's her name from Michigan? I always forget her name. Which is Whit- right Whitmer? Whit- Whitmer, Whitner, something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those people whose who's, who's records is a centrist Democrat, basically. The difference between FDR and Biden is, FDR was paralyzed from the waist down, and Biden's paralyzed from the neck up. Let us now go. Let us go, yeah. I just threw that in just because I wanted it to be uh, funny. Well, our first question comes to us from the Invisible Ninja. Nice to see you, Invisible Ninja. We don't see you, but yeah. <laughs> where, where are you uh, Zooming from, Invisible? I'm actually in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay. Cool. Cool. Can you hear me okay? I need to take my mask off. Oh, you know, I hear you beautifully. <laughs> I, yeah, I hear you invisible. All right. Well, okay, we kind of know what we have to do if um, if Biden wins. Of course, we've got to, like, help. You know, we've got to help keep pushing the progressive agenda. We've got to keep fighting. Um, just like if Hillary would have won, we would have had to have kept fighting Hillary. But my question is, like, worst-case scenario, say we can't uh, drag – Biden's dead corpse over the finish line and Trump wins. Like what, what is our plan? You know, like if Trump is in there another four years, like I'm just trying to think another two, three steps down the line because you know, the oh, no. side Perfect. is doing it. Yes. Yes. Great um, question. Is, Thank you. I wish I could call you by your actual first name, but I'll call you ninja for lack of another way of putting it. Okay. So, I mean, I was going to jokingly say, well, do you drink? You know, you might want to start ordering booze now if in case Trump wins. But that's that's a jokey, stupid kind of answer. No, I think that one part of it remains of my previous answer. And that is that it's no joke. We have got to figure out how to pursue 
direct action. And instead of perhaps targeting Trump, I mean, Trump will be the guy whose image is burned in effigy anyhow, I hope. But it really is the case where pressure must be turned as much as possible, even now I would want this, on the business corporations themselves. Okay? We need, it needs to be the case that they realize what, it, what, what the price of their support for Trump is. And that's a, and that will be various modes of direct action, whether it's slowdowns in the workplace or walk at wildcats, whatever it may be. There needs to be some degree of turmoil and trouble and tumult. And, um, you know, I mean, that, that's all I can tell you is that we maybe focus, we live in a time in which the state seems all powerful, so we direct our attention to politics and the state. But those workers in those places I referred to before, such as Amazon and the other big corporations, um, they are really in their own fashion, not only the front line as a supply chain, they are also the front line in terms of our, of our possibilities to make something of American democratic life. I, I believe that sincerely. Great question. Let's go to Vince. Where are you Zooming from, Vince? Uh, Pensacola, Florida. Ah, okay. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you taking my uh, question and uh, for this opportunity. Um, I'm going to kind of flip it. Uh, I heard this from a previous podcast from last week with Adolf Reed, so it's not my my uh, idea. It's more of what he was talking about. The idea that, uh, I mean, he was saying that he's going to vote for Biden. I'm voting for Biden. I live in a sweet state, of course, so. But and I think people should probably vote for Biden. Cash us out. But the idea that uh, bumbling Joe becomes president and he bumbles for four years and clears the way for a um, more capable, intelligent, uh, right-wing fascist. Which sorry. is was there? A qu- sorry, Mike, I'm missing the question. Oh, I'm sorry. So, in other words, Biden does win, even though it should be a cakewalk. Yes, Biden does win. Then we have four years of just, you know, him being a neoliberal, not really doing anything for the people. And we live in a populist time right now, which will open the door for, you know, the nightmare of a full on uh, capable fascist rather than a, a bumbling fascist like Trump. Yeah. Sorry, your fear is, and I think I've been thinking of that very same thing, that Four years of neoliberalism will bring back even worse than Trump. Is that is that what you mean? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, basically, which I find interesting. I mean, Adolf Reed. No, we know each other. We've never met. We've had limited conversation, a bit by email. Um, I, I greatly admire Adolf Reed. I always have. I'm, his writings that were always the smartest uh, of on the black left and also labor left in many ways. So I, I rarely disagree with him, and I'm not sure exactly if he said what you're presenting as your position, your question. But I can tell you that the fear that neoliberalism will generate worse is definitely on my mind. However, however, the, the question as to how neoliberal Biden is may well be determined by us and not simply by his deplorable record continuing in presidential uh, terms. Um, Howie Klein on today's show says Biden's going to win and the 2022 congressional elections are going to be a a route that the Republicans are going to take back 
the House and either keep or take back the Senate. Okay. Which, I, I which, tell, speaks, to Vince's fear, which yeah. speaks to Vince's fear. Yes, of, I, right. I'm, I'm, by the way, Vince's fear is my fear. But that, but by the way, Howie Klein, and I'd like to talk to Howie Klein directly. It's very easy for him to make these prognostications, but he lives in fucking California. Okay. And I'm tired of the New Yorkers and the Californians telling they're, they're liberated. They could vote for their mothers if they wanted. Okay. I'm in Wisconsin and I, and I'm in a state which should have gone blue last time and went to Trump. And I do not want to see the upper Midwest basically ignored by these Californians and New Yorkers who think they're too good to vote for Biden. You vote for Biden and then you make Biden's life in the White House problematic in the sense that you make sure that he hears you outside the White House as much as Trump might ever hear anybody outside the White House. I mean, that's the point. You vote for Biden to save American democracy and then you get out and do things to save American democracy beyond well let me just say something let me just respond because i i I sense the anger and i'm going to push back it's easy for you to say in wisconsin where your vote matters (laughs) (laughs) you you live in your pampered bubble where where, people don't realize i love this guy okay (laughs) (laughs) by the way if we don't if we can't laugh during all of this we are in deep shit (laughs) No, so look, all I'm saying is that I don't mind how you guys vote because you don't matter. That's what I'm telling you. You don't we, matter. We know that. Okay. We matter. And is that my ninja friend down here who gave us his picture or is that somebody else here? I, I, I'm not, I'm, I'm listening to you, Professor. I'm not okay. passing okay, notes say, to the I, other all students. Is, all I'm saying is that it is imperative that Trump not be president again. And if anyone thinks that creating a third party would be the alternative, honestly, I, is this going on radio later in the week? Go ahead. Fuck, fuck them. The third party route, especially, you can't create a third party in the middle of a presidential campaign. Well, Jim Earl, who does the show, and then we'll go to Tom in Portland. Okay. If Jim, I, I don't want to expose you to Jim Earl. Jim Earl, comedy writer, yeah, would say Medicare for all, Medicare for all. Medicare for all. If you're not for Medicare for all, you're not getting my vote. I'm drawing a line in the sand. F any Democrat who's opposed to Medicare for all. Well, then your friend Jim Earl, who I do know from the Friday night events, is off his rocker. Okay, he's off his rocker. The fact is that that's that's like thinking your vote. I'm going to withhold my vote. Nobody gives a flying fuck if he withholds his vote. What kind of protest is I'm not going to vote for Biden? There's no protest in that. The protest is you vote for Biden and you make Biden's life miserable if he doesn't do what we want. And if people are only going to literally vote and and leave it up to Biden and Pelosi and Schumer, well, then it's all over anyhow. Sorry. Okay. And last question, then we'll go to Tom in Portland. What I would say to Jim Earl, and I'm not endorsing Biden yet. I understand that. I'm not asking you to. Because I don't think anybody, nobody cares who I'm voting for. Nobody cares. So, but uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Tom in Portland. Hey, buddy. Hey, 
I thought you looked familiar, Tom. I'm really sorry. I, I, when you popped in, I said, oh. that's not the Invisible Ninja. No, no worries. No worries at all. You, know, you were there to the end Friday night, correct? Yeah, five and a half hours. It was yeah, five and a half hours. You live out west, so it was only really five in the afternoon. What that, what yeah. That? <laughs> you know what was interesting for me, and we'll get to your question, Tom, in a second. You, you can see people in the meetings, and there were some people who did some really nice drinking. And I don't drink anymore, but there were a couple of people just showing me how much they could drink. And yeah, that was not one of them. No, I, I, this is water. On Monday nights, David, I only drink water with you. Okay? Oh, okay. Because, because to me, this is the intellectual night. Yeah. Okay. Friday night, I, 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 I can't do anything. Yeah. I can't, I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't yeah. do anything. Yeah. So yeah. I like to I, I watch people you. having a good time. I was drinking Japanese whiskey both all the Friday nights. Really? Yeah. I mean, I didn't drink a lot of it, but uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Tom, to... Tom okay. in Portland, what is your question for Professor Harvey J.K.? Well, I have so many thoughts, and I hope I can form it sort of in, a, in the form of a question. Um, so just bear with me for a moment, Harvey. This is um, in Jeopardy. Okay. <laughs> I have been... I have been using my shelter-in-place time to try to learn something every day in in addition to a little intoxication of, of some kind every once in a while. I want to develop my brain as well. So I've really focused quite a bit on history of countries in this hemisphere in particular. And one of the things that was just really just a completely blank spot for me was the horror involved with uh, Trujillo in Dominican Republic, which ironically is the first place Columbus landed. And yeah. to this day, the worst, horrendous, place in the Haiti and Dominican Republic, the treatment just really speaks volumes for our entire way of life. So I've essentially I read a bunch on Dominican Republic, and then I also really absorbed a bunch of history of Iran and horrendously shocked in both situations. And this kind of led to my Eisenhower question from a few weeks back. Oh, yeah. Um, Eisenhower being, you know, again, I always tell Republicans, you know, here's my last Republican that I could even tolerate. Um, but then after reading about Trujillo and Iran, oh, my God. <laughs> well, yeah, uh, I, yeah. And when you put it into context with at the end of his presidency, he literally said, hey, I can't control the Dulles brothers. They're, they're in control, essentially is what he said. Well, they're still in control. When I say they, I don't mean like some shadow government, but essentially a system that terrorizes um, freedom movements all over the world. Um, so now, essentially for, since the 50s, the United States has made war on labor the world over. Yes. And now they're making war on us. Right. We are. Do you think we're chilly 1973 right now? That it's all of this treatment of the, the, the rest of the world to make uh, the rest of the world habitable to business, um, now it's our turn to turn Americans into Chinese workers who say, please let me come to the dangerous plant to work. The difference yeah, between America and Chile is they they elected a Marxist, Allende, then Bacala, an atheist, pediatrician female. She's now over at the U.N. They had truth and reconciliation after Pinochet. We should be yeah. so lucky. No, what I'm like saying to. is we're having we're going to have Pinochet for a decade here, where they're dropping people like me out of helicopters. 
Yeah. Um, well, sure, you know. I, I mean, I, maybe uh, they already are. <laughs> yeah. Well, let, let's. Yeah. That, by the way, I don't know if it ever came up on if, when you were listening and on other shows, but I actually have my PhD in Latin American studies. Original. That's my original field, and um, one of the reasons, by the way, that I left Latin American studies and I moved first into British and then decidedly into American studies was I had decided that the only way to make a political difference was probably to become an Americanist and start writing about the American radical tradition and start writing historical arguments in a political, in a, sorry, in a political direction. So, okay. By the way, I'm surprised you didn't mention Guatemala, Tom, um, in 54 and the use of a, the CIA's creation of an army to overthrow a democratically elected government, the Arbenz government, as I recall. And the use of the New York Times, the way they yeah. would just bring yeah. reporters they, down to... Right. And in fact, and, and then they used the labor movement by creating the American Institute for Free Labor Development, which was really an effort they claimed to, to cultivate labor unionism in Central America, but more often than not, it was to crush any kind of left labor unionism that was emerging. Anyhow, so do I think that? I can tell you this. In, in the 70s, capital declared war on labor, and the Republicans took the lead, and the Democrats ultimately went along, okay, is, is what happened. Now, here's the thing. So for years, what I was saying, I wasn't even thinking Latin America. I was thinking that what we were witnessing was the dixification of the rest of the country. That is, southern labor relations were had always been feudal, basically. And um, even after World War II, it remained the case that labor could not really crack the South because of the fact that the Taft-Hartley Act allowed Southern states to become right-to-work states. So you had, you had, you know, you still had poverty in the South. You had workers without any kind of real, without collective bargaining rights, without, you know, sort of basic decencies. Black workers in particular in, 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 uh, I guess they were poultry, poultry, you know, the chicken producing factories, that kind of stuff. So, but what we've seen since, since the late seventies is that the rest of the country has been the target of that right to work campaign, the dixification of the South, reduce, reduce labor. Look, the South became industrially vibrant all the more when they won the corporate order, won the Taft Hartley Act in 47 and New England textile mills sped up their retreat from New England to the South. And then, of course, as American capital and the Nixon administration and others opened up Asia to American investment, those very same textile mills were leaving the South and moving Mexico, Malaysia. Did they know that was going to happen when Nixon went to China? Was that part of the plan? Well, let's I don't know. I can't. I don't know for a fact, but I think they were all salivating at the prospect. They talked about it as if this would be the China would be this new market, but China wasn't ready to be the new market until it actually started speeding up its industrial processes, so workers had money to spend themselves. So, in essence, they went in to China. They set up their factories. Look, I'll never forget. I think it was 1979. Do you, you would remember? I bet no. A lot of other people in this room might not remember. Zenith Corporation. Do you remember Zenith? They were a CIA front, weren't they? Z- no, no. 
I'm not talking about the Phoenix operation. No, Zenith. I think Zenith Television was supposed to. Television was the CIA front. Boy, you, I, you, you know stuff I don't even know about. And Gloria Steinem. I, I think it was the president of the Zenith Corporation at one of these big corporate galas announced, unreservedly announced, it was written up in the Times and other newspapers, that they were no longer an American corporation. They were now a, truly a global, not simply multinational, but global corporation. And, I mean, that was a declaration of war, all the more on American labor. I mean, that meant they had no obligation to the American taxpayer or to the American worker. Hmm. So, what? look, I mean, that, that happened over and over again. And What is the bedtime story that they tell themselves when they ship jobs to the south and then to Southeast Asia? That new jobs will fill the vacuum? Well, one of the, one of the, I remember there was an economist at my university who I was otherwise friendly with. He was originally from India and a smart guy, but he, he would say to me something like, well, do you want to keep American factories from going to Indonesia so that the, that the poor boy who's helping make Nike shoes and clothing and soccer balls won't have a chance to make a better living? I mean, that was, you know, so they can, in essence, he was speaking that the, it was the mouthpiece of corporate, right. or, of the corporate order. This is essential for them. Now, the simple answer is no, I don't want that kid to, I don't want that kid to even have to work. Okay. Right. For a start, that's one. Two, right. two, I'm, I'm more than happy to see investments overseas as long as, as long as labor unions over there have the same rights as at least we thought we had over here. Right. Mm -hmm. And thus we could establish some kind of process where American labor cooperates with labor abroad to literally set up effective union. I mean, not a uh, not the American Institute for Free Labor Development, not right wing bullshit. I'm talking about serious labor organizing and serious labor rights. So, uh, you know, so. I mean, there's, there are very, there are ways it could. And labor really doesn't play a role in negotiating these trade agreements. What role did the. By the way, something interesting happened just in the last couple of days. This fellow, and if you're interested in this fellow, you can watch, um, he's on a number of podcasts right now. His name is Chris Smalls, I believe. He was one of his, he got fired, I believe, from Amazon because he was an agitator. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But he is now in touch with Amazon workers around the world. Okay. So maybe we'll see, maybe we'll see a renewal. I mean, it's small given the order in which we live, but some kind of globalization of, of labor cooperation would be, would be great. Okay. What role did environmentalism play in the shipping of manufacturing jobs overseas? Oh, sorry, environmentalism as well. The fact is when, when capital, and I mean capital, I'm talking about the voices of folks like David Rockefeller and later the Business Roundtable and other groups like that, when they declared war, this is also in the Powell Memorandum. Just type in Lewis Powell Memorandum on Google and you will get the memorandum. This was the memorandum that Lewis Powell wrote for the Chamber of Commerce as to how the Chamber of Commerce should start pursuing really a serious class war on those who threatened the American corporate order. And a couple of weeks later, Nixon appointed him to the Supreme Court. Okay, so, so, so here's the thing. When they declared war on labor, they also declared war on the environmental movement. In every one of those declarations of what business needs to do to counter the threat to American capital, it listed their enemies. It included labor, public employee unionism, 
the environmental movement, the poor people's movement, even the women's movement was thrown in because they were viewed as that the presumption was it would empower working women to join labor unions all the more rapidly. Ralph Nader. Oh, the consumer rights movement and the consumer movement. You bet. Not so. Of course, you had all these new regulations, and we look the three major agencies or, or acts that were set up under Nixon that emerged out of the legislation of the 60s under Johnson were the Environmental Protection Agency, the, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and I, what was it called, the Consumer Product Safety Board or something? All Ralph like. Nader. Was and then, of course, it was 78 when Carter turned his back on the on the Nader folks, mm-hmm. on the labor movement, okay? And that's important. So you had some sort of Nixon, who... Oddly enough, as a guy who signs these things and creates these things, and then you get Carter, supposedly a Democrat, who's the guy who basically turns his back on these things. Plus the Clean Water Act under. Sorry, well, that and in the sixties, there was a clean air, clean water, right? Yeah. But so what happened was they they said, okay, if we can't pollute America, we'll ship these manufacturing jobs to countries where we can pollute. Or now that we have polluted America, let's go pollute somewhere else too. Right. Great question. Let's go to Great Britain where Mr. Hutchinson is standing by. Hello, Mr. Hutchinson. Hi, David. Uh, hi, uh, Harvey. Do you go by uh, Rory or Rorikey? Uh, Rorikey's my name. It's a Polynesian name. So okay, great. It's, uh, it's not Richard. I, okay. I go under Ricky as a as a thing to make it easy, but, uh, yeah, it's Rory Keith, so, uh, yeah. And where you guys in, are you, good, where so. are you located in, in the, uh, London, London. London. Have we talked uh, before you and I, he comes yeah, to the we, zoom party. Yeah, I know that, yeah, but I, I didn't know if you and I spoke directly before. Yeah, we did. Um, and it was, it was more on global unionism, uh, uh yeah. leaning into American, yeah. um, based unionism. So, and that's sort of, uh, I sort of, uh, wanted to, Maybe focus more on um, American unionism and uh, and sure. just that sort of shift from a uh, economic unionism, which is what Taft Hartley and all that kind of um, stuff creates, um, and back to something that Chomsky is quite passionate about, more the cultural side of unionism, yeah. which is which is that sort of bridge between Marx and community and democracy. Yeah. So. You know, I, I wanted to hear more about that, but I also wanted to, from a global unionist perspective, um, you know, sort of think um, think the guys were talking about Allende because I think that's that's the, that Chicago school in '73 with Friedman's thing. Neoliberalism started there. Um, yeah, and, and it's true. Yeah, that was their first. That was their first uh, national uh, experiment, right? In, uh, yeah. in in Allende's Chile, I, I I don't know if you ever heard me mention uh, so many things you've said brought back a lot of memories. So my my plan originally when I was doing my PhD was to actually go down to Chile. I was going to write my dissertation on Chile. Uh, specifically, I was going to write on the question of how do so look peasant movements have helped Allende come to power, and their ambitions were to have major land reforms in the countryside. And in fact, those land reforms took place under Allende. And I was really interested in, in studying how movements became, if you like, organizations. That is, to how peasant movements 
became cooperatives. What the transition process? I really was interested in that because Allende's Chile could have been the example for serious, serious social and economic reforms throughout Latin America. And I thought the experience of Chile would serve well in Peru and Ecuador and other places. That um, didn't come to be because the Allende government was overthrown by the Pinochet regime. And I wasn't going to go to Chile in any case. Basically, I couldn't go to Chile. I was, I was a Marxist. So, um, but, so that, that's just a sidebar to that. Um, on the question of culture and labor, that, that's a really good question. I can tell you, uh, uh, years ago, it would have been around 1986, I had a, a provost here at my university, who, by the way, was from Liverpool, England, just for the record. Okay. And he and I were good friends. He had grown up in labor, L-A-B-O-R-O-U-R, okay, in, as a labor party guy. But here in the United States, he had become a Republican, um, mostly because he didn't like the way that that Lyndon Johnson, basically he had supported the war in Vietnam, this friend of mine, and he thought Lyndon Johnson was the great this great president who had pursued major social reform, and he felt that the left had basically destroyed the presidency because of the war in Vietnam, blah, blah, blah. He was for the war in Vietnam? Yeah, my friend was for the war in Vietnam. He's old. He's passed away since. He was a good 15 years old. But he was a labor guy. He grew up as a labor guy in Britain, went to the University of Wales at Bangor, became an agronomist, came to the United States on a postdoc at Iowa State University, and eventually came to, to this university to teach statistics and Would he have been a, a lefty who supported the war in Vietnam? Well, he thought of himself as a liberal, and his feeling was he supported the he supported the war in Vietnam because he was an anti-communist liberal. That's okay. Period. Hmm. That, you know what I'm talking about? Yes. Okay. So, but I'll, so anyhow, so he's the provost, and I was the chair of my department, and we were friends, um, and. We started talking about labor unionism and faculty unionism. The university, the University of Wisconsin, we were not allowed collective bargaining rights. We did not have, um, and if we, I was in every labor movement effort on the campus, but it remained the case that we did not have collective bargaining rights. And one day I remember the provost sat, was sitting behind his desk. I really liked the guy. I really, really did. He and I were very, very close. And he said to me, Harvey, the one thing that you're missing about labor unions, which is the most fundamental thing, and this is why I could never forswear labor unionism, is that labor unions are about the dignity of workers. Hmm. Okay, that's he, he really remained, if you like, a kind of labor guy, even if everything else about him had become conservative. And he said that what labor unions provide is dignity for workers, their solidarity, Okay, their unwillingness to be pushed around is that kind of thing, and I re- and then of course as I got more and more into American studies, and became really fascinated by the degree to which the question of what what brings workers together, okay, and I always had in my head this thing he pointed out about dignity, and to that extent the question of of economics will always be fundamental to labor unionism. I mean, workers have to eat and live decency, and as they once upon a time used to say. Everyone deserves an American standard of living. That was the labor ideal from the late 19th century right into the 1930s. So, but it what became the case that labor was always smart enough in those days to know that culture, cultural activities mattered. 
So, for example, early in this century, socialists and labor unionists would organize schools for workers. In the 1930s, really, a really important part of the labor movement and the New Deal struggles and the, even the Roosevelt administration was the fact that it was called it was was called the Cultural Front. That is, that artists of every sort, writers and musicians and theater people, they all developed programs either inside of the New Deal initiatives themselves, which were known as Federal One, or as part of the labor movement to provide theater and music and entertainments. And then the last point I'll make, um, Rorke, you're still there, right? Yeah, yeah we're, we're, we have to... Yeah, I see. I see Henry's. Yeah, we're, 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 we have I want to, to say one more thing about that, and that is that um, a friend of mine, also from Britain, a very dear friend from Birmingham, grew up in a working class neighborhood. When he came over to visit me here and to speak to my students, because he has a PhD, he does Birmingham history, in fact, Brummie history, is when we went to a pub with my students, he got them to sing in the bar. He, he, to him, if you're going to create any kind of real solidarity, you got to sing together. So, Rorke, if that helps, that, that, that's what I would say in response to the cultural question. You know, we were talking to Howie Klein. Somebody had asked a question. I think it was uh, Rorke about the the value of rock music in moving the needle to the left. Howie Klein ran Reprise and Warner Records. Yeah. And I think the takeaway, let me just bring... Ricky back in here. Wasn't the takeaway that you have to hear the musicians get interviewed? You really can't figure out what they're trying to say politically from their music. <laughs> That's true. Uh, I think that was the, the takeaway. Didn't Plato hate poetry? He feared poetry. He, he may have liked the poetry behind closed doors, but he feared poets. Poets were the historians of, of the ancient Greek world, the chroniclers, the storytellers. They had memories that Plato considered dangerous. And cryptic. Let's go to Henry. Hello, my friend, Henry. Hello, David. Hello, Our Professor. Friend. Good to see Our you. Uh, so I'm going to ask... Uh, By the way, everybody's my friend. Yes. We're all... Yeah, I'm not that special. You're not that special. Fact. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I have a special affection for you, Henry, in part because you're from the UP. Okay. Yeah, I'm exactly a hundred miles due north of you. Right, and also everyone should know if it hadn't been for the coronavirus, Henry and I would have ended up meeting a couple of months ago. But we have ten minutes left. Oh. I'll keep my question short, and we may have the irritable immunologist phoning in. So, if we can get this, go ahead. What is your question? So uh, my question is in regards to somebody that you've mentioned here and there, but I, I would like just a little bit more um, background information on. So Sidney Hillman. Um, Sidney Hillman, yeah. Yeah, is somebody that you've brought up before. And we know his influence on, for example, uh, assisting Wagner in making the National Labor Relations Act in helping get passage of the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, but what I would like to have you address is perhaps his effect both for and on FDR. So for FDR in terms of um, coalescing a labor coalition to support the New Deal and bring people in to support FDR, and then his effect on FDR in terms of pulling him to the left on uh, 
various issues. So if you could yeah, address I, I, that, I, I, I wish I could speak more specifically to their personal relationship. Who was Hellman? You've spoke. Who was Sidney, Sidney Hellman? Thank Eastern you, Henry. Indian Jewish immigrant um, ends up the, pre- the the head of the chief guy, the president of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America. Okay, um, which. Everyone may have, I don't know how many people have heard, there There was the International Ladies Garment Workers Union, led by David Dubinsky, who was also a socialist. Um, Amalgamated Clothing Workers of America, led by um, Hillman, a socialist. Um, and then, of course, the third labor leader of major consequence at the time was... Frances Perkins. No, no, she she was, she came out of a social work kind of background. Her her thing, she became the secretary of labor. The other labor leader would have, was was John L. Lewis, the uh, the president of the United Mine Workers, and all three of them. Well, especially Lewis, I should be clear. Lewis and um, and Hillman played the biggest role at the time, in the sense that they were essentially what we would call industrial unionists, and the AFL itself was 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 friendly, decidedly friendly to, to FDR. But the AFL had a longstanding idea that you don't get directly involved in politics. You push, but you don't endorse and so on and so forth. That was all coming to an end. That went back to the to the days of Gompers. But you now had Lewis and Hillman. And Lewis was a Republican originally and, and Hillman was the socialist. Now it was really crucial that these two men, this this totally different backgrounds essentially became close enough that they launched, to make the long story short, they launched the CIO, originally the Committee of Industrial Organizations. It was really what became the Congress of Industrial Organizations. And it was their support for Roosevelt, especially in 34 and then in 36, which they Roosevelt would have won the working class vote anyhow. Workers knew he, that he was a friend of labor, even if it was senators who may well have pushed the laws more effectively on, on labor than FDR himself. But in contrast to Lewis, who brought communist organizers into the UMW because they were so effective, Hillman in, in the Amalgamated Clothing Workers, and there must have been you know communist organizers, but Hillman having been a socialist was more skeptical earlier on, perhaps, of the communists. It wasn't so sure he could control them. Well, as time goes by, Lewis breaks with Roosevelt in the New Deal. This, this especially comes up with the question of World War II. And in 1940, Lewis actually goes Republican again in 1940. But he doesn't take the labor movement with him, okay? Hillman becomes the more significant figure at that point inside the CIO. Now, they were close, and in fact, they used, it used to be the case that if anything had to do with labor and working class, there was a, how did, I think Roosevelt used to say, you know, fly it by Sydney. He wanted, he wanted to know what Sydney thought of it. So, and then in 1944, when Roosevelt pr- declares or, or comes out with the idea of the Economic Bill of Rights, this is clearly something that both the AFL and the CIO embraced but the CIO, for the first time ever, launches a massive campaign, a massive campaign by way of organizing a political action committee, actually. And they go all out. And in fact, oh, man, you're all there. So I should sh- next time, if this comes up again, I'm going to actually show you some of the materials that they I have them back here that they used in that 44 campaign. This is all Sidney Hillman. 
was really pushing this economic okay. bill of rights. We, we're, so there you go. Yeah, thank you. Great question. And let's now, we have, uh, I believe, two more questions. And let's now go to Nicholas. Hang on. I'm having problems. Hello, Nicholas. Where are you Zooming from tonight? Nicholas, are you there? Oh, hold on. Let me get my video. I got you. I got you now, Nicholas. By the okay. way, just last thing, Nelson Lichtenstein's book. No, it wasn't Nelson. Nelson wrote on Ruther. Uh, Steve Fraser's book on on Sidney Hillman is definitely worth reading, though um, he's a little more critical at points of Hillman than I think he might have deserved. But in any case, it's a great biography. Let's go to Los Angeles. Nicholas, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Good, good. What is your Thank question you. for Professor Harvey J.K.? Um, my question is... Uh, a person had commented on the chat last week about um, a right-wing trope that's often used, saying that, well, um, the New Deal didn't get us out of the Great Depression, World War II did, and make it like as if it's some just, once again, like magical things just magically happen. And I'd like you to comment as to how that's probably not true and ridiculous, and how, what, Compare and contrast what Roosevelt did during the war domestically and executing it compared to, I don't know, maybe like uh, others in his party or in the Republicans, how that would have been different and how. uh, David, I have to tell you, these are two great questions. I know, and I think we have to wait till next week. Those are two great. You want to launch next week? Yeah, that's a great. Don't let him off the hook. No, 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 Nicholas. I think Nicholas stayed to the end of our Zoom after hours. Nicholas hasn't gone to sleep yet, by the way. I know. So <laughs> can you remember, Nicholas, th- th- those are big, big questions. Did yeah. World yes. War II put an end to the Great Depression? That's something that I was raised to believe. But yeah. I, And the other thing is comparing it, World War II, how he handled domestic issues, Versus yeah, those are great, really great, great questions. questions. Real, and yeah, that, that could be a whole show. Last question for Professor Harvey J.K. Let us now. By the way, Nicholas, go look in the public library or go online and buy the Fight for the Four Freedoms. What made FDR and the Greatest Generation truly great? It'll give you at least a, a, a place for us to be talking, okay? Let us now go to Connor. Where are you Zooming, Connor? I'm Zooming in Maryland right now. Okay. Good to see you. Um, are you there Friday night, Connor? Or, or are you? Were you there Friday night? Oh yeah, I, bet, I was. I was there uh, all all the way through. Right. You made it to the end. Am I not recognizing you because you have sunglasses on? You, uh, I was just talking to you with Howie. There you are. Um, now I recognize you. Right. Okay. All right. We're, we're, we have limited time. What um, is? Yeah, uh, so how old are you, by the way? Twenty six. And and you're a black belt. Yes. Right. By the way, on Obamacare, he's running out of his parents' health insurance soon. Yes, I do not have any health insurance this uh, anymore. Medicare for all. Yes. Yes. Are you voting for Biden? Um, I'm in Maryland, so probably not. But oh, um, Harvey should be cool with that, right, Professor? I, if you're in a blue state, more power. To, I said it in my statement. I am envious of all of you. Please believe me. What do you have a black belt in again? Taekwondo. 
And what what level? I'm a fourth. I was going for my fifth this year, but it's probably going to be delayed due to the virus. God, I wish I could. Because because to get the next bell, you have to break someone's neck, not just boards. <laughs> <laughs> Professor K, if you could if you could use your hands to hurt somebody physically, would you? <laughs> Go ahead. No. Not what we teach, all right? We, you know, we teach compassion and protecting others. Remind me to tell you when I got knocked, when I got punched one time. Just remind me. Connor, what is your question for Professor? We have two teachers talking to one another. Um, so my question um, involves race. So uh, oftentimes um, I hear people kind of dismiss FDR. Well, oh, he was good, but he was a racist. You know, uh, with all the Japanese internment, but then also. So, how does race, um, how do we address the race question with the question of class? Because people, you know, in West Virginia who are poor say, oh, well, there's no such thing as, as, you know, white privilege. I don't see any white privilege. I'm poor. I, you know, I have a hard time in my life, but they don't see what's happening with stop, stop and frisk and such in New York. So how do we, you know, not ignore people's true, like, you know, issues that they're having with race? without just lumping everybody into the working class, like, you know, still respecting everybody's point of view, I guess. Great question. Uh, David, between the two questions that Nicholas asked and the two questions here, we've got, like, we could do this all Friday night. Probably. I know, I know. I, I can't I can't begin to answer the question right now because he's going to he's gonna tell me time's up. We've got to answer them. So, I'm, you know, okay. th- these questions, are great. They're, they're amazing. They're amazing because... By the way, your two questions, Nicholas, I'm looking over here because he's on my screen over here. Right. Uh, Nicholas, they're great. Okay. And I definitely will answer them. And Connor, your, your two questions are outstanding. And I can tell you that they're on the, the fact that you've asked them shows you how much they're on the agenda again. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that in, for too long, leftists and knee jerk people knee jerk the question that he was a racist FDR, which I will, I will deny. Okay. Eleanor, Eleanor was okay. a racist. As a young woman, yes. And she later becomes the more vociferous person on the question of, of literally civil rights and racial equality. But so I really do want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about this question of what do we do? And Bernie himself knew what needed doing. And that's why they kept accusing him of being originally of being sort of inadequate on, on the question of race. But he was going back to the FDR model which was a timely model today in the wake of the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Acts, and that is Medicare for all. Right. Okay? That, right. And, and student, and by the way, free public higher education. That's a, these, those are FDR things. And, and basically speaking, those who accused him of being inadequate on race may, may well have been, were being unfair in part because they weren't allowing for a public conversation of what would be involved in all of that. Well, I should mention that Friday night at 9 Eastern, we do our big office hours where listeners can talk to our guests and guests can talk to our listeners. It's a lot of fun. And if you would like to attend, once again, sign up on the office hours page of my website, davidfeldmanshow.com. Follow Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. And pick up his latest book. FDR and Democracy, The Greatest Speeches and Writings of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
Last what? word, okay? Just something I'll tell you. In light of well, let me, let me finish my plugs here. Okay, thank you. <laughs> you really are. Are you talking I'm, about Joe Biden's hair plugs? That's all we need to know. Uh, no. Uh, and if you would like to read the greatest speeches and writings of Professor Harvey J.K., I cannot recommend Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, Enough. Thank That's you. a fractured <laughs> sentence. Yes. I should have done... I can't reckon I cannot recommend enough the book Take Hold of Our History Make America Radical Again it is a fun read The Fight for the Four Freedoms What Made FDR and the Greatest Generation Truly Great We have to start talking about Thomas Paine and yeah, we should. the Marxists uh not that I'm yeah, getting well, to, we'll that I'm, I'm not going anywhere for the next <laughs> year it seems it's uh yeah this is, yeah. uh, yeah. yeah. I'll tell you what. I'll just, uh, did I mention, I told you, but did I mention that just before we came on, Biden co- cost me a follower, cost me two followers on Twitter. One cut out because he thought I was unkind to Biden. The other one cut out because he couldn't stand the fact that I was going to vote for Biden. Okay. So if any of you join on Twitter, please don't hold anything I say against me. We'll just have a good time. Yeah. Would you be willing to, are you, do you debate? We had Ben Burgess. On. He's a, a yeah, the other night, Do you yeah. like to debate? I don't like to debate. I have debated. Do you enjoy it? Well, I used to. I've done conservative radio. If anybody's interested, I can send. In fact, I was on um, Fox. What do they call that? Fox Business News one day, and I ended up in a fight with Stuart Varney, mm. which 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 they refused to post. They refused to post it, so I posted it on YouTube. And if anybody's interested, send your send an email to David. He'll forward the email to me, and I'll try to get it out to you. This fantastic. This, hey. Thank you, everybody. Great question. Stay on the line. Thank you. You're listening to the David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. And it's the most incompetent regime in American history. And they see everything as an opportunity for themselves to privatize everything, including the post office. They want to destroy the post office now. Yes. What are you most worried about this week? What 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 do you you know? We're being told stay indoors, shelter in place. I'm staying. I'm indoors. <laughs> I don't. I haven't been out. So what are we missing? Because while we're indoors, while we're asleep, you know, money never sleeps. Greed never sleeps. What are we not paying attention to? I'm not saying I'm asleep. I'm very awake, um, and I'm paying attention. But uh, I, I just, I, I'm just trying to, you know, not. In, in L.A. this week, they said I don't. I think they're crazy, but they, I'm going along with it. They're saying this is the week to not, under any circumstances, go out. I don't see how they they come to that conclusion. But you know what the hell? I don't. I don't need to go anywhere anyway. Okay. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Ready, willing, and able, one of my favorite comedy troops from the 60s. They're great, Ready. They're very good. There were no Curly, Larry, and Moe, but who? <laughs> Mark Breslin joins us. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, if not the world. A rock on tour, an entrepreneur, and... I, a flaneur. 
A flanner? A flanner. I, am, I am a flanner, but you've got to watch it that you don't uh, light a little match next to my ass when I flanner. Um, <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, thank you. Now, I don't know how many people out there know what a flanner is. Well, I was hoping you were going to talk about uh, the, who you taught me about the guy who entertained the French in the 19th century by lighting his flaneurs. Well, that was Le Pedomen. Le Pedomen. And Le Pedomen, yes, Le Pedomen. And uh, he was a complete, he was a huge hit. He was as big as uh, Sarah Bernhardt was. And he, his act was, he would go on stage in like huge, like opera level houses. And people would pay vast amounts of money to see him fart. Yes. And he, the, uh, the climax of the show was he would light his farts on fire while he was singing while he would fart the national anthem the french national anthem which frankly if you're not a fan of france is exactly what they deserve but that's beside the point i think um and, and i'm amazed that nobody ever made a movie of the pedomaine and his life um and i heard that tom cruise this i'm not making this tom cruise has the rights to it well let's review because i had mr methane on two years ago i looked him up yes and yep. I called him. He still lives in, in, in Great Britain and he's still gaseous. And I had him on the show and he was fantastic. People don't believe me when I say this, but do you remember in, I guess this must have been 1994. I did the gala at the Montreal Comedy Festival. It was me followed yeah. by Mr. Methane. Followed by Janine Garofalo, followed so by so Jonathan Winters. You opened up, so you opened up for the farter. The farter didn't open up for you. I'd be insulted personally. <laughs> I don't know who was repping you at the time, but whoever it was, I hope you got rid of them. So I'm going to say, if you were my client, there's no way that you would open for the farter. The farter would open for you. And Mr. Methane, uh, you know, killed. Mr. And by Methane? that, I'm, go ahead. I thought it was Mr. Methane. It's methane? He calls himself Mr. Methane. Okay, let's give it to him, whatever he wants to be called. Well, you know how professional farters are. They're so pretentious. Oh, man, I'm telling you. They're just impossible. They have a turned-up nose at everybody. Really? Really? (laughs) I don't don't like them. I much prefer the piss acts myself, (laughs) Um, but maybe that's just me. You know, Andy, Warhol made a whole series of paintings called piss paintings where he would um, urinate on copper and it would oxidize and that would be the painting. Did you know this? That was his yellow period. It was his yellow period, but it turned brown uh, over time. <laughs> but um, I won't even get into the artistry of Danny Thomas and what he loved. But um, that's a whole other kind of story don't you think yes and i i hate to interrupt you but i made a deal with god that i have what was it anytime we make a reference to danny thomas and the glass top coffee tables i have to plug saint jude's i have to plug saint jude's hospital it's a deal go ahead they turn nobody away they do the lord's work they it doesn't matter if you have money or you don't have money go to saint jude's and give them money it has been vetted by somebody I truly respect who does not endorse charities, but he endorses St. Jude's. So give to St. Jude's. I understand. So I can continue to make fun of Danny Thomas. And well, you know, 
Danny Thomas was a pro when it came to this. I tried that fetish, and I stupidly realized, no, you have to be on your back for it to really work properly. <laughs> stupidly, I had my nose buried in the carpet, and by the time I turned around, uh, the show was over. And all that you could do was mop up, you know? <laughs> Well, I was into the fetish. You know this about me because I travel throughout Canada with you, and you knew that I was yes. into the glass top coffee table fetish. But I was poo shy. I could not go. I, you know, the the person would be squatted underneath the the coffee table. I could not go for them. I could not go to the bathroom. You don't. In that situation, you don't want that person to say, "I don't have all day." Um, it really kills the the romance and the whole beauty of the whole experience. You know, um, you want somebody who does this in a kind of loving way and is patient with you, because a lot of it depends on what you ate uh, beforehand. And you know, if it comes up fast or slow, it's not really under your control. Is but you know, and you're gonna, and you're not gonna believe this. But I read a book once called, uh, oh, I can't, I think it was Speed Tribes. It's about um, sort of social tribes in Japan, underground social tribes in Japan. And there is a group of people, very wealthy men, who get together, and they have this dinner. Well, I could only call it a dinner. And what they do is, for a week before the dinner. There is a girl that they hire, and they feed her nothing but fragrant herbs. Mm. Do you want to fill in the rest of it in your own mind, and the readers, the listeners can do the same thing? Well, or do I have to be explicit about what happens next? She's having it to go, as they say. <laughs> it's to go. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> but this is supposedly true. It's this. It's this thing, and... Um, and then she takes, she comes on top of the, the dinner table and takes a dump into a beautiful silver bowl. And because she has been, you know, uh, she's been fed this good stuff, um, everybody has a little bit. Um, which reminds me, I don't know if you know this, but if you ate toothpicks, your shit would look like hors d'oeuvres. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. <laughs> okay, so there are these men who literally eat, they pay this woman yeah. to eat nothing but fragrant herbs for a week. And, yeah, it's, and then her poo doesn't stink. It's supposedly it's a delicacy. But, you know... <laughs> I, it's not my delicacy. I'll just say that. I'll I'll stick to oysters. Thank you. Yeah, I don't understand. Now, yeah. is this a sexual or a, a gastronomy? Is this something that they do because they just think it tastes good, or are they turned on sexually by it? I think there's an intersection, kind of a um, Venn diagram of sexual and gastronomy, and the part in the middle uh, that you shade in. That's where this fits in. Do all you're an anthropologist? Do all cultures have some shame associated with going to the bathroom? Now that's a good question. Um, did, let's sort of just expand. Did um, did early cavemen, for instance, have that shame 
was was shame? Where did shame of the body come from? And I mean, if you go back far enough, I guess that's the Adam and Eve story. That's about eating, the, you know, from the uh, the apple from the tree of uh, the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge gave Adam and Eve shame. They didn't have shame before. All I know is uh, when I was dating. I was dating this girl who came over to my apartment, and she said, I have to go back. And I said, oh, no problem. It's over there. And she took a dump with the door open. <laughs> and I swear, I, I was that was the end. I don't care how pretty she was. I don't care how smart she was. I don't care how nice she was. She took a dump with the door open, and it was a small apartment, you know? Like, you couldn't get... It's not like she went upstairs and did it. No, it was right in front of me. And not only that, she strained. And, you know, that's even worse. I have to listen to this sound coming out of this very pretty girl. Mm-hmm. And then she's what? She, said, oh, she wipes herself. She goes back to the sofa. And we continue our talk about Norman Mailer. It was, it was just so weird. I, I, I couldn't go much further with her. I had to say, hey, I'm tired. Oh. I'm I'm tired of hearing you, you know, strain and plop. <laughs> but, but why? I mean, so that suggests that she didn't have to go, but she wanted to go. She knew. <laughs> she knew in her heart, because that's how far up it was. She knew in her heart that there was something there that had to come out. And I think in her mind, she'd rather do it there and then than later on, maybe when things got, you know, kind of hot and heavy. To say, excuse me, I have to go take a dump and make you listen to it before you come back and finger me some more. This is Larry Brown's line. This is not my line. Remember Larry Brown? Yeah, Bubbles. He goes, hey, before I tell you this, the gloves are off. It's... (laughs) This is the pandemic. I don't care anymore. This is, I'm going to quote Larry Brown. I was making love to this woman. She was really loose. Halfway through it, she said, put it in the other hole. I got to take a dump. (laughs) He was great. He was so great. I met him through you. I never would have played Yuck Yucks had it not been for Larry Brown. I can't get him on the show. What do you mean you can't get him on the show? He doesn't doesn't want to come on. He's, you know, he's got other things to do. Like what? I don't know. It's Larry. I made it. First of all, who has anything to do these days? Nobody really has anything to do. I have never. You can't use the excuse, I'm busy (laughs) now. You just can't (laughs) use that excuse. And I don't want to say that anything bad about Larry, but he never exactly made it big, and so it's not like, well, I'm weighing my options to see if I can find a better uh, a better podcast to do. No, Larry. Somebody calls you. They want you. You do it. Come well, on, Larry, if you're listening to this, go on the show. He never made it big. Neither did I, which may explain why he doesn't want to do the show. What does he need to, to waste his time? I don't know. I can't, I can't, I can't explain it. Going back to the, the Romans, as I understood it, yes. would sit yeah. at a public toilet. They would convene and meet and in their toes, they would sit and take their, their daily dumps, right? It would- okay. So to that, um, um, let me respond <laughs> by saying, when I was on my honeymoon with my wife, we went to a place 
uh, in Paris, which was a nightclub, a famous nightclub. It wasn't Moulin Rouge. It was more modern than that. Um, all the, it was kind of semi-nude and everything was done under black light and it felt kind of like 1979 softcore porn. Um, but then my wife said, I have to go to the bathroom. So she goes to the bathroom. She comes right out right away. And I said, what's the matter? She said, there's toilets, but there's no separation between the toilets. Hmm. There's no walls between the toilets. People are just there having dumps beside each other. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. So, um, so there's that to consider. It had, that hasn't completely gone away. And here's another thing. Do you remember what, it's a great scene in a Boonwell film. Um, and I think it's the speech charm of the bourgeoisie, but it might be the one that came after that. I can't remember what it was called. But in this, um, there's a dinner party, and everybody is sitting at toilets around the table. And they're all presumably taking dumps while they're sitting there. And then somebody says, excuse me, I have to go. And they go, oh, okay. And he go, they go into what looks like a bathroom, but that's where the food is. <laughs> and they lock the door and they eat. It's a brilliant scene from a brilliant filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. But I can't remember I can't remember which one it's in. It's it's in one of the three big ones that he did all in the uh, like late 70s. Yeah. One of those. So fantastic the, scenes. So the shame is it like, you know, Old Testament dietary laws like you can't eat shellfish because back then it wasn't considered healthy. Do you think the shame associated with going to the bathroom is more about protecting our, our health than it is anything else? And that's just ingrained? It, it could be, but we also have the same taboo against peeing in public, and urine is not necessarily um, harmful. It's actually kind of sterile. You know that um, when somebody gets a bite from a stingray, um, you're supposed to pee on it, right? Yes. yes. Right, right, which costs me a fortune to keep those stingrays. Um, <laughs> uh, but... <laughs> you know. So the ancient Romans, I hate to keep bringing up the ancient Romans, but urine was collected. They used it to to clean clothes back in ancient yeah. Rome. Yeah, it's sterile. Um, you know, there's all kinds of microgums have a bit of a, you know, you're lost in the woods. What are you going to do? you got to drink, you drink your own urine, remember? Um, it was a great bit, but it's true. You're supposed to be able to drink your own urine, and it isn't supposed to uh, uh, hurt you. And then there was the, the Prime Minister of Pakistan back in the 70s, who I believe was Bhutto, uh, Prime Minister Bhutto, and he lived like to be like 95, and he was still in office. Hmm. And they said, somebody said, uh, what do you attribute your, your longevity to, Prime Minister? He says, well, every day I have a small glass of my own urine. <laughs> <laughs> And the journalist goes, you could probably find this on YouTube. Pardon me? I said, like he said, he had to say it twice. I said, every day I have tried to have a small glass of my own urine. Now, I find the funny part about that, the fact that he had to say small glass rather than large tumbler. Because, first of all, he's 95. It would probably take him all day just to fill the tumbler. On the rocks, right? In my case, it would be on, on the, the rocks. rocks. Yeah, really. It's uh, or what did Billy Crystal Carter said? I get up in the night for the more uh, the Morse code, right? Yeah. You uh, didn't you have painful kidney stones at one time? Like 
20 years ago? Bladder stones. Bladder stones. It's a bit, it's different. Um, they're not as bad as kidney stones because kidney stones are passing from much higher up through a much smaller tube. They're still annoying. Um, and every five, seven years, I have to go for a little operation where they take them out. But I changed my diet significantly and I had a, what do you call it, an ultrasound, uh, which is painless, of course, and they didn't find any in there. So I'm doing okay. You had them young in life. I'm sorry? You had those when you I were was, young. Yes. Yeah. When I was young, I had what? But you, I, I remember when you had that. I remember thinking, you're very young to be having that. Yeah, it's usually old Italian men who get this. But my father also had it, so it must be hereditary. Um, I have a somewhat misshapen bladder um, with striations in the, uh, on the inside of it. And so what happens is, and I, I'm sure your listeners are just want to hear this because it's so compelling, but um, I have striations on the inside of my bladder which cause the urine to collect and not completely void, so crystals form, and then the crystals turn into stones. Hmm. And the last time the guy, the urologist, took them out, he showed them to me after I came to, um, and uh, they looked like they looked like little moon rocks. They were silvery. It was very strange. Uh, well, anyway, hang, on, hang, on, hang, in- hang on for one second. Are they beautiful? Yeah. You know, I hate to bring up the coronavirus, but it's beautiful under a, a mic. Microscope. I mean, it's just gorgeous. What did your bladder stones look like? I mean, could you put them on a ring and give them to your wife? Well, clearly you've been speaking to my wife um, <laughs> because that's exactly what I did. What I did was I took her diamond ring and I sold it and I, I reset it with my bladder stones uh, in there. And uh, let me tell you, there's about a, it's a four-carat stone. Um, she's got nothing to be ashamed of. And it glistens because we had it polished. And when she goes out, you know, a nice lunch with her friends, she just sort of looks for a, a table that has a, the sunlight beaming in. So she can just, you know, hold her white wine spritzer in such a way that the light dapples upon my bladder stone. And, you know, her friends will go, oh, oh, that is a beautiful stone. Did your husband, your husband gave that to you? He made it for me. <laughs> really? Wow. That's better than Etsy. You won't find that on Etsy. Well, when you were looking at it, did you say, I made that? That's interesting. I want to keep that, or I never want to see it again? Mm, well, I, I, somehow, I, the joke of the wife, not, notwithstanding, I, I just let them throw it away but it was they were sharp also that was the other thing i thought they would be round and smooth but they weren't they were actually kind of sharp and if they had been passed normally they would have really hurt so it was good that they went in and did a you know you know catch and retrieve session they put you to sleep for it yeah yeah so let's let's talk about canada and what's going on oh your favorite your favorite topic well we banned assault rifles Last week, I don't know if you heard that, in response to the worst mass shooting in Canadian history, 23 people um, dead in the Maritimes, near that's near Halifax. What are you, and, New Zealand? Uh, all one, what are you, New Zealand? What? What are you, New, Ze- New Zealand yeah. pulls that kind of crap? Yeah, I know, they, 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 they did that too, I know. Um, I didn't even know you could get 
that kind of gun here in Canada. I didn't even know it was legal, but evidently it was legal, and they they put an end to that. Although I got to say, somebody who wants to do this, somebody who's crazy enough to do this, is going to find the gun and they're going to buy the gun somewhere and they're going to go in and do it. But at least you know this is a statement that it's not tolerable. But here's what's weird about this these shootings. The guy didn't go into a place and shoot it up. He got in his car, went somewhere, shot a few people, got back in the car, went somewhere, shot a few more people, got back in the car, went somewhere, shot a few people, which means he was very impressed with gas prices um, <laughs> with, under the coronavirus issue. So, that's, you're saying that's the problem. It isn't guns. It's the... No, the gas prices were just too were yeah. just too low. And had the gas prices been higher, I think he would have been dissuaded from the idea. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this sort of thing almost never happens in Canada. Almost never. Um, I mean, people kill kill people in Canada, but it's usually some you know a jealous lover, or you know, there's a bank robbery, or there's there's some motive to it. But motiveless stuff like this almost never happens. So they quickly um, you know change the law. I don't know if. That will really do any good, but it's good that they changed the law anyway. Yeah. Your, you know, your Constitution, um, whatever is Second Amendment, I believe, the yes. so right to bear arms, yeah, it should be changed, and it should be a privilege to bear arms. Just one word, just change that one word. It's a privilege to to bear arms. Only given to whom? Sorry. Only given, Only to, given whom? to whom? Who who enjoys uh, well, that? Well, you have to go through the way it is here. You, you you just can't go in and buy a gun at a gun show. You have to show reason. You have to fill out forms. You have to take a course. It's 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 insane that you can drive a car. Um, you can you can buy buy a gun. You can get a gun more easily than operate a car. That's just I just don't get it. Okay, we 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 have to wrap it up in four minutes. Quick quick question. Yeah. Are people wearing masks and gloves up there? Yeah, I just did. We went. We spent the day shopping. Um, we had to replenish the larder, and uh, yeah, I wore mask, gloves. But are other people? Everything. Is there a fatalism that I'm seeing here in New York, where certain people, a lot of them frontline workers, not nurses, not uh, doctors, but frontline workers in grocery stores or parking lots? are not wearing masks, and I've asked them why not, and they go into conspiracy theories that I think are true. But do you have people up there resisting the masks? Not much. We went to a park um, on the weekend. It was really nice. It was a beautiful day on Sunday, yesterday. And, uh, you know, the three of us wore masks and gloves. But not everybody was, but everybody was keeping their distance. It wasn't very crowded. We went pretty late in the day. Um, and that's one of the tricks, I think, if you want to be safe, is don't go prime time to a park. So right. um, I'd say most people are wearing masks and gloves when they're out. This country, America, it, the, there's a problem with the people, not just the leadership, but there's a, a problem with the citizens who have been so broken by the leadership. They're doing insane things. You are a Canadian. I've known you a long time. You've always been forgiving of of the United States. What I'm picking well, up. Well, I like their. Well, but David, I like because I like your product line. That's what it's. That's what it boils down to. Um, you know, it's it's 
the product line is good. Even the philosophical product line is good. It's a, it's a good script. You've, you guys started with a very interesting script. And uh, Canada did not. Canada started with, you know, a negotiation, put everybody to sleep. Um, that's how confederation was, was done, without a bullet, without an argument. There's just a bunch of people sitting in a room saying, okay, how are we going to organize this? And they did. And here we are. It's not very dramatic. That's one of the things I've been... Yeah, I admire the, drama. One of the things I'm wrestling with is we have a character. You know, the French have a character. Israelis have a character. The Germans have a character. There is an American character. And it may not be so appealing. There's no, some... I mean, this goes back to, you know, the, the phrase, the ugly American. You, nobody had that phrase about Canadians or uh, the Swiss. The ugly Swiss, you never heard that. We have to wrap but, it up. It was always that thing. We have to wrap it up. Okay. Yeah. But, but, but let me ask okay. you a question, because we do a Zoom meeting every Friday night. And they're, yeah. they're incredible. I'm going to invite you to it. It's where the listeners get to talk to the guests and the guests talk to the listeners. And I went around. Yeah, I'll do it. Good. Well, this Friday night. <clears throat> sure. Just send me the, just send me the Here's my question. So the Zoom thing. Here's yeah. my question that I asked. I put okay. this out to everybody. In the past 20 years, you know, it's been 20 years since George W. Bush said, why do they hate us? Name one thing that the United States has done in the past 20 years to make the world like us. Nobody could answer. They all said, you know, the Fast and the Furious movies. What has America done since 9-11 to burnish our image, to make us likable? Well, I would also say, why is that so important? You're a comic. You were never interested in being likable. And the best comics may not be likable. The best performers may not be likable. The best artists may not be likable. And the best countries may not be likable. Look, I'm not defending the United States. It's, it's, it's a, it's a terrible place in a lot of ways, but it's also got some spark of energy that is very hard to find in a lot of other places. I've traveled enough to know that. Right. And the good comes with the bad. So, um, maybe it's not that important to be well liked. Okay. Feared, I think, is the answer. Yeah, I don't like to replace um, unlikability with fear. I think that's a bad choice. Right. But if you could, but maybe, but maybe likability is a fetish. Right. And it's a fetish on, in, on an interpersonal level. You'll always hear this. What's he like? Oh, he's really nice. Oh, what a nice guy. Right. Nice guy. You know what, uh, what Dizzy Gillespie used to say about that, right? What? They asked him in an interview, Dizzy, you work with the best. You worked with Red Rodney. What was he like? Is he a nice guy? And Dizzy Gillespie said, nice guy? Who cares? Give me a prick who can play. Right, right. Well, America, for better or for worse, is a prick who can play. Yes. Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America, perhaps the world. I'll see you Friday at our Zoom meeting. Thank Sounds you. Good. Thank you so much. Thanks, David. Okay, Take be care. well. Thank you. Okay, you too. Bye. You know, I've been asked to do a lot of public service announcements. I say a lot. I think three or four. And I've said no every time. Because the idea that someone would go, 
Man, Jeff Garland, oh, he's so funny. Wait, he's saying stay inside. Honey, it's serious. Stay. In other words, people don't need me in their face. I'll come on, like, my friend's podcast. I'll do, like, on Instagram. I'll have a conversation. But I don't want to be shoved down anyone's face. And I'm leaving people alone. I'm not doing any of these living room shows. Not me.